Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Decentralized, Distributed, and Disruptive Technology Summit. I am so glad that you are joining us today. We have a wonderful program lined up for you, and I can guarantee that you are going to get a whole lot out of it. This is part of the Greater Reset Activation. It's phase one of the Greater Reset Activation 2, which is the people's response to the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Agenda. What's that all about? Well, essentially, it's a marketing plan for New World Order 2.0. For quite a long time, there has been an effort to increase totalitarianism and centralization in this world from the likes of the Rockefellers and the Bilderbergs and the United Nations Council on Foreign Relations. Many people are familiar with this. Well, nowadays, the technology exists to really usher in some pretty frightening things. Part of the Great Reset Agenda is called the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which essentially aims to merge biology and technology, not just human life, but all biodiversity on Earth. And that's a very not not good thing. So we want to counter that, right? The World Economic Forum is putting forward the fourth industrial revolution. We want to counter that with the first decentralized evolution. And this is already something that's organically taking place with decentralized technologies, encryption, decentralized blockchain. But during this program, we want to highlight the first decentralized evolution, and we want to take it a step further. We want to accelerate it. That's right. The Greater Reset Activation, that whole world effort movement, it's all about activism. It's about action. It's about doing. There are so many people that focus on the problem, research the problem, become overwhelmed. Well, we want to understand the problem, but understand it in the context that we can strategize so as to work around it, so as to opt out of it. And that's what we're going to be doing today. The topic for today is opting out of the fourth industrial revolution. Topic for tomorrow, we hope you'll join us tomorrow as well, 12 CST. The topic for tomorrow is highlighting and accelerating the first decentralized evolution. Now, this fourth industrial revolution that wants to merge biology and technology, there's even Microsoft has this planetary supercomputer where they want to track and trace and catalog and analyze all biodiversity on Earth, right? The Great Reset, it's all saying that it's for the benefit of the environment and for the benefit of folks living in poverty. When in reality, when you study the ethos and the plans of this oligarch class, it's not really the peachy stuff that they make it out to be. And when you when you understand what it is that they're going for through this technology, fourth industrial revolution technology has to do with drones, artificial intelligence, blockchain technology. We'll talk about the paradox of how blockchain can be liberating and also enslaving. Internet of things, smart cities, 5G technology. What it boils down to for me is that the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution aims to create a world with greater centralization, greater surveillance, and greater control. And so what we want to do is flip that all around on its head 
And through the first decentralized evolution, we want to create a world of decentralized power, of privacy, both in the physical world and the digital world, and of greater freedom. And that's really what it's all about. That's why we are here today. And so we've assembled a amazing, inspiring, innovative team of thinkers, entrepreneurs, activists, writers, and we hope that will inspire you. We want to educate you, but more importantly, we want to inspire you to action, not just in your individual life, although that's where it all starts, but also in your collective life and in your associations with other people and under other individuals. We want to make sure that you are equipped with the knowledge necessary and the motivation necessary to go out there and to minimize your digital footprint, to opt out of the banking system, to prepare yourself for the coming technocracy, and better yet, to insulate yourselves from it and create a better alternative. That's what it's all about. We don't have to freeze like a deer in the headlights when we learn of this coming technocratic control grid agenda. Rather, we can say, okay, I see that that's happening. I understand that this is part of an effort that's been going on for hundreds of years to control people, to further centralize power. I recognize that. But you know what? Because I recognize I'm a beautiful, powerful, free human being, as our good friend Derek Bros likes to say, we'll be hearing from him tomorrow. Rather than be a victim, I am going to step into a state of empowerment and I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to participate in the acceleration of this first decentralized evolution because I see a lot of hope for it. It gives me hope for the future that we have this decentralized tech that cannot be controlled, that can enable people to send and receive value, money, information, decentralized forms of social organization without a corporation or a government or a nation state. We can make collective decisions. We can transfer value. All sorts of good stuff is underway, and, and it's a very beautiful thing. Let me break down a little bit about what we are going to be doing today. Here shortly, I'm going to be introducing our first speaker. Very excited to hear from Anthony Mueller. He is really sharing a lot of knowledge over at Mises and his own personal blog about the fourth industrial revolution and the great reset. He's been working really hard to expose that. After that, we're going to hear from Sterling Lujan. He's a crypto anarchist, very deeply involved in the cryptocurrency space, but he's always pushing back on the efforts to regulate, and he's really a consistent, pure voluntarist. so it's great to hear from him. We're going to hear from uh, Nick Spanos, who's been involved in the crypto space for quite some time. He's going to give us his perspective through an interview on cryptocurrency, how it's changing. I'm really excited to bring you guys a roundtable. It's called Overcoming the Barriers to the Private Acquisition and Transfer of Cryptocurrency. I've been involved in crypto myself for quite some time, and I also do consulting. And everyone's like, how do I get cryptocurrency privately um, without doing KYC, know your customer, and using Coinbase? And, you know, it's quite the challenge. So I brought together a diverse group of people so we can, we can put those obstacles on the table, and then we can cooperatively figure out how to overcome them. We're going to hear from our own Ramiro Romani. He is the co-producer of this event and of The Greater Reset. He is going to share about how we can create our own servers, our own technology, our own hosting. We don't have to rely on these third parties that are not to be trusted. Super excited to hear from Rachel Rose O'Leary. She's part of this whole dark renaissance movement that really wants to bring cryptocurrency back to its anarchist roots. And finally, we're going to close it down with the one, the only Jack Spirico of the Survival Podcast. 
He's known for preparedness and homesteading, but he also has a lot of knowledge and wisdom when it comes to cryptocurrencies and the importance of digital privacy in this crazy technocratic era that we are entering. Folks, I want to invite you to share this with your friends. Share the stream with your friends. You can go to d3techsummit.com, d3techsummit.com, or thegreaterreset.org slash live, thegreaterreset.org slash live. We invite you to click the links below to check out some of our sponsors. We'll be telling you about them throughout the stream. And also, if you want to participate in a chat, we have a pretty big group in Telegram in the Greater Reset chat. So we invite you to subscribe to the Greater Reset channel. You can see that there on the side of the page. And also join the Greater Reset Telegram chat where you can interact and participate. Of course, if you're watching us on Float, another one of our sponsors, we'll tell you more about them later. Or if you're watching us on DLive or on YouTube, there's also the ability to comment there. We are going to take some opportunities to get interactive with this as well. So I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Again, this is the D3 Tech Summit. We're going to be going today till 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Lots of information to share, and you are definitely going to enjoy it. But without further ado, let's go ahead and bring up our first speaker. What we like to do with the Greater Reset, it's really focused on solutions and activation, but we are also going to be presenting the problem and who better yet to really underline the nature of the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution than our good friend Anthony Mueller of the Mises Org and uh, Continental Economics. Anthony, how are you today? Thank you. Thank you. I'm fine. Great being here. Thank you for your invitation. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, we look forward to hearing from you and, and learning what the Fourth Industrial Revolution is all about. So go ahead and take it away. Okay, thank you. Well, thanks a lot for, for being here. Uh, I fully agree with the intention of this conference. That's been uh, in my heart for a long, long time that we are going down the wrong path towards more centralization, towards more state control. And also, it's almost all too clear how wrong this path is. There is still lacking a strong counter movement. And uh, so this conference, I think, really is amazing. Uh, and I would like to thank the organizers for going ahead and bring an alternative view into focus. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the fourth industrial revolution, freedom or tyranny. Uh, one can also say impoverishment uh, or uh, prosperity. Yes, uh, we have to be for freedom, of course, because we love liberty, because it's an essential uh, aspect of our life. But uh, even uh, along with that, uh, being against freedom also, interestingly enough, means to reduce our prosperity. So what we have to offer by decentralization, decentralization, less state, less government, more capitalism is not only more freedom, more liberty, but also more prosperity. Well, over the past 200 years, since the first Industrial Revolution, uh, technology has already transformed our lives more than in the thousands of years of history 
before. And probably, probably uh, in, the, in the future, in the decades to come, we will experience a new form of fundamental uh, transformation. And it is more or less so in our hands, uh, whether it will be the path to freedom and prosperity or poverty, uh, despair, and uh, unfreedom and tyranny. Well, uh, the point to keep in mind is that these great movements that we had with the first industrial revolution and now the second, third, or fourth, some economists only count two industrial revolutions, others count seven or eight or whatever, it does not matter. The present uh, fourth, usually called fourth industrial revolution, will do the same as the others before, uh, give a huge impulse uh, to productivity. Now, what may be what may be the difference is that in the first industrial revolution the productivity happened first primarily in agriculture and the access labor in agriculture could easily move to the industrial cities and find many workplaces better paid and also uh, more agreeable than working uh, in, in, on the land uh, for these masses of people flooding into the cities. Of course, the cities at first, too, were crowded, but over time the prosperity uh, was clearly visible, and this prosperity in the industrial cities also spilled back over to those who left uh, over, who, who stayed on, in the countryside. Now, uh, the present industrial revolution may have an equal or even more impact on productivity, that is liberate labor force. But the problem seems to be, where do these persons go to? Where will be their, their jobs? And what kind of jobs will there be as this new kind of uh, industrial revolution also uh, not only leads to a robotization of the industrial plans, but moves on also in so-called sophisticated area, yeah, accounting, uh, legal services, and uh, even in, in the medical area. Now, uh, so this would mean that all our present system in terms of education, schooling, universities, diplomas, etc., et uh, get more or less obsolete. And also that the impact of the, of the economic policy, which is job creation, economic growth, and the welfare state, the subsidies, uh, price controls, etc., yeah, uh, will become the wrong path. Now, what can show up uh, uh, as far as we can see it right now without uh, 
neither scaremongering nor having too much illusions about the chances that show up. The outstanding effect, so it seems, of the new industrial revolution is a gigantic leap in productivity. Now, productivity has this positive side that with less labor, I get more. Or one can also say with the same product that I produce, I need less time. So productivity is two-sided. I can use the same input of hours and get more output, or I keep my output constant and I'm liberated to have less input. And input in this, when we use labor, our hours work, is less labor. It is something that we all might agree is a fine thing. Uh, it is nice not to have the treadmill of working 40 hours or more uh, per week and have more spare time. The problem is, and this is the point, it's not the spare time that is bad or not being uh, liberated, of course, from work. That is a problem. But the problem is, To put it quite simply, <clears throat> how to pay my bills when I work less? And how do I get an adequate salary? We have the strange phenomenon that different from my youth, when it was still amazingly rare that uh, two parents uh, were, were working, uh, now you have it almost common, particular in the professional uh, uh, range uh, that uh, husband and wife are both uh, working because to a certain extent <clears throat> they have to uh, because the costs of rearing children has grown so much. So we have strange paradoxical situations in our present system that we are usually forced to work so much, not to get so much more goods, yes, but just to pay the bills that come in with health bills, old age insurance, and so on, paying the taxes, paying for regulation, and so on. Now, uh, how can we get out of this problem? And to me, it seems that we have to get rid of our current uh, political uh, and governmental system, which is tuned and which, which was formed in this past industrial era, Uh, let's call it the first industrial revolution. There has been a great change from the pre-industrial world to the industrial world. And now what we have with this kind of economic policy, social security, just take social security. It's absolutely tuned to working class. You have working class, you have a middle class, you have an upper class. Middle class can take care of itself. They have enough money. Yes, to provide health services and old age. And of course, the upper class 
has wealth, and so we have to take care of the working class. Uh, lower class in this sense did not exist, but it was the working class because this industrial uh, sector uh, absorbed uh, this huge amount of people. And as soon as people came into the, or immigrants in the United States came, they were absorbed by this system. And the system then provided certain kinds of old age pension regulations, healthcare. Uh, job security to a certain extent, and our system is tuned to that. Now, the whole of the industrial policy and the economic policy is tuned to avoiding a depression, uh, a crisis. So it's all used. We must maintain full employment, full employment, full employment, because without full employment, the whole system uh, is in danger of collapsing. Now, this, this would be the wrong policy now, because if you're still focused on full employment, you're doing exactly the wrong thing, because we want to work less. We want to be freer. The problem is not uh, work. The problem is how to sustain ourselves and get enough funds. And so uh, we have to change our our whole focus of, of, of the policy to get to this very simple, very clear point that the old or uh, uh, traditional uh, aims of, of, of policy make no longer any sense. Now. And even now, now in terms uh, when confronted with a crisis, the, the risk is even that, that they expand. Now it's social justice coming in. Yes, we have to integrate the poor. So it's getting more and more. And we have to, of course, to take care of the older people, of the elder people ever more. And now we have a vaccine problem. It's getting huger and huger. And before we look around, we notice we have landed in socialism. We have landed in a centralized system. We have landed in a, social, in a socialist system with the consequence of poor economic performance, which is quite obviously always less economic performance over the past decades, more centralization, more frustration, more problems instead of less problems. And this is the wrong way. This is obviously the wrong way. I mean, one could write thick books, as, uh, as I have tried with my book about capitalism, yes, to, to do that, that it's, we, we have a, a mess of all, all these old failed policies, and still they are brought up again and again, and, and uh, this way we do not uh, move forward. The collectivist policies... Uh, have not worked, yes, and they won't uh, work better uh, in the future, and, uh, even more so. They will be uh, detrimental to our prosperity. And the risk is very strong, yes. Uh, uh, and now here comes uh, the point to see that when the, the nation state is about to fail, yeah, the natural reaction that we are for, so to speak, would be to decentralize, to move towards more capitalism. But what is happening now? 
in face of the failure of the so-called nation state, we, we go up to an even higher level. And the one world order, new world order, one world government, and uh, as, as the, the so-called pandemic has already shown very, very clearly, uh, who governs? Who governs? Yes, this old question, who are the rulers? And one will see that it is not even your local or state or federal government, but main decision-making took place at the World Health Organization level, which is somewhat a part of the United Nations, but not even a full-bodied member of the United Nations. That would be called, okay, it's an international political organization. Yeah, so this is uh, amazing what has happened. Now, when you work, for example, in education, as I have been doing for quite some time, you note uh, that main lines of what to teach, how to teach, uh, what ethics to apply, come from the UNESCO, the United States Educational and Scientific Organization. Now, I always worked, I also worked at the, in the financial markets. And now where are you looking at? The IMF in international economics, international finance, the International Monetary Fund. Yes. So we have a number of supranational and international organizations. Supranational, super, uh, is, is, is the, the, the uh, European Union, for example. And as a, a pre-step to this world government, And uh, one can clearly see, and uh, I think in this respect, the so-called pandemic is, a, is a, a great lesson to see how, how bad uh, these institutions uh, do with the lives of the people. It is a sad thing that has happened. Uh, one can say that the... Uh, World Health Organization by its policy recommendation, policy order, whatever, yeah, has destroyed half of the world economy and has put millions of people into deprivation. I mean, just imagine, no, no national state, no regional state would have done this. No community would, would do this with its population. But some guys, they are in Geneva, interesting enough. They are not in New York, the World Health Organization. Uh, from Switzerland, they are exterritorial, interesting enough. They can't even be persecuted by, by the Swiss police. Yes. And then they sit there and give orders Yeah, to do this and that and to recognize this. And this is a pandemic by changing definitions. And the national governments follow that like a military order and apply horrendous measures to their own population without really taking into account that these suggestions or orders may be totally wrong 
and uh, uh, ineffective, uh, whatever the purpose is, when it goes, uh, for example, uh, about, about when it's about health and, and so on. So uh, even, and now we, we see, né, even uh, the so-called uh, Western countries uh, submitted to this new uh, assault, And uh, the executive branch took directly uh, the orders, uh, applied these orders, recommendations, suggestions, whatever you may call, and there was hardly any resistance from the side of the parliaments, of, of, of the legislative branch, There was no resistance from the judicial branch, even though individual rights were deeply concerned. And also the resistance, let's say, from uh, industrial associations uh, was, was very, very uh, uh, muted. Uh, uh, so we, we can observe that with such a hierarchical system uh, that is no longer regional or state or national or international, but global, yes, you, you have a dictatorship almost overnight because you have persons that are uh, in immediately not countable. Uh, your local member of the uh, community of the municipality, you meet uh, on the street, your congressman you can uh, talk to. But uh, how can anyone talk to the members of the WHO? What is going on here? And how do you address your president or chancellor or prime minister Uh, when he says, well, that was uh, the advice uh, from the World Health Organization. Uh, everybody did it. You know, this reminds of this kind of excuse. I was just following orders. And now I was just following orders. You may hear from your prime minister or your president. Imagine what's going on. It's so outrageous. It's so mind-boggling. Maybe because it is so absurd and so beyond anything to believe that the people are still paralyzed. Yes, and still have not the grips in their minds to really see what is going on. And of course, they live from promise to promise. The next promise is, yes, the recovery, recovery is just around the corner. Well, we will see what will happen in the next couple of months and years to, to come. Now, what would be, what could be the alternative? And I'm a <clears throat> adherent of let's call it anarcho-capitalism, which simply means a kind of capitalism with almost no state interference. Yeah, anarcho, without a ruler, without hierarchy. 
let's just have free market, yes, uh, on the one side. Now, free markets give us prosperity, give us productivity, and give us freedom. That's it. Yes. And now the problem is there are some forms of living together where we need certain kind of yeah, rules or a certain order. We need some kind of general laws. Yes, less is more, is better. Yes, in this sense. But nevertheless, we need some kind of uh, organizing, ordering our, our communities. Now, for in history, even uh, among the, the Greek democracy, uh, was already the idea of what Hayek called demarchy or government by lot. Yes, my simple suggestion, because I'm much concerned about, yeah, about economic policy, uh, international relations, and so on. So, how can we change this party politics, this 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 uh, hateful and and full a system full of lies and cheat that that we have in politics, and everybody knows it. I mean, uh, one does not need to to to, to show up with with details about it. It's systematic disease, systematic lying, yes, and systematic craziness. Yeah, what whoever you like, uh, the f previous or the present president, I mean, you can make your choice uh, about uh, what kind of people, uh, whether you like it or not, you have your favorite, whatever. But look, look at the one before or, 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 or who is now and, and you know what, what, what I mean. So we, we, have, we have this kind of problem of, of surely uh, having a lack of, of understanding Uh, about the problems of the people, aloofness uh, in, in the political sector. So uh, uh, what I have developed and try to promote also in, in, in some of my books, and I'm preparing a new ed edition about that, is to have a system where uh, you have a lottery and uh, of representatives, Yes, and, and statistically, we need, uh, even if you want to represent the United States, we need about 2,000 representatives, true representatives, yes, that are selected, yes, regularly, uh, and then they go back into the community, so they are not professional politicians, Yes, and these would be the assembly. That would be the legislative branch. And they would hire government business companies, consulting companies, who would execute. But they would have the power. Now, we could go move to such a system simply by installing such a thing besides the present system. So you would have some kind of similarity to the upper house uh, for earlier upper house in, in Britain where, where they could sanction laws. Just think about that, that we would have delegates chosen by lot 
for a limited time, let's say one and a half years only, and then they move back to the society, but they have special information, they have special access, and so on, and they can judge what is going on, and they have a veto right. Yes? Uh, just imagine great disasters would have been prevented in the past, where politicians pursued certain ideas, and if we had had such uh, a, a people's assembly, yeah, that just had a veto right, Yes, uh, many economic follies and international uh, policy follies and economic policy follies would have been uh, uh, prevented. So there, uh, that so-called demarchy or sedition uh, would be would be a way out uh, of the of the uh, dilemma that we face. So there is a chance, but the past must go towards uh, liberty, towards capitalism, and towards decentralization to maintain and regain our liberty and also to uh, maintain and regain now, that, that will be the great task we have to face, uh, our prosperity. Thank, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was a lot of really good information. I really appreciate your perspective on everything there, Anthony. Thank you. Okay, excellent. Yeah, keep up the good work. We'll be sharing your articles and your links throughout the stream so folks can see some of the research that you've put together. And uh, again, I really appreciate, I'm, I imagine as soon as you learned about the Great Reset, you just kind of shifted some of your focus to that because you've really been pumping out a lot of good articles and essays about that. So keep up the good work. Okay, I'll try to. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me. Okay, thank you. You take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Anthony Mueller, that was great. Excellent talk. I really, one of the great things that I appreciated from the talk was the fact that the further away power and authority is from the people, when you centralize power up at the international level, the supranational level, there's less accountability, right? Even with local and state, I mean, the city government here in Austin, Texas, they all live in the West Austin wealthy neighborhood, almost every single one of them. But at least you run into them every once in a while at the grocery store, right? And if they turn into total tyrants, they have to face the people, right? And then each level outward that you go, there's less connection with the people that are being governed. And when it comes to a central government, like the United States, great big geographic area, all the way up in Washington, D.C., so many rules are being made. There's no accountability. And now, as we see the fourth industrial revolution coming into play, there's going to even be a shift away from democratic, Republican forms of government. Not that we even really have that. It's more of an oligarchy, really. But it's going to be a shift away from this representative traditional form of governance where you elect politicians, they make decisions, terrible concept anyway, terrible model, I'm for self-governance, and it's going to shift to being ruled by scientific elite. And 
different autonomous organizations and entities and code and smart contracts. So we need to be cautious of that. And the thing that we can do to bring the power back is to focus on decentralizing systems, opting out of those systems. I also want to point out too, um, what we like to present here with the Greater Reset is a diverse diversity of ideas, right? So I myself am a fan of capitalism and the fruits of capitalism, although I see that we have crony capitalism and this mercantilism that's in place, right? I consider myself an agorist and voluntarist at heart, but we want to welcome all different systems, except for maybe fascism and communism and technocracy, which we oppose. But there's who knows what the right way to organize a society is or the best economic system. I think the the number one thing that we can do is have a default foundation of freedom, foundation for a free society where different types of experimentations and systems can coexist peacefully. And we have the exact opposite of that with where things are going. They want to have a total top-down hierarchical system. So we are going to continue on with the stream. I want to thank everyone that's tuned in on the website, thegreaterreset.org slash live, thegreaterreset.org slash live. That's the number one place we want to invite you to tune in. You can also watch on DLive on Float, one of our sponsors. We'll tell you more about them later, uh, as well as my uh, YouTube channel, Live Free Now YouTube channel. So definitely check us out. Share these streams with all of your friends. And we are going to continue on with Decentralized Distributed and Disruptive Technology Summit. Our next speaker coming up to the stage, we're going to be hearing from Sterling Lujan. He's going to talk to us about how to defeat a nation state with crypto, anarchy, and nonviolent technologia. Mixing in a little Espanol there. Sterling is a crypto anarchist. He's been around the crypto community for quite some time. He's also a consultant, keynote speaker, and one thing that I appreciate about Sterling is being at a lot of these cryptocurrency and Bitcoin conferences, um, you and I experienced that shift early on. It was like idealism. We're going to overthrow the system and replace it and we're going to undermine the banks. But then slowly but surely, the banks themselves and the big corporations and the regulators, they all crept in. And there was always a group of people that were like, hey, this is great. We should welcome this because it'll make us more money and it'll legitimize crypto. And Sterling's always been a consistent voice to say, no, 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 this isn't what it's all about. So we're going to hear from Sterling now. Thank you so much for joining us. Awesome, my man. Thank you so much, John, for inviting me. This is going to be amazing. I think I've really liked what I've seen so far. You guys are awesome. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Take it away. Yes, sir. So I'm going to kind of continue on where John sort of left off. And what we can, what I want to talk about is by starting by asking this question, why do we need to defeat a nation state, right? And for some people, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but I think there's a lot of people who still haven't woke up, who haven't taken that Matrix-esque red pill. So why do we need to defeat, defeat a nation state? So let's start with Murray Rothbard's book, For a New Liberty, Chapter 3, called The State. In Chapter 3, in this phenomenal book, Murray Rothbard defines very clearly what the state is. The state is nothing but a, a small group of men or humans that have a monopoly on violence, on initiatory violence over a large geographical region. So we want to fight back against a state because a state is effectively slavery. The people involved in running the state are thugs, murderers, and kleptocrats. 
And we have to be able to fight back against this because we don't want to be ruled as slaves. And it doesn't matter what, how the political setup or the political milieu is built. It doesn't matter if it's a, a democracy, a republic, a monarchy, an oligarchy, whatever the political arrangement is, it's all based in theft and murder. So let's talk a little bit about democracy, the current sort of socio-political arrangement that we live under. Let's start with a quote. One of my favorite quotes is from H.L. Mencken, and he has said that democracy is the worship of jackals by jackasses. Another good phrase is democracy is two wolves and a sheep deciding on what to have for lunch. So democracy is just mogocracy. It's thugocracy. Just because a group even if we were to, for the sake of argument, say that a group is is making decisions and the decision is based on the majority vote, it's still ruled by mobs. So if they, if the if the majority decided that murder and rape is okay, well then that's what we're going to get, regardless of what the minority says. So democracy is never okay, even if, for the sake of argument, it truly is the majority vote. And I don't even think it's that. I think it's just a facade. For, or an illusion so that the rulers can still maintain control and give people the illusion that they feel like they're they're free. So what's one of the other arguments that uh, express or demonstrate why governments are so evil and so bad? There's this concept called democide. It was written extensively about it by a an author and an academic by the name of Rudolf Rummel and he is a a professor at the University of Hawaii, and he's written for decades on this subject. And all democide means is that governments murder their own people, and they do that at a large scale. This is not private companies. Uh, this is not private people. It's always governments who commit the most atrocious acts against individuals and society at large. I really recommend reading Rudolph's book called Death by Government, and he's got another one called Lethal Politics. Now, just a, a word of warning, take some of his commentary with a grain of salt because he still tends to believe in democracy, which is a sort of unironic because he's still an academic professor. He still is indoctrinated and imbued with the spirit of leftism and democracy and the belief that this is free. But people are still dying in, in a large swath of people are still dying at the hands of democrat, democratic governments. We're seeing this with the U.S. and the imperialism and the massive wars and everything they are doing to enslave people. Let me share to, – to bring this all kind of home, You know, it's not always that we're getting murdered also. It's also that we're getting harassed, kidnapped, and, and basically held to account to silly rules that we shouldn't be held account for because there's not a moral problem there. So when I was – I was around 27, 26 years old. I was actually arrested for possession of MDMA and cocaine. I was arrested for approximately 500 pills of MDMA and 30 grams of cocaine. So it wasn't just a possession charge. They tried to charge me with manufacturing, engaging in organized criminal activity. But here's the thing. I was engaging in voluntary human action on the market. I was not doing anything immoral, right? Everything that was happening was by consent and there was no you – know, I know some people are like, what about the kids on the street? Were you peddling to those? No, that wasn't the case. If that was the case, maybe there's some arguments there, maybe not. But the fact is that if adult consenting adults agree to put something in their body and change their mind, that is their own decision, and it always will be their own decision. It's not up to some nanny state, some, some lighthouse state, uh, some – 
all-seeing eye of Sauron to determine what people should put into their bodies and to police those people for doing that. And that's what happened to me, and that's part of what woke me up to this idea that we have to fight back against the nation state because it does not have our best interests at heart. It is trying to commandeer our minds, our souls, and our livelihoods. And if we accept that, if we point blank accept that, we are accepting servitude. So it it behooves all of us to wake up to this matrix of control and to fight back with every fiber of our being. So that moves into the next question, and you're going to ask, well, Sterling, how do we fight back against such a monstrosity, against the Hobbesian Leviathan? How do we do that? And I think how we do that is that we first consider the the opposition, right? We think about what government ha- is capable of doing, and governments say in the U.S., the nation state in the U.S. is extremely powerful. You really can't fight back easily with modern weapons no matter how many guns you're printing with your 3d printer no no matter how, what kind of army you have they always are going to have more guns more firepower and more people who are brainwashed to follow those rules because that's the nature of what governments do they brainwash people to believe that the state is legitimate and needed to run society so trying to fight back against these guys with weapons is only going to end in more bloodshed and more than likely it's going to end in the imposition of another ruler who just takes the place of the previous ruler uh, continuing this vicious cycle right over and over and over again that's not what we want to do so what we have to do to fight back is we have to leverage the technologies at our disposal i'm a i'm a huge fan of this this cypherpunk or this crypto anarchist notion that we can use technology to fight back against the system. So nation states are effectively built on this, uh, this fundamental platform of being able to print out as much fiat currency as they want. By the way, fiat literally means by decree, by the authority of a governing body to tell you what kind of money you can use. Right. So governments, if they control fiat currency, they're effectively controlling you because they can print out as much as they want. And then they can expropriate that, those funds back. So this is really, in my opinion, the Achilles tendon or the Achilles heel of governments. If we can fight back against their their fiat system and we can leverage technologies and tools that even if we're not taking taking them over outright because you even then you can't do that if there's a, a single individual or person that governments can go after and arrest for messing around with currency or trying to de- compete with the government they'll do that uh, i recommend looking into what happened to bernard von nathos he he was the creator and the architect of the liberty dollar the liberty dollar was a was gold and silver coins or even just dollars that had gold and silver backing and he was passing these around and people were starting to use this to compete with government. Anyway, he got raided by the feds. He was arrested, uh, AKA kidnapped and put into a cage. He was luckily he was older. So he was able to work out a deal and get out. But the fact remains that if you, if you're seen as being able to compete with these guys, they are going to come after you income, the decentralized peer to peer cryptocurrencies. So, Cryptocurrency was actually created as a way to gum up the works of the the fiat system. There's a reason that Bitcoin was created on the heels of the financial collapse in 2007, 2008. And even whoever created it, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, etched in the Genesis block, uh, this is what was said. The message encoded in in the Genesis block was, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout. So there was this this word there that we're not we don't want to deal with these bail, government bailing people out and saving them and giving them money, 
giving their giving their friends fiat because that is what continues to prop up the pedestal of evil. So in order to fight back, we created these cryptocurrencies to to put a an actual decentralized currency into the mix where the creator is unknown and there's no one person that government can go after. And there's also no way that they can shut this down because it is a peer-to-peer technology. So now, now what we've done – the problem with Bitcoin, of course, is that it's not anonymous. I know that Derek Bros, uh, John, everyone knows this. They've talked about it. You can use tools like Chainalysis. Uh, these are blockchain analytics and forensics tools where you can tra- literally trace back transactions and you can find out uh, who a user is if indeed they transacted with a uh, a central exchange, which usually act as gatekeepers. Uh, these guys take uh, AML, anti-money laundering, and KYC, know your customer data. So if you transact with them using Bitcoin, they're going to be able to trace you all the way back. So what we've had to create uh, in, in tandem with Bitcoin is privacy or anonymous coins like Monero, uh, Bitcoin Cash now has Cash Shuffle. That's great. You have Zcash. So there's all these projects that have cropped up that people can use in a techno-agorist manner to help fight back against the state and also not be traced. So it's just my simple recommendation that we take the agorist route or this idea that we use use the gray and black markets to leverage counter-economics to fight back against the system and against the status quo. If we're fighting back against the system – Right. If we're fighting back against the system with these technologies, we're doing it in a nonviolent manner. In a way, this is a form of rebellion. It's resistance. It's embracing that maverick spirit to go against the grain. Right. And yeah, there are some people who are going to still get caught up in it. They're 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 gonna government's going to go after them if they're doing a high enough volume and they made mistakes and they're able to get transacted back. And uh, you know, this is effectively what happened to Ross Ulbrich, who created the Silk Road as Dread Pirate Roberts. Allegedly, he was Dread Pirate Roberts, right? There's likely different folks, but he was put into a cage. They use blockchain forensics tools, or they at least use block explorers to track back wallets. And then they, it, it, some agents tried to impersonate him, likely at some point down the road. So with that said, we have to be careful with what we're doing. But I think the key here is we need more mass adoption. The more people that are using cryptocurrency for cash in a peer-to-peer electronic-styled system, the the, le- the less convenient it's going to be for governments to track people down. So it's all about creating these parallel systems and undermining government in this manner. Now, some people are they, – they always ask the question, and this deserves uh, a bit of a discussion – what you envision, Sterling, seems like a kind of techno-utopianism where technology is effectively going to save us. Uh, but by the same token, and this is what with these guys at D3 and everybody's talking about with the Greater Reset, uh, technology can also be used for bad or be used to enslave us. For instance, the banks right now have – and John mentioned this earlier – they have, they they close accounts regularly if you do crypto business. They do everything they can to subvert the crypto ecosystem since they are gatekeepers. But the irony is they're saying no, no to crypto businesses, companies, and individuals, but now they're looking at creating their own CBDCs or central banking digital currencies. They're, they're going to create these so they can work with government and the U.S. Department of Treasury, specifically in the U.S., to control the population and control fiat. It's just going to be another kind of fiat currency. They're going to kind of pitch it like a like a traditional virtual currency like Bitcoin that maybe has some, some features of mining, et cetera, but it's all going to be fully controlled 
Uh, they're going to need to be able to hyperinflate it. They're going to need to be able to do quantitative easing and print out as much as this nonsense as possible. And every time they do this, of course, that acts as soft theft to the population. But my plea to you is don't buy into the propaganda. Whatever kind of coin that governments come out with, no matter who their partners are in the, in the private sector, these are not going to actually be cryptocurrencies. They're not going to be technologies that provide us more freedom. They're just going to be tools of control. So, yes, there is a possibility in, the, in, in a world that I don't want to live in where a techno dystopia emerges and we're being controlled by these CBDCs because now it's easy to track. Because in a truly cashless society, if we're not careful about the technologies – we use, we can become a victim of the nation state and they can clamp down extremely hard on us. So we want to make sure that we try our best to create the techno utopia. And that always starts with having a mindset toward agorism and toward freedom. We want to be able to create tools and technologies, whether it's cryptocurrency or not, that give us more freedom and that give more people the ability to fight back. So I think that is an amazing thing, but the distinction does bear some discussion. Don't fall for the CBDCs. Don't fall for the Fed coins and the Gov coins of the world because those aren't going to be what ultimately saves us. There's another discussion I want to jump into that's peripheral to this but is also important because the, the U, a lot of people still think the U.S. is really free economically. They really think that people in the U.S. – they think that people in the U.S. can use whatever kind of – uh, money they want to that's you know it's free you can do trades everything's fine and hunky dory so here's the thing if you're a cryptocurrency business and you're a bit centralized and a lot of them still are because they're trying to build technologies they may end up being decentralized or become a what's called a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization over time that is a possibility but if they're centralized and you're doing higher volume you basically have to be flipped to the feds to do business meaning that you're you're, you're giving out all the kind of information to the feds, the, anything that they want. Like if the IRS does a subpoena and they want a billion names, which technically they should be able to fight back against, uh, they, they have a tendency just to limit those uh, the scope of those subpoenas just a little bit, but they're still giving out a ton of information. You know, this happened with, with Coinbase. I think now it's Kraken is being subpoenaed for user information for the IRS so they can start tr trying to figure out who's doing cryptocurrency and who owes taxes on this kind of stuff. Uh, so what's happening now as a result of this, uh, companies like our company is crypto space. We've had multiple, we've had over 12 bank accounts shut down, not because we're doing anything wrong. We're trying to follow their quote unquote regulations. But if you're a part of what they call a disfavored uh, company or you're a disfavored industry, then they just try to shut you down anyway. They try to make it as difficult for you as possible to function. So what a bunch of cryptocurrency companies have done, they have started to flee the United States. Uh, there's a phenomenon that I recommend that you look into called human capital flight or brain drain. What this means is when government's regulatory environments are so onerous that you can't really do business there without bringing down regulatory scrutiny or getting thrown into a, a black box or a black hole or a cage, then those people are going to start leaving that geographical territory, and that's what's happening in the U.S. So companies like ShapeShift have relocated to friendlier jurisdictions. I think ShapeShift went to uh, Crypto Valley in Switzerland, and they relocated there. Uh, but uh, also, I think BreadWallet, they also relocated in Crypto Valley. Uh, there's been some companies relocate in Dubai and in Japan. And a lot of companies are also starting to scope out Mexico as well because 
uh, Mexico has a more of a sandbox environment where you can actually start to play around with these tools and you can mint tokens and create things without having to worry, are you breaking some kind of Securities Exchange Commission code? Are you breaking some, are you violating some kind of FinCEN rule? There's all these agencies that are attacking this industry and uh, from multiple different fronts. So it's good to be aware that if you're going to create something and you're doing it in a centralized fashion and you're trying to be uh, legitimate or work at least work with the mainstream economy, it's probably going to be best that you consider getting the fuck out of the United States because it is so awful and there's so much pent up hatred toward emergent technology or nascent technologies that these guys are not holding any stops. They're coming after people and, and, and granted some of the people in the space have legitimately defrauded others and they scammed people. And uh, for all I care, those people, you know, if they end up in a box, that's, you know, I, I'm not going to be sad about that, but by the same token, we all have to practice our own self-responsibility, our own self-ownership, and we have to do our own due diligence before we invest or before we get involved in projects in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Because if we just jump in willy-nilly and we we mess up, we make a mistake, some of that is likely are also our, our own fault as well. So we do have to take responsibility for those mistakes. Now, we, we should still handle the, the fraudsters and the schemers, but I think we should do that in a private way. We should build the tools with the, in our own networks, and we should educate people about the possibility of scams. And this includes learning to keep hold of your private keys if you're maintaining your own wallet in the crypto space. Uh, this means not falling for phishing scams. It means not falling for schemers and scammers who are leveraging uh, pseudo companies to try to uh, built people out of millions of dollars of money. So it's all about education. It's all about talking to people who actually know what they're doing in the space. So yes, we want to get ready. We want to nix these bad actors by creating a more competitive environment, but also by creating educational resources so people know they're not going to get scammed. It's not up to some bureaucrat or some kleptocrat to come come down on anybody within the crypto space and throw them in a cage. We can handle this ourselves. This is what the free market is all about. And I'm a firm believer that we don't need people in costumes and uniforms wielding guns to come and manage every single problem that they see. And uh, obviously, as a result of this, a lot of people who have simply innovated are now in cages. Ross Ulbricht's in a cage. He just innovated. Uh, Arthur Hayes, who was a, a really good innovator, the feds are going after him. He didn't even live in the U.S. He lived, uh, I think, somewhere in Mexico for creating a, an exchange and just onboarding anybody and not doing AML and, and KYC laws. So this is just th – this is a really sad state of affairs in, in the U.S., and it's true that they could come after you elsewhere. But if you get out of the states and go to the right place, it's very unlikely that they're going to come after you if they are – if it, you know, if if you're gone, it's there's more resource. That's more resource intensive. It depends on what you did. It depends on the country that you're in. So uh, my recommendation, if you build a, a company and you don't want to follow by the rules and you don't want to get flipped and turn into some bitch boy for a three letter alphabet soup agency, then you then you start thinking about leaving the United States. So that's what that's my big uh, a big point here. Uh, it, all these folks are already starting to leave right now. And I think this what this is going to do is it's going to make the U.S. politicians realize that maybe we don't need to be so hard on the industry uh, because uh, human capital flight actually hurts a country's gross domestic product. And it also hurts that country's reputation for allowing for innovation. And it's not surprising that the U.S. wants to corrupt innovation or stymie it to some degree because they right now are in in the lead, right, with with the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is the world's 
are the global reserve currency. I'll say it again. The dollar is a global reserve currency. So these guys are going to do everything in their power to protect their own interests. And if that means stymieing innovation and throwing throwing people in black boxes and cages, they are going to do that. So uh, be warned. If you want to innovate and you especially want to do, you know, be involved in money transmission or minting new cryptocurrency tokens, uh, beware of the potential risks from the from the bureaucrats and the nation state because they will come after you. After all, we've already determined we've already determined that a nation state, a government, is nothing more than a small group of men who have a monopoly on on initiatory violence over a large geographical region, and we see that playing out over the large swath of land right now. So I want to kind of I want to get sort of heading to the conclusion of this discussion and. Of, what you guys need to know is I'm an optimist. I have a beautiful and brilliant vision for the future. I don't think we're going to slink and slide into the techno dystopia. I think we're going to keep creating technologies that allow us to expand our consciousness and expand our financial opportunity and to grow as human beings. So there's a book that I recommend everybody read. It's called The Age of Spiritual Machines by Ray Kurzweil. And his vision of the future is similar to mine. We're on an exponential growth curve. Uh, this idea of the law of accelerating returns. We're creating so many beautiful technologies that it's growing out of control and bureaucrats can't keep track of everything going on. We've even seen this with the centralized companies like Uber and Airbnb. And it's going to start, this pace is going to get even, it's going to be even more intense. So it's very possible and very likely that we see that we so if we experience maybe a year of growth in a year, uh, maybe soon we're going to experience five years of growth in a year, maybe ten years of growth in a year, maybe fifteen years of growth in a year, and it's going to be very intense for some people. It's going to be like being on a legit surreal roller coaster ride. So we have to prepare for that. But what ultimately I think is going to happen, the vision is that humans and technology merge, right? Uh, because technology, in Kurzweil's words, is just evolution by another means. So it's going it, to the speed of evolution, the pace of evolution will increase because technologies and artificial intelligence will be able to replicate themselves and create even smarter machines. In the space of AI, this is called an intelligence explosion or super intelligence explosion. And I think this is a good thing because it provides even more freedom for humanity to become one with the technologies that we've created and to gain the ultimate kind of freedom imaginable. And when I was okay, so there was this this time when I was in Acapulco at the Anarchapulco conference and I was sitting, I was sitting on this, in this resort on top of a hill, looking over the beach. I had just dropped MDMA. I had taken my pill. I was starting to come up and I was sitting at this resort and I was looking out over the beach and I had this beautiful intensive vision that the, the fractals in the beach started to churn. They started to move around and they started to connect themselves with things in the sky. There were like these, it, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's a hallucination. It was more in my mind, but there were these, these robotic pieces that were merging with the fractal reality of the beach. And they just started stacking and stacking on top of each other uh, all the way to the top ad infinitum. And it was absolutely beautiful. And it reminded me of this uh, Kurzweilian notion of, the law of accelerating returns and intelligence explosion with the McKinnian notion of we're heading towards some kind of strange attractor at the end of time. There's this accumulation of all the things we're building and all the things we're doing, and there almost seems to be some kind of purpose behind it. So this is sort of my spiritual vision. I'm not what you would call a, 
a theistic type of person, but I do believe the mystery is being deepened by the fact that technologies are growing so tremendously fast and they're they're starting to become combined with our biological facility with our uh, w- with our skills and talents as human beings. So in a way we were almost created to build. We were developed to build. It seems like evolution kind of geared the human brain and the opposable thumb to be able to create technologies that effectively subvert the code of the universe allows us to really dig deep and figure out. And, and this is what's happening too with quantum computing, right? We're gonna we're b- gonna build computers of such profound complexity that they're able to harness the laws of the quantum mechanical universe primarily superposition entanglement these kind of things and then we'll be able to do even more calculations uh create better data processing units uh, and also attach this kind of stuff to ai and to fintech these things that i was talking about and it's going to be uh absolutely amazing so as a futurist i have a very op- optimist optimistic outlook on what's happening now that doesn't mean we don't need to be wary, and I'll get into this a bit again because there's two important people who have, you know, have concerns about the AI revolution, and that's Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, before he died, uh, these guys both said we need to make sure that we make the right decisions when it comes to AI as well, and that we press the right buttons and we design the right protocols uh, because AI could potentially turn into this uh, snowball effect of great evil, especially if it's encoded with the principles of the the nation state, right? If it's encoded with the principles of violence and nastiness and ugliness all across the world, then we're going to have a tremendously bad time. So we have to pay attention because it definitely could be that we end up getting lesser freedom, techno dystopia, rather than more freedom, which is that techno utopian sentiment. So that is of utmost importance. So I think I'm probably getting pretty close to to my time here, I, I think I've said most of what I what I need to say. I don't know that there's going to be any time for uh, questions or any other anything like that. I'm not sure if that's how the system is set up, but hey. I really appreciate the time, and I think that I, I'm really optimistic and I'm positive about the outlook of humanity, and I'm positive what we're going to do with uh, crypto anarchism and the use of our tools and our time. All right, excellent, excellent talk there, Sterling. We really appreciate your time. <laughs> So um, our next speaker, Nick Spanos, is not able to reach us. He may pipe in. So let's go ahead and take a couple questions uh, before we let you go. Uh, and again, thank you so much for for your participation. So I'm going to put the call out for questions. If you want to ask a question, put it in all caps. Put it in all caps so you can post it in the Greater Reset chat. You can post it on Float, on DLive, also on... Uh, the YouTube and Facebook as well, and we will make sure your question gets answered. So let me ask you this. Um, one of the things that I wanted to have Nick cover was like some of the basics about blockchain technology. And I see as you were speaking, there's some folks that are confused about blockchain. And one person even pointed out, you know, I'm really overwhelmed with the blockchain stuff. I hear good things about blockchain, but then you're also telling us to look out for these cryptocurrencies. So maybe if you could just give me your, because you're a great communicator and educator. So if you could give the answer this question as though you are talking to a fourth or middle school age kid, 
Uh, so let's try to make it as consumable as possible because it is extremely complex, you know, even surface level cryptocurrency stuff. So answer me this question. What is blockchain technology? So in the simplest terms, blockchain technology is just a distributed ledger. It is a record of account that spans time, right? And it's built into what's called a blockchain because it literally is blocks of data in code, right? One block has a transactional data that a, a multitude of computers across, and this is with Bitcoin specifically, there are different ones, but multiple computers working to validate the network called nodes uh, keep transactional data in these blocks, right? Uh, on Bitcoin, the block size is one megabyte. When that fills up, the miners validate that block and then they create another block. And basically, they're just taking fees. If I, like if me and John, if we do a transaction and I send Bitcoin to him, then the miners will pick up that transaction. They will record it in a block. So this is a ledger, just like a bank has a ledger. And they, and except this is distributed, right? The bank can get hacked. And their servers can go down and their ledger is gone. Your, your money's potentially gone if it's all recorded electronically. In crypto, this block, this, this ledger is controlled by many peers in a network. So that's the, uh, the fundamental or, or the foundational idea behind how blockchain functions. And I, I do want to kind of answer a peripheral question that, that John, people were talking about, uh, being worried about this technology. I think you only need to be worried about blockchain if what you're using is not anonymous, Bitcoin is not anonymous. People can trace. Uh, so when you when you when you do a transaction and the miners etch it into the blockchain, all that data is time stamped. Uh, the information is there for eternity, and people who have forensic tools can actually trace that back. But there are anonymous cryptocurrencies like Monero and uh, Cash Fusion on Bitcoin Cash, where this is impossible. You can't trace it back. So these are the ones you have to worry about. You have to worry about the ones that aren't actual blockchain technologies as well, like uh, CBDC is a central banking digital currency. That's just a database coin that they're printing. They're hitting a button and putting putting it as much out as they want, and then they can just take that money from you or freeze your account. That is not possible, even with Bitcoin. It's definitely not possible with some of these more obscure uh, technologies like Monero and Bitcoin Cash, et cetera. Awesome. Hope that helps. No, that does help. I just did a video uh, yesterday, last night, actually. I probably should have gone to bed a little bit earlier, but I did a video uh, asking the question, exploring the theory that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency were created as part of this new world order, mark of the beast type system. What do you say about those? Because somebody pointed out, well, there's a lot of mystery because Satoshi Nakamoto, he, she, they, them, whatever, uh, is it's unknown. So that leads to speculation. What are what are your theories and thoughts on the origins of Bitcoin? And do you subscribe to the possibility? Because it is a possibility, although I find it to be highly unlikely because the powers that be would just be shooting themselves in the foot by unleashing this decentralized technology. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've had this discussion a lot with a lot of people in the space, and it's the community's really split on the idea. I personally, I kind of agree with you, John. I think it's highly unlikely that Bitcoin was created by the feds. And here's the, this is the main reason why I think that's not the case, because Bitcoin itself, uh, even though it's traceable, it still has features that are not, it has features that the government does not jibe with. And that's the fact that 
it is it has a limited amount of Bitcoin that's ever going to be created, so it's deflationary. It's 21 million units, so they can't just hit a button on the Bitcoin protocol and create or print out as much of that as they want to. It's very it's, – it's automatically limited by protocol design by consensus a government's always want to be able to control how much money they can print out you know the whole the meme with the printer go burr and they're and they're maneuvering the little lever and printing out as much money as they want that's what governments want so uh it was not in government's best interest to create a technology that is disinflationary so i think the logic of why this wouldn't happen is clearly built into the protocol now does that that doesn't mean that government didn't make a mistake and they thought they would create this as a peripheral currency for like just for the drug dealers to use so they could trace back funds and maybe they did not anticipate that it was going to blow up and become this revolutionary thing and there were all going to be all these anonymized and privatized spinoffs. So now there is a case to be made, a stronger case, I think, to say that Bitcoin has since been co-opted, right? Possibly because What's happened is it's very hard to build on top of Bitcoin now because the developers, the core, to, core team has a stranglehold on the protocol. So in order to build on it, you have to ve- you have to be, be very uh, it sort of in bed with this block stream, this core, these, these, these companies that are involved. With. That's why I like some of the projects that are more peer-to-peer and more decentralized uh, in this regard, and that is uh, like Bitcoin Cash, uh, Monero, uh, Zcash. Uh, there's a bunch that I'm a fan of, but this is, the, this is kind of the important point here. Excellent. Hey, do you have a Bitcoin Cash wallet on your phone right now? I do. If you bust it out and send, let's let's do a demonstration because I understand a lot of folks aren't familiar. And one of the reasons why we're really hammering the cryptocurrency home is because we are a movement that desires greater freedom in all aspects of our lives. And many of us that are familiar with cryptocurrency and the decentralized blockchain technology have come to understand that it's this decentralized, trustless nature of this technology that really enables us to live more free and to engage in commerce, send information, post videos up on library blockchain, for example, that can't be censored by big tech or Alphabet Incorporated. And so that's one of the reasons why we're pushing this and we want people to better understand it so they can take advantage of it as well. Um, there's, If you go to a link, we're actually hosting a crypto workshop. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it later, but for folks that are interested, they're crypto curious, myself, along with Ramiro, Matt McKibben, who's going to be speaking tomorrow, we're going to be breaking down all the basics, giving you tips and strategies, teaching you how to use cryptocurrency privately. So there's a link to that in the notes, wherever you are watching. If you're watching on the website, you can see the banner down below. So yeah, let me, so I'm just going to demonstrate how a transaction works and how, how simple it is. So Bitcoin Cash is a great cryptocurrency. It was a hard fork away from the Bitcoin blockchain. Because as you mentioned earlier, you can only fit one megabyte worth of information on each one of those Bitcoin blocks. And the information is who sent what transaction, when, to what address. And when there's more people that want to send a transaction than there is room on that little one megabyte, transaction fees get jacked up pretty high. And this was a big problem. And I appreciate that you mentioned Blockstream and some of the core developers because there has been a bit of a co-option with Bitcoin. But as I want to point out, and you mentioned earlier, Bitcoin is just one of many blockchains. It was the first to market. It's not perfect by any means. It's pretty freaking cool because it was the first to market and kind of invented the technology. But there's other blockchains that are better for privacy, that are better for using as digital cash, that are better for smart contracts or whatnot. Okay, so so this is how easy it is to send a transaction. I have Bitcoin.com wallet. 
Thank you, Bitcoin.com, one of our sponsors. Uh, Roger Ver is a great um, advocate for freedom and supports a lot of great efforts. So if you will pull up a QR code for me, you can put it in front of the camera. So this sure. is how you send a transaction. So I'm going to go to send, and then I'm going to set up to scan a QR code. And then if he holds it there, I should be able to scan it. There it is right there. Okay, so now I have his address. So there's a public address. That's basically kind of like your account number, although you can create infinite public addresses. And each public address has a private key. And the cool thing about cryptocurrency is only the person that has access to that private key can unlock the ability to send crypto away from that address. So I'm going to send Sterling 10 bucks worth of Bitcoin cash. And let's see how fast yes. it shows up on his. That $10 could turn into $100 in, in, in no time. So, all right. So I'm going to send it to that address. And let's see how much it shows up, how fast it shows up over there. And now remember the old way of doing things with credit cards. You don't get your I, money until. I've already got it. The so. next day. So he got that. that now it's hitting the, the Bitcoin Cash blockchain. It's going to be confirmed by the miners that it's a legit transaction, that I actually had that cryptocurrency, and then it's going to be accessible for him. So that's how it works. There was no government. There was no central bank involved. It's really just the people's ability to, to do business, and no one can stop that from taking place. I have had my bank account shut down for selling Kratom and CBD, my Brave Botanicals. Frost Bank, they called me and they're like, oh, we recognize that you sell CBD now. We're no longer going to be able to service you. The branch manager from the downtown Austin, I told the woman, you know, this is why I'm into cryptocurrency because there's no branch manager at the downtown branch that can shut me down. I've had PayPal shut me down, Stripe, Square. They've all shut me down. It's because I sell a plant medicine. Bitcoin or cryptocurrency cannot be shut down. I think that's one of the, the cool things. Before we let you go, you maybe want to share some first steps you think people could take if they do want to get involved in the cryptocurrency space and some things to watch out for for beginners. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're wanting to get into the space, I always recommend Bitcoin.com's, uh, you know, their news site, news.bitcoin.com has a lot of valuable information. You can keep up to date news. They also have an educational portal on the site where you can learn a lot. I, I also recommend going to our website, cryptospace.com, where we have uh, regular blogs uh, about all kinds of crypto subjects. Uh, feel free to come and read those for educational purposes. Uh, we'll also educate you personally. If you just reach out to it for free, if you reach out to us and you want some education, you want us to help you, uh, we will do that for for free. Just reach out to us. You can do that. And then we, can, if you also are interested in doing a trade, we can facilitate that as well. So come on and check us out, You know, cryptospace.com and also bitcoin.com, two very great uh, resources, in my opinion, for learning more about crypto. I think, John, was there, there was another question thought you had in there a question that I needed to answer, right? Um, no, I don't know. But while I still have you, again, our, our next speaker is uh, nowhere to be found. But let me just hit some questions. There's sure. quite a few, actually. So let's, let's go let's ahead and it. respond to these. Old Chris Baker from Austin, Texas says, how do we keep the bad guys from ruining crypto? <laughs> this is relevant because the bad guys are destroying other parts of the net. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we, we keep the bad guys from ruining crypto by continuing to create projects that are totally decentralized, right, and completely peer-to-peer. -peer. Not all crypto projects are decentralized, and some of them have traded some level of decentralization for cent centralization. I think that could be fine so long as we maintain this key feature in crypto, and that's censorship-resistant transactions. We want to be able to trade crypto and not have those those funds frozen, seized, or censored in 
by any stretch of the imagination. So it's really as simple as that. We need to keep it decentralized. We need to keep making sure that the mining mining stays decentralized and there's not obvious targets for government to go after. When it's hard to find out who created it, when it's hard to find out who owns it or runs it, and typically with decentralized networks, it's nobody. That really throws a wrench in the gears of the guys who are coming after us trying to break down these projects. So I think that's actually a pretty straightforward answer. It's not always easy, though, but it is straightforward. Yeah, and and one thing that Chris maybe is referencing, the fact that blockchain technology paradoxically can be liberating it allows me to con conduct commerce without getting shut down. It allows people to store information on a decentralized um, social media platform like library. It allows people to make consensus-based decision-making without having to trust a third party. I saw someone saying trustless. What do you mean trustless? It essentially means that we don't need to trust another human, another corporation. It's an open source technology where the mathematical functions that secure the network, the algorithms like SHA-256, they can be viewed and examined and they work and they haven't been cracked. That's not to say quantum computing may not be able to crack them in the future, but for the time being, it works. And then the encryption algorithms will just get more sophisticated as the technology rises. So, but there, the blockchain technology can be used for sinister purposes. And there's a woman named Allison McDowell, who's a big critic of cryptocurrency. She's kind of critical of old Derek and I as well in the work that we're doing. <laughs> And she points out, rightfully so, that blockchain is playing a big role in the fourth industrial revolution in the Internet of Things, in geospatial control, whereby people, they want people to have a digital blockchain identity. And then you can send tokens that give you access to certain privileges. So let's say that you get your first COVID vaccine and your second COVID vaccine, and then they send a token mm -hmm. to your address that indicates mm -hmm. that you have received the vaccine. And then when you go to go on public transportation, in order to get into the bus, you have to have that token in your address. This is stuff that's taking place and rolling out. But that doesn't mean that we have to falter or shy away from cryptocurrency. And as Derek Bros likes to point out, if we we don't have to be victims and just seed this revolutionary technology, this evolutionary technology, like you were saying, we can pursue decentralized means. We can step into it and we can feel empowered and we can accelerate the first decentralized evolution, which is essentially what we're aiming to do. Do you have any thoughts on yep. that? Yeah, it's just, I mean, and if it does get, I talked about this in my talk, if it does get really bad in certain jurisdictions, uh, I like this idea from the nomad capitalist. Uh, the idea is go where you're treated best. So if things get really rough in certain jurisdictions, maybe it's true. Maybe we do just need to leave. We shouldn't have to leave because these are the immoral assholes who are hurting us on a grand scale. But we still have the opportunity to be part of this uh, human capital flight and to leave those jurisdictions because they're so onerous regarding what we're trying to do in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. But I think overall – uh, John is also right. We have to main. We can still build and keep building, and just do our best not to use, not to opt in in any way possible to their their nefarious plans, their tokens, their their centralized shit tokens. So we got to stay away from those as much as possible while building what we want to build. Right? They, at some point, they can start forcing us to use those things. But I think at that point, even more and more people are starting to question government. They're starting to wake up. And I think we're going to continue to see more resistance. We're going to see more iconoclast emerge and start fighting back against the system. So I Excellent. think in a way, it's a good thing for them to issue more controls <laughs> from that perspective.
Oh yeah, for every op, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's like a yin and the yang. The harder they press and squeeze, the more we push back. I think they overstepped their bounds with what happened with COVID. Sure, a significant portion of the population just bought the narrative hook, line, and sinker, but it also woke a lot of people up to like understand. Wait a second, this doesn't make sense. The lockdowns, all of the holes in your story, and the contradictions. Uh, also like the bailouts. I know there's some activists that I'm familiar with here in central Texas, the bailouts, 2007, 2008 here in the United States after the housing crisis and around the, and around the world, like you pointed out, chancellor on the brink of another bailout. Um, that was a big eye opener for people. They just saw that they were literally being robbed, uh, in the video that I did last night about crypto and the theory that it's controlled and contrived and was created as part of the mark of the beast system. I pointed out the irony in the fact that many people, due to their misunderstandings of the technology and seeing it as this in this one black and white view, there's a lot of gray in the middle. It's it's decentralized cryptocurrency that can enable us to continue to do business and exchange commerce and have information when the mark of the beast system gets rolled out, right? Because the mark of the beast, the idea is uh, we can shut you out of commerce unless you have the mark, right? And it's a social credit score kind of thing going along with it as well. And so if that is implemented, it's these decentralized, uncontrollable blockchains that cannot be shut down no matter how hard someone tries. And as long as that free spirit of, of no, you know, just saying no, enough is enough, basta ya, we're, we're not going to obey if, as long as that spirit is alive, which it'll never die, that's the animating contest of freedom that we experience throughout history, then we'll still be able to engage in international commerce, even if we want to. Yep. hundred percent agree. Right on. All right. Do you want to drop some of your websites real quick so people can follow you and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah. So I'm, I'm about to release my first book. It will be published in about a, about a month and a half, roughly. And you're, you, you'll be able to pick that up on sterlinluhan.com, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-L-U-J-A-N.com. It's called Dignity and Decency, Rhapsodic Musings of a Modern Anarchist. Uh, also, you can go to, to our, our business site, which is cryptospace.com. Uh, we cater to people who want to do uh, pretty large cryptocurrency transactions and trades, and we're about to launch our exchange in about a month. So that's cryptospace.com. And then finally, I'm always a Bitcoin.com supporter. You can actually still find my articles there. I've written a lot at over at news.bitcoin.com and then search Sterling Lujan. And then you can find me over at Facebook as well at Sterling Lujan. And then all and then the decentralized platform uh, float, which is, well, going to be even more decentralized soon enough. Float.com. It's SK Lujan. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Sterling, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, John. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Keep up the good work. Peace. All right. Wow. That was a great talk. And it was great to have him hang over to, to chat with us here for a little bit. He mentioned Float. It's a social media network. I'm on it. Derek's on it. The whole crew's on it. Sterling's on it. Why aren't you on it? It is owned and operated and created by some free loving people, some freedom loving people. No censorship. The idea is you can share whatever floats your boat on the network. So check that out at float.app, float.app. They have generously sponsored this event to make it possible. Let's go ahead and give a shout out to the rest of our sponsors real quick. Without them, we wouldn't be able to pull this off at this scale. 
Uh, thanks to Inniscale, throw that in there. So let me just play this video real quick and you guys can hear about some of the businesses and organizations that have made the D3 Tech Summit possible. We want to take a moment to thank our sponsors who helped make this event possible. Bitcoin.com, your one-stop shop for all things crypto. Whether you want to get your first wallet, buy or sell the hottest altcoins, or stay up to date on breaking crypto news, Bitcoin.com has you covered. Autonomy. Join navigator Richard Grove, along with a passionate community of like-minded individuals, for a journey of self-discovery that will help you to unlock your limitless potential. Their 13-week course is enrolling now, so sign up today at getautonomy.info. And we'd like to send a special thanks to Inniscale. With over 15 years of experience in data management and hosting, Inniscale delivers innovative and reliable cloud hosting and cloud servers for your personal or business needs. Here at The Greater Reset, we trusted Inniscale with the hosting of our site, and they helped us to handle over 150,000 visits during our last stream. No matter how big or small, you can trust Inniscale with your hosting needs. More information at InnoScale.net. That's I N. N-O-S-C-A-L-E dot net. Thanks to Float Social Network. Believe it or not, there's still a place where you can share whatever floats your boat. No censorship, no data mining, no deplatforming, just wide open freedom. Join the network at float.app. That's F-L-O-T-E dot app. And finally, thank you to the Greater Reset Activation viewers and participants. We do this for you, and we cannot begin to express how much we appreciate your support. And now, without further ado, back to the activation. back and we're back. So, you know, I just want to point out, I'm a co-producer of this event and I'm hosting this piece. And I'm also watching as a viewer in awe of some of these transitions. And I'm not going to try to be all cool. Like, yep, that's just how we roll. I'm, I'm really in awe of the work that our good friend Philip has done. He has been working around the clock um, to produce all of those cool transitions you see and the D3 and the spinning. And literally we threw it on his plate last minute. Um, well, not super last minute, but I, I gave him a pretty tough deadline to meet. And you know what? He did so graciously and, and we were uploading and sending everything just before. So I want to shout out Philip. He is doing a lot of good stuff for us. You can see his website down there. He is Dutch, so he's on the whole other side of the world. I know we got a lot of folks tuning in from all over the globe, but if you want to use his services, he has seven years of experience with personalized multimedia content. That's graphic design, video, animation, and he's been a joy to work with. So it's it's Philip here. You can check out that URL there. Creative Revolte. I think he's trying to say Creative Revolt, but a different language there. So pop in that URL and check it out. If you like what you've seen on this event, all the cool little transitions and stuff, he can create that for your personal project or or whatever floats your boat. Again, this is the D3 Tech Summit. Check us out at d3techsummit.com. We are going to be streaming till five o'clock. There's still a lot 
to talk about and a lot of folks coming up. We are about to launch this roundtable I'll introduce here in one second. Then we're going to hear from Ramiro Romani, co-producer, really bright mind that's going to share with us community computing and the return to open source. Then we're super excited to hear from Rachel Rose O'Leary. She is part of this dark renaissance movement that wants to bring cryptocurrency back to its roots. Finally, we're going to talk to Jack Spirico of the Survival Podcast about the importance of privacy in the digital age. Okay, we're just going to take one more quick break, ladies and gentlemen, and we will be right back. Told you it was going to be quick. I just wanted to play that cool video, really. All right. We're coming in just a little bit early uh, for our next panel, but it looks like we have them all in the studio. The title of this roundtable, I don't even want it to be a a panel. It's a roundtable where we're going to engage and interact with one another so we can cooperate and inspire and leave the roundtable moving forward with a whole new motivation towards this goal of private cryptocurrency. So the reason why I wanted to do this roundtable, it's called Overcoming the Barriers to the Private Acquisition and Transfer of Cryptocurrency. I've been involved in the cryptocurrency space since 2013. And in that time, I've seen a devolution of sorts away from the kind of anarchist Wild West roots, which I'm a big fan of the whole free market thing, towards this know your customer check where you got to scan a driver's license in order to get cryptocurrency, uh, chain analysis, analyzing the Bitcoin blockchain. So I wanted to bring together four different experts in this field, in this space that can share with us some of their knowledge and some of their wisdom. And hopefully we can collaborate, we can talk together in order to figure out how folks can better access cryptocurrency privately. So without further ado, let me go ahead and bring on some of our guests here. Paul Pui is our first um, roundtable participant. He is the creator of Edge Wallet, formerly Airbits. Known this guy for a long time, done a lot of work with him. How are you doing, Paul? Doing well. Thanks for having me, John. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. We have Matthew Raymer. He's with Content Safe. He's an expert on all things decentralization and the interwebs, and he's got this great platform. Derek Bros uses it with the Conscious Resistance Network, where it takes the video content and plasters it to all these alternative channels and decentralized channels. Great thing to avoid censorship. Matthew, thanks, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you. All right, and we're going to hear from J.K., This guy is an anonymous guy, which is why you see that BCH logo there instead of a picture. Uh, Jonald Fiukbal is the creator of the Electron Cash Wallet for Bitcoin Cash. And he has also invented an awesome coin join type technology that obscures the sender and receiver when doing BCH, which is a really important part of having private cryptocurrency transactions. Jonald, are you with us? Hello. 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 Hey, guys. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Let's just start uh, by introducing yourselves uh, to the audience. So we're going to go through one by one. And if you guys would introduce yourselves, we will uh, take it from there. And then I got some questions for you guys and we'll we'll make this work. And again, I want it to be more of a roundtable format. So in the beginning, we just want to hear from each one of you to introduce yourselves. But then let's try to keep it fluid and flowing and really try to share some ideas so we can help people to utilize cryptocurrency privately without the man's prying eyes. All right, uh, Paul, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little about your work? 
Uh, thanks, John. Yeah, so my name is Paul Poy. I'm CEO and co-founder of Edge. Uh, formerly Airbits, as John was mentioning, we were founded in 2014, and our goal was to build a, just at the time, a simple Bitcoin wallet that was focused on payments, you know, really being able to pay merchants, peer-to-peer -peer payments, um, but making key management and privacy nearly invisible. You know, we implemented as, as much security and privacy measures as we could into the app, but made it where you didn't feel like you were using a cryptocurrency app, hit a lot of the complexity into what really felt like just a, a cloud-based service. Um, we pivoted in 2018, launched Edge as now a way for people to buy, sell, and trade crypto while always holding their keys. I think that's one of the key things in, in privacy. You can't have privacy without first having autonomy. Unless you hold and control your own funds, there's no hope for privacy. Um, and then we've been growing since then. You know, we're seeing really good trend, uh, transaction volume and uh, really... Really looking forward to this uh, this bull run bringing in uh, a massive wave of users into crypto and hopefully into private cryptocurrencies. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, and that's definitely something that's been lacking in the crypto space, like a killer app or something that simplifies the use. Everyone's used to like a PayPal platform and a lot of the wallets were kind of wonky. One thing about Edge is that it's very simple to use and logging in with the with the Thank setup you. for that. You guys have done some great innovation. So great wallet that you guys can get, that you guys can access yourself. Uh, JF, let's hear from you, Mr. Jonald. Tell us a little bit about your work uh, with Bitcoin Cash and the Electron Wallet and this coin shuffle technology. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been in Bitcoin since 2012. And uh, I was one of those people that uh, really uh, got, got my panties in a twist over this block uh, size scaling debate. And so um, I don't know how many people know the history, but there was a there was a whole huge debate. Should we, you know, how do we scale the network? Should we raise the block size? So um, for the people that, that wanted to raise the block size, unfortunately for us, we we sort of lost that that uh, scaling war. I mean, right now BTC, uh, you know, has the ticker. They have most of the investor dollars. So, but we're still we're still here and we're continuing the Bitcoin system as as we see as. Um, as it was intended to be, which is a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. So you can use Bitcoin Cash today without all the high fees of, of BTC. And uh, we're, we're still here building and, and making that available. And so I was I was kind of around, just, just happened to be in the right place at the right time uh, in 2017. And I was able to, to kind of contribute uh, to that effort and, and make this wallet available. And so that's that's kind of what I've been doing for the last uh, four years is <laughs> just uh, working on Bitcoin Cash. And, and one of the things um, that I built was a, a protocol called Cash Fusion, which is um, probably not to toot our own horns, but probably the, the most sophisticated coin join protocol that exists. And um, it, it helps uh, it helps add a lot more privacy to the transparent ledger. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I'm super excited about the CoinJoin technology. We're, we would definitely want to learn more about that. It's a critical tool in uh, maintaining privacy when sending and receiving cryptocurrency. Matthew, how about you? Give us a little bit about your background. Well, I got into the whole IT sphere back in 1983 when I started programming at the age of 13. I started my first company at the age of of uh, 15, I was writing bulletin board software in assembly language before the internet. Uh, I got into the whole scientific programming thing in college, and I was in solid state physics uh, doing computational physics. Uh, then I got out of that about the same time that the internet was launched. 
and got involved in some uh, outsourced startups in Southeast Asia with uh, internet-based businesses and also information systems. At the same time, I got involved with uh, uh, BitTorrent and have done some work on the internals of BitTorrent along the way. Um, Got interested in crypto right maybe around 2012, 2013, and have not turned back. I think it's fantastic. Uh, Even though my business isn't really sent uh, centered around crypto. We've used crypto uh, within our organization since 2015. And I've been involved in different ecosystems along the way, um, at least from a more analysis standpoint. Uh, I've actually done some development in a, a couple different uh, ecosystems. And uh, I'm really interested to talk with these two fellows because they sound like they've got some great experience that I can learn from. And maybe there's a few things I could share too. Excellent, excellent. And I just I want to have a last minute addition. There were some technical difficulties, but we do have Mike Swatek, the pirate himself. Uh, Mike is uh, all decked out in his pirate gear. Of course, that's a reference to Pirate Chain, also known as R, which is a pretty sophisticated privacy coin that takes the best of Zcash and Monero. Mike, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Mike Swatek. Uh, my business is PPM Silver uh, Personal Care Products. Uh, I've got the agorist.market website, which uh, is helping a lot of agorists out there to connect with each other. Uh, basically, we're not doing any business through the banking system as part of that. Uh, also involved with MidFest. Uh, I've got started into Bitcoin or into cryptos fairly early. You know, it's only been about three years ago now. And that was part of the migration, you know, of my business into the Agora. And so I've, I've learned a lot. I've uh, gotten to the point now where I'm completely avoiding all the KYC and stuff and uh, accepting crypto through for all my products outside of any of the exchanges like coin payments and all that stuff where they've got the KYC. So you can uh, do business without having to be involved in any of that track you stuff. Excellent. That's the name of the game, not being involved in the tracky stuff. So, again, the, the reason why I wanted to put together this workshop in part is for myself, this uh, this roundtable, because I have had some frustration and struggles with how exactly we can overcome. So just to lay it out for folks that aren't familiar with cryptocurrency, the most traditional way and one of the simplest ways that people acquire cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, or a whole slew of them, is they go to an exchange like Coinbase, which just started getting publicly traded. Uh, It's one of the most popular on-ramps to cryptocurrency, right? They create an account, and whenever they create their account, there's something called KYC, or Know Your Customer, where they require you to scan a driver's license or passport, This is part of the Bank Secrecy Act, which is overseen by the Department of Treasury. And essentially what they're doing is cross-referencing your identity with a terror or criminal database to make sure that there's not a chance that you're going to use the money for laundering or for illegal purposes. Now, they say that's the function when in reality it's like mission creep because we all know the IRS more recently went after Coinbase and got them to turn over records for a lot of their clients. 
Now, if it wasn't for this know your customer, people could use private names or aliases, or they could go in and call themselves Jonald Fiukball if they wanted to. But the necessity of that government ID really creates a lot of problems. And then once you have your first cryptocurrency and it's tied to your identity, you can then track where the crypto goes after that on some blockchain. So that's the problem that we're facing. So let's go ahead and talk about some of the other obstacles and barriers before we get into the solutions. Does anybody want to lay out what they think are some of the obstacles and barriers to not only purchasing cryptocurrency privately, but transferring and sending it as well? I'll tackle the purchasing part, and I want to extend a little bit to what you said, John, about uh, these exchanges asking for a lot of personal information before, they're let, before they let you buy cryptocurrency. And I'm going to give them a little bit more credit because, yes, they're asked to collect that information. They're frequently going to hand it over to the government, the IRS, and whatnot. But remember, cryptocurrency, by and large, is an irreversible transaction, right? You create irreversible transactions where when an entity sends that money out, they're not going to get it back. However, on the flip side of that, fiat digital transactions are by and large reversible, meaning um, when you send money from your bank to an exchange, there's a chance that you can just simply reverse that and say, you know, I never meant to send that money or someone else logged into my bank account and sent that money. So a lot of these exchanges are collecting a tremendous amount of information just to actually protect themselves. They're actually doing the KYC to determine that you are who you are and you haven't fraudulently stolen someone else's bank credentials and bank information. That's actually one of the challenges is the fact that we have an oil and water mix. We have a reversible financial ecosystem with fiat and dollars, euro, pesos, and we have an irreversible system with cryptocurrency. And these exchanges don't want to accept the bad reversible money and send the irreversible cryptocurrency out unless they're really sure that you are who you are and hence the, the massive collection of information because by and large, it's harder to collect a lot of info if you're not really that person. So that is one of the additional challenges. And I'll, unfortunately, that's something that's gonna be hard to change unless we have an irreversible fiat payment method, which really I don't think we're ever gonna have. So really only solution is, you know, especially a digital fiat payment, but really the only solution is a physical payment, which a lot of people have used, which is you know, basically cash. Okay, so there are some you, there is some utility to this identity check. And you know, one of the things that people are talking about in the blockchain space, of course, World Economic Forum and a lot of these technocrats are talking about it, but having a means of having an identity that isn't necessitated on a government database, for example, some way to prove that you are who you are could perhaps be a way to alleviate some of this stuff. And, you know, as an anarchist and a liberty guy, if an exchange wants to do that, then by all means, the market will provide different types of onboarding and on-ramping. It's just the fact that it's compelled in many countries like the United States, for example, I think that kind of irks me a little bit. Does anybody else want to lay out some of the barriers and obstacles that we're facing? <clears throat> yeah, I'll chime in. I think... Uh... You know, what, what you were saying about all, all the issues and what Paul was saying about the reversibility, it's like all the reasons why it's it's such a pain to use the old financial system are also all the reasons why we really need to get out of that system. So it's like there's – it's like a rocket taking off trying to escape Earth's gravity or something. It's like there's this huge resistance to getting yourself um, you know, out of fiat and into crypto, but then once you're into crypto – everything is just so much easier, you, you know? So there, there's kind of a, a chicken and egg issue. Um, my, my second thought is that 
you know, things are getting easier. Um, uh, PayPal and um, Visa MasterCard are getting into crypto now. So it's getting easier for the masses uh, to get in, you know, even with these KYC solutions. And then for the, let's say, more sophisticated people, there's um, there used to be something called local Bitcoins, which is now themselves kind of become a little bit KYC from what I hear. But there's also local.bitcoin.com which is, is kind of like what local Bitcoins used to be, where you can just do these peer-to-peer trading. So the, the sophisticated people can use these peer-to-peer methods. And then, like, I don't think it's necessary for everyone. It's not necessary for, for grandma to try to jump through hoops to, to avoid KYC. So mm. so you'll get this spectrum. And hopefully in the future, there'll, there'll just be a lot of people migrating over to crypto, which which will kind of solve a lot of the problems, um, you know, at, at scale. And uh, also, you met, uh, someone mentioned, you know, the, you know, tracking the crypto, which is a problem. But what you can do is is buy on an exchange, and then once you have the crypto, there's all kinds of there's dexes, you know, decentralized exchange. There's atomic swaps. There's the mm-hmm. privacy protocols, privacy coins. So you can once you're into crypto, you can kind of pop out somewhere else on a blockchain, and and you'll be at least. You know, uh, you know, they might know that you bought on an exchange and how much you bought, but but they don't know what happened after that necessarily. Well, don't don't you guys think that uh, part of the problem with Coinbase is that it's an impersonal corporate entity and not an actual person you know, and that it behaves in a different way than say if you were selling a car to a neighbor and you did the exchange in crypto. Aren't they fundamentally different? I think they're fundamentally different only because of the size and scope of the transactions. Um, Coinbase does, you know, billions of dollars worth of transactions, an individual, typically a few thousand. Um, but there have been individuals that have tried to scale their you know, in-person trading and have definitely gotten caught doing it. So I think the 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 issue there is it's not that it's it's a corporate entity versus an individual. It's just simply the size and volume. And of course, the bigger you are, the bigger of a target you are to government because you can go after one entity and get a lot more information versus having to go after a lot of different people for little $1,000 transactions. Right, right. Well, my point is, in terms of resistance to adoption, uh, it's a cultural thing. And uh, if people see a reason oh, right, to start exchanging in crypto, if I wanted to go out and buy a car in crypto, if I if I even thought of the idea, the reason I bring this up is I was just talking to someone yesterday that flips cars for a living, and I said, "Have you considered accepting crypto for you know flipping a car?" He said, "No, the thought hadn't even entered my head. Tell me what do I need to do? Where do I need to start?" And we started talking through the whole process of what you would need to do it without KYC. Right. I think you you bring up a really good point. If there's anything that I've tried to advocate in the process of trying to get adoption of privacy, is that you need to build tools and build ecosystems such that privacy and crypto usage, you know, as a tool of privacy, is adopted even by people that don't really care. You you need more people adopting it. That way, the people that actually care about it are almost like a needle in the haystack. You know, mm-hmm. so if if only a dozen people use Signal, sure, you'd be able to have private communications, but it's pretty easy to find those dozen people. Right. If right. there's a billion people using it, 
And only those doesn't actually care about privacy, but th they will now get incredibly high levels of privacy because now you're mixed in with everyone else. So I think privacy exactly. by default, and like what you're saying, if everybody was was transacting in crypto, it no longer becomes the question of, hey, who are those you know million out of the 8 billion people, who are these million users on Coinbase that a government can target? Now it's like we've got to target 8 billion people and try to do analytics on who is who has right. what amount and what have they traded it for, what's their capital gains and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, right. it is about adoption. Um, and I think that's one thing that uh, a lot of tools in the privacy space have, have I won't call it failed on, but they have kind of uh, forgotten because they'll create an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly private tool, but it's not something that the masses will use. And if right. they don't use it, you don't really accomplish your goal. So that's yeah. an yeah. important piece. That yeah, network I'm... effect. Network ahead, effect Mike. is so key in achieving the privacy we want. Yeah, I see ease of use as being the key thing. You know, the uh, the bigger platforms that have more money, they're able to create these slick interfaces and make it easy for people, and that tends to be where they go. But they find themselves having to make compromises in terms of sharing their identity and that getting tied to their crypto, and that's the big challenge. But the smaller projects are gaining ground. Some of them are just doing amazing stuff. You know, we're in a period of transition between big corporate entities who have all the money and creating all the slick platforms. Now that's being duplicated by projects with no real leadership, you know, and it's mm. just amazing to watch. Yeah, it's definitely a transition, a transition period. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about how the Bitcoin blockchain, again, the Bitcoin blockchain was the first to market, invented the blockchain technology. A lot of people early on thought that it was anonymous and a lot of the terminology surrounding it, even the government assumed that it was anonymous, which is why they were really concerned about it. And I think a big eye opener was the Silk Road case. Uh, Ross Ulbricht, who is an amazing, innovative human being, I was at his trial and was just completely blown away. For those not familiar, Silk Road was an online marketplace that you access through the deep web, the dark web, and it allowed people to buy and sell illicit goods. And uh, it was very popular for quite some time. Well, he was tracked down and hunted down by the FBI and private entities and the FBI then went and started establishing this forensic technology to track and trace and follow the different cryptocurrency transactions. So can somebody, does anybody want to share, um, uh, Paul, maybe we can start with you, what what the Bitcoin blockchain, the nature of the Bitcoin blockchain is and how transparent it is and, and how does someone... Um, identify a transaction that was tied to who? Because when someone downloads an Edge wallet, they don't have to put any IDs in or do any know your customer. It's pretty much mm -hmm. anonymous, but there's certain practices and there's certain things that can yeah. kind of reveal an identity. Can you riff on that? Yeah, so um, Bitcoin and many similar currencies um, have what are called public addresses, which allow you to receive money, right? You can create a wallet and you can have any number of public addresses and Edge, it actually generates potentially hundreds or thousands of public addresses with every transaction you make. But those public addresses, once they receive money, can be seen on the blockchain. You could say you could see that public address one two three four five received X amount of Bitcoin, and every time you send money out of that address, you can see the amount that was sent out of that address. Now, um, Bitcoin and blockchain similar to it, such as Dogecoin, Litecoin, BCH, all uh, typically em employ what's called an HD wallet, which changes addresses every time you make a transaction. So you might receive into one address. 
the next time you go and get an address from your wallet to receive it generates another one. Now that helps with privacy. It's by and large far, 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 far better than a ton of other blockchains, which are actually newer than Bitcoin, starting with Ethereum, where you by and large just have one address. And it's, it's more challenging to create additional addresses, and that one address can be very clearly tracked. Now, once again, all these blockchains don't have any names attached to it, like you said, John. However, as soon as you can attach a name to an address, for example, John, you show me your Ethereum address and I send you money, I forever know that that ad- address is yours, right? And there's not a good chance that you'll ever transfer an address to someone else. That's not something you'd, you'd want to do. But I now know every time you receive money, I can look on the blockchain and see how much you've received, how much you've spent, and your current balance. So that is kind of the inherent issue is that, yeah, there's no inherent attachment of a name or an address or a phone number to a blockchain cryptocurrency address. But once you can make an association either via IP address, tracking, um, exchanges saying that this is an address that they sent to that was yours or just an an in-person interaction, then a lot of the privacy gets compromised from then on out, which this is what a lot of the privacy-based coins, Pirate Chain, uh, Monero, Zcash, and several others are trying to solve is really disassociating the address from the transactions and balances that it is associated with. Right on. And, and one preliminary good practice, an edge wallet does this automatically, as does Electron Cash, I imagine. Every time you click receive to have a public address, um, you can send that public to address address to someone. And then when they send crypto to it, the next time you go to create a new address, it's a new address, completely different. So at least that can, you're not doing every single transaction on the same address, which is not advisable because like Paul was saying, then you can see every single transaction, the history of it, how much they've received, how much they have now, where they sent it. So I think that's a good practice, at least for some basics. Now, let me ask you guys to, to respond to this. Do you guys think that this is a true statement? Unless someone's identity is tied to an address or a cryptocurrency purchase through Coinbase, for example, scanning your driver's license, it's highly unlikely that the authorities will expend the resources to track down and identify entire IP address. Like we heard in the Ross Olber case, it's possible that the NSA got involved in going in and seeing what was going on with those crypto addresses. But your everyday user, perhaps they're not going to expend those resources. Do you guys think that's true? Or do you think maybe they have the technology, it's just being done automatically? What are y'all's thoughts on that? I think that probably they have the technology already to track all these things, but they don't necessarily have the manpower to act on them. So yeah, they're going to go after the big players where they can steal a lot of money. Unless they've got some other reason they want to go after you, you know, uh, like mm. Al Capone, you know, I mean, they got him. Or just to make IRS an example charges. out of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and maybe create a little bit of fear, you know, if you don't comply with certain regulations and things. But overall, yeah, if you're just an ordinary everyday person out there just doing a little bit of Bitcoin, I wouldn't worry about it. They don't have any resources to go come after you. Well, it's it's more effective to just grab one high-profile person and scare everyone else. That's worked historically for millennia, so mm-hmm. why not do it that way? Yep. I would what agree as I? well. Just uh, the bigger of a target you become, the the cheaper it is for governments to go after you because it's a risk-reward. You know, you've got a billion dollars of hidden funds. Well, you know, they can spend a few hundred million to go after um, you're doing a few thousand dollars worth of transactions. It's really not worth their time. Now, granted, w- one thing to 
to note though, is that a lot of this doesn't require a lot of human intervention, right? This, a lot of this can be automated. It can be technology. And you had mentioned, John, your kind of disappointment a lot in a lot of companies being formed that do like chain analysis, blockchain analysis. Um, after a while, it's, it's a click of a button and it's like, Hey, there's this address who owns it. You click a button and then suddenly it can scan IP addresses and it can scan traffic on the internet. And then, and then it can do actual chain analysis to determine who owns that. So, I would say that yes, maybe now it's a little heavyweight for governments to kind of associate an address with an individual, but going forward into the future as technology gets better and as technology gets faster, then it'll actually be quite trivial. So that's where I think the privacy protocols, the privacy coins really come in that make it cryptographically incredibly difficult to, yeah. to, to uh, uh, kind of de-anonymize. And not to diminish what you just said, because I think you're absolutely 100% correct. There's no reason to be skimping on security and privacy. But with the sheer number of ecosystems that are developing, I think what you said earlier starts to become true, is we have an ocean of data. Even if we have Mm -hmm. quantum computing, we don't have quantum databases. Mm -hmm. And it's going to become next to impossible to track all of these different ecosystems. Yeah. Maybe they'll just target the folks that are watching this live stream. Ah. <laughs> so, uh, John, do you got any thoughts on that? Um, you know, the likelihood that everything's going to be tracked or if you're a target or what, no, what are I mean, things people every, should look out for? I think it's an arms race. I, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, yeah. In the beginning when Bitcoin came out, you know, we all, we all kind of just thought it was anonymous. Um, Actually, the Bitcoin white paper has a, has a pretty cool diagram in Section 10 privacy, which kind of makes it clear exactly, you know, what's going on. Basically, the you know, your identities are are tied to your transactions directly in the traditional financial model. And, mm-hmm. you know, the only reason that's safe is because they're kind of behind a wall where only the banks and the credit cards can see it. And then on the blockchain, there is no link between um, your identities and your transactions. But... You can use analysis to, you know, look at the different coins and like, um, you know, inside your inside your wallet. Um, I forget who was talking about that earlier. Um, I think you were talking about it, John, about um, or or uh, about different different coins instead of an account based like Ethereum. So when you have these different coins, then you you get change output from one transaction. If that ends up being used as an input for the next transaction, now there's a link, and they can. That's what. That's how chain analysis companies do what they do and, and try to figure things out. Um, but yeah, I think we're we're moving faster than than they are <laughs> in terms of uh, us, the free people, and those that want to control us. We're, we're figuring out more mm-hmm. and better ways, and, and we're staying ahead of the curve. Um, with you know, I, I I think all these new new privacy tools um things like this this r coin are, are are great and uh hopefully we'll just we'll just keep developing um and uh you know and, and the the world will will be uh will have privacy we just yeah. never should get uh, satisfied that that things are okay yeah, keep pushing. And then the network effect comes into play when there's more people that are using the privacy coins and more people being driven to there. It makes it more difficult. And I think the government's constantly playing a catch-up game 
like when cryptocurrency came out of the scene, they were like, whoa, what the hell is this? Right. And then the CIA invited Gavin Andreessen to be like, hey, what's going on here? They really couldn't understand it. Now they're starting to catch up. Now the IRS is starting to issue their little declarations, this, that and the other. But the technology is always advancing. And I, I want to talk about privacy coins here in a second. Um, but I know the IRS put out like a bounty or some federal agency put out a bounty to try to see if anyone could hack into Monero to crack the code to, to be able to track and trace it. <laughs> uh, but Donald, you brought up something that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And th it's a challenge doing a panel like this because there's a significant number of our viewers that aren't, they don't really understand or comprehend cryptocurrency. So I want to make sure that we're like speaking in a way that's consumable. But I also, for the folks that are into cryptocurrency, I think that we can gain a lot by going a little bit deeper in a more intermediate or deeper level uh, knowledge. And on that note, can you, Jonald, and maybe you could follow up with this, Paul, can you explain how the whole input output thing works? Because I think a lot of people think you just take you, this little chunk of cryptocurrency and you send it over here and that's it. But there's this elaborate mechanism of outputs and inputs that go along with the transaction. Can, can you explain how that works? Because you touched on it a second, Jonald. Yeah. So, I mean, most people that are just you know using a Bitcoin wallet for the first time might assume that okay, like I've got one coin and then if someone um, sends me, let's say half a coin, so that's 0 0.5, I just have a new balance of 1.5 and that's it. But it, it's more like, um, you know, you go to a store with a $20 bill and it, it, so you buy something um, for $5, you're going to get back $15 and change. So you're going to get back a $10 bill and a $5 bill. So the same thing works in Bitcoin. You have individual specific coins. So when you get sent a transaction, that's usually one coin that you have. And then when you spend something, you get back change, just like you would get back change in a store. That you and now you have another coin, and and you can combine coins. Like you know, you could have a one Bitcoin and another two Bitcoin, and then you could spend. You know, that'd be three Bitcoins. So you can combine and then also you can get change and, it, and it, so it breaks apart. It, it comes together and splits up uh, both. And um, with the, I think your other question was about the coin joins. Sure. Yeah, we could talk about that because it, it appears that this, this means of transfer creates a trail that's trackable. But that's where coin join technology comes in. Can you explain about right. that? So, so yeah, so... When you, when you do a Bitcoin transaction, the coins that are already in your wallet that you're spending are called inputs. And then where the money's going to, whether that's someone you're paying or, and also the, the change that you might be getting back, uh, those are the outputs. But there's there's something that's pretty cool in Bitcoin, which is that you can, you can co-create a transaction with other people. So we can both put our inputs in and both have our outputs out. And as long as the software is set up in such a way that we're not losing money. <laughs> we're not, you know, giving it away or, or getting the wrong amount. It can be, it can be coordinated so that you can combine your activity with someone else in the same transaction. And then anyone trying to, you know, analyze it is going to run into issues because there, there's going to be confusion or like who, who owns actually which input or output. So that's what, that's what coin join is. And there's been a number of different coin join protocols uh, over the years there was um you know i can't even remember the law there was coin jumble there was join market um and then we and then we created cash shuffle back in 2018 and then cash fusion is the is the new one 
Wasn't there also a, a coin join in Switzerland that got shut down as well? Um, I'm not sure, but the thing with these like protocols, like like Cash Fusion, let's say, I mean, it's just it's just open source software, so there is no, there's really nothing to shut down. Sure, cool. <laughs> Which is yeah, yeah cool, <laughs> cool. So it's a it's a technology that normally when you send a crypto transaction to another person, that is viewable on the transparent blockchain with with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash but it couples your transaction with multiple other people's transactions and then it shuffles them all up and mixes them so it obscures the transaction taking place. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's like more or less the gist of it. Um, we, could, we could spend all day talking about the, the details, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would the, the uh, Lightning Network do anything similar since it bundles transactions together? Um. You know, I'm not really an expert in the Lightning Network, but I, I mean, it's 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 a very different mechanism. Um, uh, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the Lightning Network because I think it, there's a lot of other issues like liquidity and usability, but mm-hmm. I think it does have some privacy features or, or attributes. Let's talk about that. Can you talk about that, Paul? First, start for folks that aren't familiar. What is the Lightning Network? Um, how how is it different than? Just increasing the block size, for example, back to this debate that was pretty contentious. And uh, yeah, talk about the privacy elements of it. Got it. So the Lightning Network is a layer two solution. Um, when you make transactions on the Lightning Network, you first have to deposit some Bitcoin on chain in what effectively is a multi-sig account that you and another person or entity that you open a channel with would deposit funds into. Now, the, the way it works after that is definitely much more complex and a bit outside of the scope of this discussion. But the idea is that this mutually deposited funds inside of this shared wallet between, for example, if you and I, John, uh, opened up a channel, I would deposit some funds in the Lightning, uh, in this Lightning channel, you deposit some funds in the Lightning channel. And now when we wanted to send money back and forth to each other, we don't actually send an on-chain transaction. Instead, we create a transaction that would if broadcast would rebalance how much we put in, I could put half a Bitcoin, you could put half a Bitcoin. So really I own half a Bitcoin in the channel. You own half a Bitcoin in the channel. And if I wanted to send you 0.1 Bitcoin, we would create a a transaction that if it were broadcast would change the balance that would, that would uh, be returned back to me. And only 0.4 Bitcoin would return to me and 0.6 would return to you. And we can keep doing that back and forth and give each other these signed transactions which we don't broadcast because we want to save on fees. But if we wanted to close the channel, we could broadcast and therefore would give us the amount that we're actually owed after all of this back and forth. And you mm-hmm. take that, that, that's called a channel, but the Lightning Network is a network of channels from one hop to another, to another, to another. So where does this lend with respect to privacy? So one benefit of the Lightning Network with respect to privacy is that there isn't simply a public ledger that everyone can look at to see every transaction that's ever happened on the Bitcoin network between various addresses. The only transaction that is visible on the network is the transaction to deposit money into the channel and then the transaction to close the channel. Everything else is just a transaction that I send between me and the the node operators between me and the person I want to send money to. So if it's just me and you, John, then it's just the two of us. And we can do that using an encrypted channel, using SSL, send each other those little signed transactions and no one else can see that. Um, However, the disadvantage of that, however, is that if 
you are trying to build an entire network of payments. You end up with what is the one of the biggest concerns of the Light Network, which is liquidity centralization. And suddenly you're having to hop through very large, specific, almost financial service institutions in order to get your payment routed from you to some, some destination. It's not that you have to, you can always go around it, but liquidity begets liquidity. Like this is truth in, in exchanges, exchanges that have good liquidity attract more people to use them. Same thing with the Lightning Network, nodes that have high liquidity attract people to use them. And with that centralization comes the ability for those large financial institutions to censor transactions from uh, one entity to another, potentially even ask for KYC or to get hit by government entities to say, hey, you're a, a large pool of money sitting here in the Lightning Network. We're going to require you to do XYZ, either KYC or not. So that's a, that's a fear. It has not happened. So you know, I want to make that little, um, make that little statement is that this hasn't happened yet, but it is a concern. It's something that people have mentioned. It's that centralization of liquidity and the po potential ramifications on privacy that that could have. But by and large, if if that doesn't happen, then yes, these transactions just being point to point do provide a higher level of privacy than a full broadcast transaction on a typical um, Bitcoin-like blockchain. Now, there are a couple of other projects I'd like to share also. Uh, one of them is the cross-chain atomic swaps that the Komodo platform's been developing. And that's pretty good because since you're moving across chains, it makes it a lot more difficult to track the transactions from one end to the other, but it is still doable by state actors to do that through timing. So uh, another project that's making a lot of progress is uh, NimTech. And NimTech does something similar, except they also introduce uh, time delays and mix up the data with a bunch of noise. And, and that's a, a further improvement of the atomic swaps approach to things. Now, another thing that could be done, uh, and this I just heard the other day, but it was a slick idea. I was listening to the monthly uh, update meeting with on the R, with the R team, and they had a, oh, I forgot who it was from Edge there, and they were talking about how uh, Edge is getting ready to uh, was that you, Paul, on there? That was or? probably me. I was on uh, a couple different pirate chain related podcasts. So okay. That was me. Yeah, this was their monthly meeting. But at any rate, uh, it turned out, you know, I guess you've just about got the Zcash, Zcash private transactions in place. And I don't think anybody else in the call was aware of that. But it turns out from talking to the devs that. Okay, if you can do that, you can also do R. So now mm -hmm. it seems that R is very close to being on Edge Wallet. So it's like, wow, that's huge, you know. And then as the conversation went on, uh, there was discussion about like an exchange like Polarity, for example, where you use Tether as an intermediate on that distributed exchange. And instead of using Tether, set up an exchange where you use R as the intermediate. So that was pretty slick. So, you know, there's just a lot of cool ideas out there, a lot of things to obfuscate uh, the movement of, you know, all these transactions. So it's, it's a cool time to be watching all this technology develop. Yeah, the thing I, I like about Pirate Chain and as well Monero is simply the privacy by default. You know, when you have that privacy by default, you get that user experience that's just, you know, like butter. Like you don't even realize you're getting that privacy. It feels just like any other cryptocurrency transaction, like an Ethereum, Bitcoin transaction, but it's just simply not 
not trackable or very, very, very difficult to track. And so um, we've been at the, you know, I won't call it the forefront of supporting uh, privacy coins. We were the first multi-asset wallet that supported Monero. Um, we're not going to be the first, but we want to be one of the few that quickly support fully private Zcash. You know, we, we didn't support the public version of Zcash because we've been in talks for over two years now with uh, the Zcash or Electric Coin Company team um, talking about how to build the right software available for wallets, including ours, to be able to integrate full private mode. Um, that way there's no choice. It's not like, oh, which wallet do I create? You know, the transparent address or the shield addresses. I think this privacy by default is incredibly important. Um, I look for that in things like um, communication software, signal being privacy by default, tools like Telegram, not so much. Um, and I think this move in the cryptocurrency world of coins supporting that by default behavior is really the the, the future. Um, while I, I, I definitely ad admire some of the attempts of putting privacy into existing coins, um, and I think that's a, a good test bed for a lot of the technology, until it becomes by default, I feel like it's it, it really is going to hit a wall as far as adoption and really not quite achieve that, that, that um, almost liquidity or like mass adoption that's necessary, especially with coin joins. We were talking about coin joins. And um, as was described, a coin join requires you to then mix and create a transaction that combines your inputs with someone else's inputs. And ideally, it's more than one person, like several people's inputs. And to do that over and over again to mix your funds if there aren't enough people doing it, you actually get a really, really poor coin join, or you just simply can't do it, right? There's no one there to pair with. So that almost liquidity is incredibly important. And once again, once it's by default, then you just have it. Excellent. A, a lot of, so a lot of stuff's coming out now. We're, we're talking about the privacy coins. Can someone kind of break down Zcash and the technology behind that and the difference between Zcash and Monero? And then Pirate Chain has recently just exploded as far as the price action. It's starting to get yeah. a lot of exposure. It seems to kind of bring together the technologies. Look, old Mike's all excited about that price explosion oh, yeah. down there. <laughs> I'm loving it. Yeah. Oh, maybe you could share with us, Mike, what Pirate Chain's all about. Well, uh, Pirate Chain uses uh, its uh, zero-knowledge proofs, or ZK-SNARKs is another term. Uh, basically, there's a huge privacy set that your transaction is uh, mixed up with, combined with, that makes it just virtually untraceable. And then add on top of that the fact that there is no information really available. If you get your hands on a wallet address, all you can tell is, yeah, there's a wallet address. Get your hands on a transaction number. All you know is, yeah, a transaction happened, but you don't know who from, who to, how much. I mean, even if you receive a transaction, you don't know who it came from if they're using the private transaction mode. And it's like the, the money disappeared from your pocket appeared in the receiver's pocket. Neither of you saw it happen and no outside bystander even realizes anything happened. And so it's amazing technology. I don't know all the details, the mathematical, uh, you know, algorithms of the, of the uh, technology, but it, it is really amazing. I do, uh, I do understand now that Monero has decided to increase their ring signature size which would be their privacy set from 11 to I think 120 something. So, you know, that's good too. Yeah. Got it. I can try to break up. Um, I think the discussion about the technology for privacy coins is very complex, especially zero knowledge proofs. They're above the head of probably most 
most people in the world, if not like maybe a few dozen people probably understand zero knowledge proofs really, really well. But a way to think about a lot of the features in privacy coins is the different parts of privacy that they try to achieve. And I usually like to bucket these into three things. Number one, privacy for the sender. Meaning when you see a transaction on the network, can you tell who it came from? Like, can you tell the address that it came from? This, this is achieved through things such as the ring signatures that uh, Monero uses, um, which also incorporate um, zero knowledge proofs in Zcash and coin joins in currencies such as Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin Cash. So coin joins are in the category of, of privacy te technology that tries to obfuscate the sender. Like who is actually sending the money? What it doesn't though, is it doesn't obfuscate the receiver. It, after a coin join, there's an address that you send money to. Well, you can still see that, you know, this address is what received the money. You don't know necessarily what it came from because there's a whole bunch of addresses, but you do know the receiver. So another piece of technology to obfuscate the receiver is what's called stealth addresses, where the sender actually generates an address from the address that you publicly show. So there's the address you publicly show, and then the sender actually generates, they, der they derive an address for, from that public address and send to this address that people don't actually see. And the recipient has to kind of scan the blockchain to find, hey, which addresses are actually mine? So stealth address technology hides the receiver. And then last is, well, you can hide the receiver, you can hide the sender, but you could possibly still know how much money was transferred. And that's where another a piece of technology. Um, I can't remember the exact term, but this hides the amounts. So you don't actually know how much money is getting sent on each of the inputs and outputs. The three combined are what Zcash, private, um, Pirate Chain, and Monero employ to give you this incredibly high level of privacy that you don't get from just a coin join or just stealth addresses. And by and large, you don't have any, there's no protocols in use on any non-private chains such as Bitcoin um, or Bitcoin Cash that hide the amounts. That's a really, really difficult one to do without a protocol level change. So once again, hiding the sender, hiding the recipient, and then hiding the amounts of the transaction are the key things that when you accomplish all three, you have an incredibly private, uh, private protocol. Somebody, I, I do want to open up for questions here shortly, but somebody, the Taoist crypto banker said, how do you audit the supply? Which I think is a genuine concern for some of these privacy coins. I was just going to mention, Paul. You you mentioned you touched on how when you get into these uh, advanced protocols, there might only be a dozen people on the planet that really understand them. So so that's yeah. like kind of the other side of the coin as far as um, I, I feel like there is a danger when you have knowledge that's so esoteric that only a dozen people on the planet can understand it. You, you run into the risk of of that system being corrupted or those people. Um, so. I think there is also room for the transparent blockchains in the world, the Bitcoin caches and, and whatnot, uh, to to try to maximize transparency on or maximize privacy on the transparent blockchain. I also just wanted to mention, um, I think it was like the uh, the Samurai Wallet guys uh, made a thing called Stowaway, which is a way to hide the amounts. Um, it basically works. It's like a mini coin join where the change output is like. Like you, you and the receiver both um, contribute an amount. I think it's there's something called pay to endpoint, which I think is the same thing. So there is that. Excellent. Okay. Does anybody want to address the lack of transparency as far as the supply of something when you can't really audit the blockchain? 
well, the, the blockchain is auditable in a sense because all of the transactions are, you know that they happened, but that's all you know about them. Also, the blockchain, and I'm not even sure how it does, it also has to keep track of amounts. But when you look at transactions, you can't see those amounts. But the data is there. There is a blockchain. You can download the whole blockchain. The mathematics behind it is what allows the auditing. But like you say, very few people actually fully understand it to the extent that, it, that an individual could audit it. But they are out there. The math is solid. And it's, you know, really amazing. So if you look at the three different privacy um, pieces of privacy technology that I mentioned, sender privacy, recipient privacy, and amount privacy, the sender privacy and recipient privacy don't really affect your ability to audit a blockchain. So obviously the coin join technology that might get put onto Bitcoin doesn't prevent you from auditing to make sure that there's only, you know, ever 21 million Bitcoin. It's really the amount privacy that that's the challenge. So if you, if, if you dive into the really complex and is uh, uh, zero knowledge proofs that are implemented in order to give you amount privacy. At the end of the day, what you're doing is you're creating a proof that says there is an amount being transferred. I'm not going to show you how much it is, but the source um, plus the de- plus the destination, like the amount that I send plus the amount that a person receives, adds up to zero. Meaning there's no net difference. That I think is the is the key piece, and that's where zero knowledge proofs get far more complicated than the scope of this discussion. But you can prove a statement without without showing the underlying evidence, and that's the magic behind these zk zero zero knowledge technology. Um, that's what's that's what's able to give us this this uh, ability to hide amounts without blowing up um, the blockchain with just you know a t- tremendous amount of coins that you know, no one knows that exists. Right on. Um, I perhaps should have started with this earlier on, but we just kind of started rolling with it. But um, what are some solutions to acquiring cryptocurrency that you guys would recommend? Obviously, peer-to-peer, just a straight transaction with someone that you know is ideal. So instead of going to Coinbase, which is simple, it's safe and secure. It's a reputable company. But again, you have to tie your identity to your transaction. What would you guys suggest for some people as best practices? I've always been hammering on the importance, you know, with the Freedom Cell Network and building networks and communities to try to have a large group of people that are always down to buy and sell crypto and to just engage in a peer-to-peer private transaction. Uh, if that's what you do, as long as you don't do it for a business or do a whole lot of volume or charge a fee or, you know, a markup, then it's just a private, you know, exchanging commodities with one another, exchanging a good with one another. Do you guys have any advice or any platforms that you use or recommend for that? And, you know, obviously if you're meeting up with someone that you don't know in in the physical world, you want to go to a public space, not some shadowy alley or anything. Does anybody have any insights on how to acquire the crypto privately and what some best practices might be? Well, there are a couple I can recommend and, and one is purse. You know, you can acquire and accumulate crypto by... Uh, using the purse uh, platform where people want to buy something on Amazon, but they have crypto. So you go to purse, you find somebody else who's willing to go ahead and buy that for cash and have it delivered to you. And then you pay them the crypto. So they're accumulating crypto for cash indirectly. And that works. 
Another thing is just selling products for crypto. And, you know, then you need to somehow make yourself visible as, as doing that. So now we've got platforms like agorist.market, where we've got 190 vendors, you know, people, businesses on there now that a large majority of them accept crypto. And so now people know that if they're looking to buy something, they can go there. They've got all these businesses and all these categories and they find what they're looking for and they can buy it with crypto. And it's a person to person thing. You know, agorist.market's not involved. I mean, you, all it does is introduce people basically, and then they do it peer to peer. And then as long as they're being careful, then, you know, they can have a very private transaction. Let's not neglect services not just products right uh, yes right if Service. you're a developer or a designer i say hey uh i'll take a payment in form of crypto and i'll give you a 20 percent, 25 percent discount why well what cl what client wouldn't be interested in that right and you're not going to lose because the crypto is going to appreciate Excellent. Yeah, I think that's definitely probably the best way to get your hands on crypto to exchange goods and services for that cryptocurrency. There's no need for KYC or anything like that. Did you have something to add, John? Yeah, I'm just gonna gonna show uh, local.bitcoin.com again. <laughs> it's uh, you can it, you can buy crypto with any payment method. I think they um, they escrow it, but it's like a trustless escrow, so they they never mm -hmm. have control over the money. Um, so there's no kit. So that so that's what allows them to not use any KYC or anything. You guys know about BISC, right? Yeah, BISC is yeah. A, tell us about tax, it. Right? Yeah, it, it's a BISC is a, um, a decentralized uh, anonymous exchange for crypto. Yeah, it's peer to peer. It's it's kind of like localbitcoins.com, but it's it's I don't know. It runs pretty, over, it's very similar. It, it runs over Tor uh, by default. So uh, it, I've seen it. I've, I haven't actually used it, but uh, I've seen it for several years. It used to have a different name, but I, I don't remember what it used to be called. It Chameleon or something like that. But it seems like it would be at least worth looking into. Yeah, B-I-S-Q. We have someone yep. in the YouTube chat George Orwell says BISC sucks. So I oh, okay. Well, he's used it before. I've explored it. I go. haven't used the platform. I want to use it just to experiment with it. I do know that oftentimes with localbitcoins.com or BISC, if you're going to be purchasing from someone and they're not going to require the KYC, they're going to charge a hefty fee, upwards mm -hmm. of 10 to 20% sometimes. That may be them you know, getting their money's worth to alleviate the risk. Because if someone does list their stuff on that site and they're pounding out a bunch of transactions all the time, they can come under fire from the federal government. And many people have in the past, um, unfortunately. So the peer-to-peer -peer exchanges are really important. Those are a couple examples of them. And I like just building a network with your local freedom cell, for example. Try to be like That's people right. that you know in person uh, one good practice, if you are using one of these platforms like BISC or localbitcoins.com, is to make sure you do business with someone that has amazing reviews. And that's a good system. You know, if someone's done 500, 1,000, 5,000 trades and they have 98% reviews, 99% reviews, then it's a pretty safe bet that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Definitely be cautious doing business with someone that doesn't have a bunch of reviews or is just getting started. 
Yeah. Uh, just a gentle tip, if, if you're doing any type of trading on a peer-to-peer exchange, be aware of the payment method and who's at risk. If you're the one that's sending out crypto, so you're, you're wanting to sell and you're going to receive fiat, fiat by and large is the more dangerous mm-hmm. payment method to receive. If you're receiving fiat ver- uh, in, in the form of a gift card, well, that gift card could just get spent as soon as that person gives you the numbers. They could just have written down the numbers themselves and spent it. If you're receiving fiat via bank transfer, we already know that that's fully reversible. PayPal, fully reversible. And even if you're receiving cash, it's known... Um, it's widely known that people do try to buy crypto with counterfeit cash. So if you do have yeah. the capacity to be able to check for counterfeit for counterfeit cash, that's far um, you're far more at risk at accepting cash than you are at accepting crypto because you can know that you had a confirmation, you know that it's confirmed, you know it's in your wallet. So that is one of the bigger challenges, and I think that's why people are drawn to these behemoth companies that are VC backed, and um, you know you know they're not trying to rip you off. Um, that, that kind of is the inherent challenge, but like John said, if you've got a circle of people, you know, that, you know, and trust within your own freedom cell that you can quickly exchange, um, and you maybe even have a small IOU with that becomes your best option to, to achieve a high level of privacy. Yeah. Another safe place to, uh, yeah, another safe place to conduct transactions is at Liberty Festivals. You know, you're standing there eyeball to eyeball with them. They say, hey, I want to pay with crypto. They send it to you. You see it's received. You hand them the product. There's very little risk in that. And, uh, you know, we've got Porkfest coming up. There's going to be thousands of people there. So those are huge opportunities to interact with crypto. And, and I would just say, like, you know, use common sense when you're doing peer-to-peer transactions, whether that's safety, um, you know, the law. Like, I've heard stories like there, there'd be federal agents trying to buy crypto, and then they would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go buy some drugs with this. It's just like, you know, and then the person gets in trouble for selling them crypto because they didn't stop the transaction when they, after they heard that the other party was going to buy drugs with it. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, watch for the red flags and just, just use some common sense. That's great advice in every single area, especially in cryptocurrency. There's so many scammers and hucksters out there that are trying to take from you. And if you um, trust but don't verify, you can find yourself in a lot of trouble. I don't like what Mike was saying about the in-person things. Um, There's Bitcoin meetups. I haven't been to one in ages. I imagine they're (laughs) happening again. I remember we had Bitcoin meetups early on. It was like us evangelists that were way ahead of the curve. And then the price crashed down pretty low and people stopped going. Mm. Then the price started running up again. And now all of a sudden there's a hundred people at the Austin Bitcoin meetup, but (laughs) going to Bitcoin meetups and just finding reputable people that are known, not the random guy in the corner that shows up. um, But folks that are prominent in the community uh, can help you to get onboarded. And like Mike said, Liberty Festivals, Bitcoin conferences, public spaces, oftentimes people are are rocking and rolling there. All right, let's go to some questions here from the audience. If you want to ask your questions, please put them in all caps. I am monitoring the Telegram chat, the float uh, stream, as well as DLive and the Facebook and YouTube folks. So Justin Baird says, how about using a prepaid credit card that was charged with cash? Do we have any insight on that? I mean, I guess you could send uh, that to someone. Is that the implication? Yeah, there actually is a service that lets you use a prepaid credit card that is not reloadable. There's a very specific category of prepaid cards. Uh, it's a prepaid Visa MasterCard that's not reloadable and will allow you to go ahead and um, purchase 
uh, crypto with that. You know, realize there's, there's hardly any risk for someone that's using a, uh, when you're buying crypto, there's a little risk of fraud from, for you, just risk of, you know, compromisation, compromised privacy. But you're right. If you buy something in cash and use that card to buy crypto, you will definitely get, you know, a very high level of privacy, but you'll pay for it. Um, these services don't charge a small amount, you know, eight, 10, sometimes 15, 20%, um, uh, mainly because they're also not able to, if that card, for example, is fraudulent because it's a, it's a Visa MasterCard, right? You can mm -hmm. you can make fraudulent transactions with a Visa MasterCard and double spend them even. Um, then they have no one to go after. They don't know who you are. And they mitigate that risk by charging a very high fee. So I realize that's kind of the trade-off you, you get. Okay. Uh, we have somebody on DLive asking, why does it cost $32 to transfer approximately $100 worth of Bitcoin to R? Mm -hmm. So I guess they did an exchange or something within a wallet. Um, a lot of people aren't familiar with this. People, they invest in Bitcoin. Maybe they just buy it on Coinbase. And then whenever they actually go to send it or buy something with it, they quickly discover that Bitcoin's not the best currency out there because of these transaction fees. Does anybody want to explain what a transaction fee is and why they're so damn high? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was what I was mentioning earlier um, at the beginning of the call. Basically, uh, the Bitcoin network um, only allows about one to two megabytes of transaction data every block, which is about every 10 minutes. So um, when the network gets busy, everyone's trying to get their transaction in, and uh, the miners will put the transactions in the block uh, for the, from the people that pay the most. So there, there ends up kind of being this bidding war to get your transaction in and it just ends up um, making the fees more expensive for everyone. So that's, that's basically the path BTC chose to take that path intentionally. Uh, you, you could make arguments for both sides. The arguments in favor of that are, is that it provides long-term security to the miners, but the user experience suffers as a consequence. So if you're going to use BTC, you have to be aware that, um, that you may pay high fees. Yeah. Another thing expand. Yeah. Oh, another, yeah. Another thing that can drive up the costs are just inexperience with using some of these distributed exchanges. If you're exchanging a fair amount of uh, crypto uh, and you, you put the order out there and you just want to make it happen right now, you're going to end up paying more. Uh, you, you have to be patient. You'll have to let the orders come to you instead of just pushing it because if you want it fast, it's going to cost you more money. If you're patient, you'll get a lot better deal. With respect to the cost of, uh, yeah, with respect to cost of transactions, uh, one of the questions we get a lot is, hey, why in the world am I paying you know, even $5 to send $10 when maybe a minute ago, you know, I paid a dollar to send 100 like I sent hundred dollars, I paid a dollar, and then I went to go to make another transaction of five dollar of ten dollars, and I paid five. And people in the world today are used to fees being either fixed or a percentage of the transaction. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's kind of neither. It's neither fixed nor is it a percentage of the transaction. So I'm going to explain one little thing that hopefully sheds some light on how fees are calculated. Um, there was a mention of how Bitcoin inputs and outputs you know, or mirror the way you deal with cash. And so I like to, to give the analogy of a cash register. When you first create a Bitcoin wallet, you have a cash register that, that's completely empty. 
and then people give you money. These are now bills. Every time you receive money into a Bitcoin wallet, that's like a bill that goes into the cash register, except that it's not only ones, fives, tens, and twenties and hundreds. It's any amount that someone sends to you is a bill. So you can have a 0.1234 Bitcoin bill sitting in your, your cash register. And then someone sends you 0.01 Bitcoin. That's another bill. Well, just like a real cash register, if you wanted to spend money out of that cash register, so you want to spend $20 and there's a $20 bill in there. It's physically easy to take that $20 bill out and go and go to a store and spend it. What if you had $20 worth of pennies in the cash register? It's actually physically hard to go and count the pennies and physically bring them somewhere and spend the pennies. So the more bills and the more coins you need to make a transaction out of your cash register, the more work it is the more effort it, it involves, the more time it takes for you to actually use your money. This is the same as a Bitcoin wallet. If someone sends you one Bitcoin, that's the only bill you have in your wallet and you want to go spend half a Bitcoin, that's relatively inexpensive. That requires what's called one input. That one input is just simply that one Bitcoin someone sent you. If 100 people sent you 0.01 Bitcoin, 0.005 Bitcoin, 0.006 Bitcoin, 0.0 something, they just sent, you just had a, like say 100 transactions that entered your wallet that equate to one Bitcoin, right? They equal one Bitcoin, but there's a hundred transactions. If you wanted to go and spend that, you now have to collect all those transactions and use all of them as inputs to the, to the outgoing transaction you want to send your money to. Much like having to count all of the pennies and doing that takes work. It takes data. It's a larger data byte load transaction on the Bitcoin network, which starts to take up space on the blockchain with that one megabyte limit that was mentioned, you know, Bitcoin's got a low limit. And so therefore you end up paying a larger amount. So people don't understand this. And they're like, why does one transaction cost so much more than another? It might simply be that you, in order to spend your money, you have to source all of these tiny bills and all of these little coins in order to make up that amount that you want to send. Whereas at another day or another time, you don't have to, you, you can just source a couple inputs and you're done. So this is a complex. And it's one of the things that are hidden by the wallet for you. But at the same time, it's hidden to make things simple, but hiding it also makes things a little unintuitive as far as what kind of fee you're paying. That's great. I, I came across an old wallet from back when I was doing the Sovereign BTC podcast. I had you on back in the day on the show, Paul. <laughs> yep. And it had a nice little stash of crypto. And I went to try to send it and was like, wow, I know that the transaction fees are generally pretty high, but it was like, whoa, this is this yep, is huge. This is crazy. I'm not even going to send it. I'm now, you know, I have the the recovery phrase, so I still own that crypto, even if it's in a wallet in a wallet that I don't access. But it was a wallet that people would send little tips to. So it was little crypto <laughs> exactly. tips here and there, one dollar, five dollar, over and over and over. Back when you could send that much with BTC, so that's a great way to explain it. Um, it has to do more work, so sometimes it costs a little bit more money. And you know, the I'm not a big fan of the high transaction fees, obviously. And me myself. I was a big blocker and thought that the best solution was just to increase the block size. But I do appreciate the fact that as a free market guy, the transaction fee really is a, a beautiful price discovery mechanism of market market in action in the moment, discovering how bad do you really want that transaction to get included in the next block compared to how bad everyone else wants to get in. It's pretty pretty cool to see that anarchy in action, in my opinion. It is. Um, being someone in the space that has to actually service support calls from people frustrated about <laughs> um, you know, having to pay high fees, the more, the more challenging thing. So I'm hoping the listeners are listening to this and being forgiving to you know, the infrastructure providers such as ourselves at Edge is that 
while you may have to pay more because other people are you know paying higher amount of fees, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to get in mm. because you send out a transaction, it doesn't get confirmed right away, and other people can come in with higher with higher fees, bidding a higher fee to pay to get into the blockchain, and this happens all the time. Right. You make an estimate. You think, OK, this is about and the wallet does this for you. This is about how much you should be able to pay to get into the next block. That's how much it was for the past two days. You pay that fee. And a few minutes later, a flood of transactions come in that are paying higher fees and you don't get in for days or the transaction just gets dropped. This happens all the time. And there's just nothing that you can do about that from an, an algorithmic or even a computational AI point of view, you're just taking a guess. As soon as blocks are full, it's nothing more than a guess as to what fee you need to pay. And mm -hmm. that just an inherent challenge with full blocks. Yeah, and it's, I, it's interesting how the, the value proposition for Bitcoin, early on I would go to um, stores, brick and mortar stores, and I'd say, hey, you guys should accept Bitcoin in exchange for your goods and services. It, you'll get your money almost immediately and it costs little to nothing compared to the two to 3% with the credit card fees. That's no longer the case, right? Uh, we yeah. thought that it would be this great currency. We also used to say that it's going to bring banking to the unbanked people in impoverished third world countries, right? And now it's like, wow, they only make 25 US dollars worth of value a week. And it costs that much to send one little transaction. But it's kind of shifted the value proposition to more of a store of value, a digital gold of sorts. And the beauty of this ecosystem is that we have the Bitcoin Cash, we have the Dash, we have the Pirate Chain and the Monero, and there's different functions and there's smart contract coins and Cardano and all sorts of stuff. So there's something for everyone, essentially. Let me hit another question. This uh, There's a couple questions, people asking about R. And um, I learned about R from Jack Spierko. He really got a lot of folks into it. I'm sure the guys that he got it, he, he was pushing it when it was like 18 cents. Now it's like $13 or something, which is pretty incredible. Um, when I first got into R, I was not very satisfied with the wallets that they have. I'm used to nice wallets like Edge and Coinomi. Those are two of my favorites. Um, and I, I ultimately got the wallet on my on my phone, but I like to have a nice desktop wallet as well that allows me to do a little bit more so maybe uh, can someone share what their favorite pirate chain wallet is now? And then Paul, can you give us a little more insight? I was pretty excited to hear that you guys might be doing, doing pirate chain on the edge wallet. Yeah, it really depends on what you're after. You know, if you're working on a PC and you want to have the full uh, blockchain there on your machine, uh, you know, pirate chain just released a brand new full node wallet. And it's got a lot of improvements. They've got some top wallet people there working on the project. Uh, the the light wallet has been improved and speeded up a lot. At first, it was very slow synchronizing, but now the synchronization happens a lot quicker. So that one's gotten better. And then there's another one that's really clever. You can take a USB stick or you know some plug-in memory device that you can boot from plug that into a PC, boot off of it, the entire rest of the machine is disabled, so it's virtually impossible for anything to be lurking there, you know, stealing your private keys and stuff. And then you can do transactions with the Light Wallet on this hardware device that's very private, and they're getting ready to improve that and add some distributed exchange capabilities and things. So, yeah, the wallets are getting better you know, it's it's obviously it's not Edge. You know, Edge is a very mature wallet, a great wallet. A lot of people love it. And I think that that's going to generate a lot of excitement once R is there. 
when the price is constantly doubling like it is now, there's going to be more money to go into the development, I'm sure. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Yeah. All right, what you want to give us some little insider info there, Paul, on when uh, maybe I shouldn't use that terminology on uh, what's the story with Edge and uh, Pirate Chain? Got it. Um, So having learned about Pirate Chain being uh, a direct fork of Zcash really enabled us to kind of see what the path would be to get an integration in place. And we don't have an integration with Zcash yet at this point. But like I had mentioned, we've been in about a couple of years now discussion on building out the SDKs necessary to integrate Zcash in full private mode. Um, and private by default. And so really getting over that hump comes first. You know, we, we work closely with Zcash and the SDKs are still young and early. They're not fully battle tested. So we want to make sure to get that fully ironed out since they're the guys like the, the electric coin company, which is the, the you know, for-profit company that builds a lot of the Zcash infrastructure. Uh, we're going to get that out the door first, make sure that that SDK is rock solid and then apply that SDK into supporting Pirate Chain because they are, from what we've been told, you know, identical at a protocol level, w- specifically for the privacy part. And that's all that we were going to support anyway. So that kind of is step one. I don't have a timeline yet because um, we're kind of working on shaky foundation of brand new SDK, new code base hasn't been fully tested yet. And we're also dependent on another team. So while we might integrate the stuff that we're going to work on, and if we run into issues, we'll have to bounce some stuff back over to the to the ECC team and they might bounce back to us. You never know how long that back and forth is going to take before you have a solid working um, even beta release. But yeah, as soon as we have that, I feel like probably no more than a, a few weeks to a month to get to get Pirate Chain supported. Awesome. Well, thanks for supporting that coin. I know it started off like a smaller community kind of project, but it's really kind of a, a awoke, awakened. Uh, and a lot of people are really keeping a keeping an eye on it now. And it's it's good technology. All right. So we're coming up towards the end. Let's just go by a one by one. If you guys could maybe give uh, tips or any advice, last minute advice you would have for folks that want to get involved with cryptocurrency, how they can do so to ensure that they're maintaining their privacy. Let's go ahead and start with you, Paul. Um, well, that's a bit of a softball question. Obviously, you know, I'd like to be able to promote edge as a way for people to go and buy, sell and trade crypto. Um, while you don't have the level of privacy that you'd get from getting crypto with cash from a friend, you can buy and sell and trade using a bank account. You will have to provide KYC in most locations, but the more important thing is you have autonomy. So once you've got your cryptocurrency, it's in keys that you control. And then the transactions you make from there are not fully visible with KYC associated to those transactions the way they would be if you're making transactions out of a custodial service such as an exchange. Um, so check it out, edge.app, and definitely send us some feedback. Let us know what you think. Um, and after that, my advice to the builders in the ecosystem, not just the end users, but the builders, is once again, privacy by default. Make it where people don't have to go through any extra work to get it. And even grandma or anyone that doesn't care, the you know the, the, the TikTok celebrity that likes to put their entire life on um, on this, mm-hmm. on social media and the internet, will get the privacy when they use your app. Excellent, excellent. Somebody had asked, "Is there any obligation to report ownership of a non KYC wallet?" And the answer is no, no, no. So, uh, yeah. Edge is a great wallet. You can download it, no identity, no nothing. Yeah. You can receive and send, and no problems there. All right, Matthew, what what are your closing thoughts? Well, I'm a big community guy. Even though I'm a tech guy, I really do believe that you should be exchanging crypto only with people you know, not not with strangers. So make sure that you build relationships. And this is another way to promote cryptocurrencies. The people that you know that don't understand how to work with them, teach them how to work with them. Show them how there's value. Show them how that they can get crypto in exchange for products and services. 
And I think that that's ultimately the best way to do it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Raymer. Oh, do you want to plug Content Safe real quick for us? Oh, absolutely. Content Safe is a content redistribution service for content creators. Uh, we value free speech at Content Safe, and we strive to keep everyone platformed somewhere. And we support about a dozen different platforms at present. Excellent. Excellent. And real quick, one of our sponsors is Autonomy. We're going to talk a little bit more about them later. Uh, Richard Grove is the navigator on that project, and it's a community of like-minded individuals pursuing excellence. Can you just share real quick with us, uh, Matthew, your thoughts on Autonomy? I know you're a part of the community. Autonomy is fantastic. They are, um, we were talking about, uh, well, the name, Autonomy. I mean, from autonomy, you get a great experience of learning about sales, modern digital marketing, but the most valuable aspect is community. They are a community. The way that autonomy is structured, you don't just go in and then go out and then it's over. You continue forward with the autonomy uh the community of autonomy and you continue to help it grow and it continues to help you grow. And I've had nothing but positive feelings from working with them for the last year. And I will very much promote and say anyone uh, needs to, even if you're not interested in internet marketing, you need to participate in autonomy. Excellent. People can learn more at getautonomy.info. That's getautonomy.info. Dot info. Mr. Jonald, you got any parting words for us? Yeah. So if you're new to crypto, you know, the, I think the best way to learn is, is by doing just jump in and, you know, try it out, download a wallet. And, um, you know, you can go to uh, our telegram group. Uh, if you go to electroncash.org, there's a link to uh, telegram, stop by, say hi. And we'll, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll give you a little bit of Bitcoin cash or some spice tokens and, uh, just you can start playing with it. Also, I want to just mention one other privacy tool that we're currently building. Um, it's uh, reusable payment addresses. So what it is is basically a pay code where it like behind the scenes, it gives you a fresh address every time. So this could be used for things like you could have a donation address on your website and no one will know how much is, uh, you're getting in donations because every time someone donates, it's like a brand new address. So it works uh, based on, something called elliptic curve Diffie Hillman exchange. Cool. So it's pretty, it's yeah. Going into the details would be kind of off topic, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's coming and it's, it's pretty cool. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that always new cutting edge technology. And finally the pirate R Mike, send us <laughs> off there, buddy. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention earlier the, the pirate chain mobile wallet. It's also a good wallet. It's the one I use the most. And uh, that has also been getting some improvements. As far as receiving, you know, crypto as an agorist, uh, I don't like using things like coin payments and things like that. And it's really hard to figure out a way, well, how do I accept crypto, you know, as, a, as an agorist? And I rely on individual just peer-to-peer -peer communications for nearly all of it, you know, so it says, hey, contact me, and I'll send you a wallet address. The only exception to that is the R wallet. I actually have my wallet address on my website to accept payments uh, for R, 
because there's no information there. Even if they know the wallet address, there's no information there. So that's one of the beauties of it. It actually does make trading simpler. And then there's a lot of businesses on the website, armada.com, which uh, where you can spend your R and you'll find myself and John there. And uh, so, you know, if you've got a business, you're wanting to accept crypto, uh, you can see how to, how I do that. If you go to ppmsilver.com slash AM, and that's my agorist market uh, landing page. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. This has been uh, very elucidating and informative, and we're so grateful that all of y'all could join us on this roundtable, how to overcome the obstacles to the private acquisition of cryptocurrency. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, John. Thanks. All right. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was great. So grateful for them. We have so much more to come and we've been talking about cryptocurrency. I know there's a lot of folks in the audience that are well versed on cryptocurrency. And then there's some folks that are beginners and maybe interested in getting involved. I just want to let you know that myself, along with Matt McKibben, he'll be speaking tomorrow. And our next speaker, who I'm going to introduce in a sec, we are going to be doing a two-day workshop. It takes place May 15th and the 16th, although you, if you can't make those dates, you'll get access to it after that. So you can check in on it on your own time. I want to do a quick ad for that real quick because I think it really has a lot of value to add. And we are going to be teaching you how to acquire and send cryptocurrency privately. And the next speaker is going to be breaking down internet privacy and all that good stuff. So let me play this big ad and then we're going to bring on the next speaker. Hey friends, John Bush here to invite you to take part in a workshop I'm hosting along with two of my associates called Demystifying Crypto, how to buy, hold, and multiply your cryptocurrency. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are quickly taking the world by storm. With so many people losing trust in big institutions like government and finance, it's no wonder this decentralized approach is gaining steam. But what is blockchain technology and how does it work? Why does it have value and how can I be sure if I get involved, I won't be bamboozled or scammed? We will answer these questions and more in our two-day interactive online workshop. You'll learn the dirty little secret companies like Coinbase and PayPal don't want you to know about their wallets. We'll teach you how to acquire and transfer cryptocurrency without revealing your identity. You'll gain access to my foolproof crypto buying strategies that will guarantee you get the best bang for your buck. Plus, on top of all that, we're throwing in a bonus module on internet privacy. We'll teach you how to cover your digital footprint and send and receive encrypted messages and emails. Upon completing the workshop, you'll gain the understanding necessary to protect your investment, engage in private transactions, and multiply your crypto. My team and I will take your cryptocurrency knowledge to a whole new level. To learn more or to sign up, visit CryptoAndPrivacy.com. That's CryptoAndPrivacy.com. May the crypto be with you. All right. I strongly encourage you to check that out. Make sure you click on the link that's in the description on this YouTube or in Facebook, or I just shared it in all the comments. That way, the Greater Reset gets a percentage of the ticket sales so we can support this amazing endeavor. 
All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and bring up Ramiro. He is going to be talking to you guys about some really super cool stuff. Now, Ramiro is an incredible guy who is really the brains behind all of the tech aspect, right? You see what we're doing, you see the presentation, but a lot of work goes into the back end. It's been really great working with him and really I'm in awe of what he has to offer. So thank you so much for the help that you've done uh, for the greater reset effort, and we're super excited to hear what you have to say about taking back our tech. Hey, well, uh, very appreciative of the opportunity to go ahead and, and speak at these events, and it's it's amazing to see how courageous we can all be together when we have a channel like this and and, uh, and share that with each other. So, thank you, John, and um, a lot of a lot of different projects that we're all working together on. So, let's try and, and keep track of all of them. So uh, cool, I'll, uh, I'll get started. So if you've uh, watched one of my talks before, you know I come at you with a lot of content. And uh, this time I've got a little bit of a presentation for you. And uh, yeah, so we'll just kind of roll it like that and feel free to take notes. Uh, I'll be putting this presentation live on our website above-agency.com. Go ahead and check that out after the talk. And um, if you sign up to our mailing list, you'll get a PDF of the slides with a bunch of helpful links in case you miss anything because it really is a lot of information. So without further ado, let's begin. I grew up around computers. I spent just as much time indoors as I did playing outdoors. And it, well, I wasn't always as productive as I would have liked, but uh, computers were my best friends, right, in a way. And I think since <clears throat> this entire lockdown has been happening, um, I've been getting closer actually and more appreciative. And part of that was through my experiences from founding Above Market, which some of all, uh, some of y'all might know about, which is this uh, counter economic marketplace, uh, similar to uh, uh, Swatex Agorist Market, um, where it's uh, simply all you would need is a wallet and a web browser and you'd be able to go ahead and buy and sell things. And so part of working on this market was uh, was having privacy and security, right? We wanted to make sure we had total control uh, and ownership of our software and our communication and distance ourselves from the other software as a services because uh, I'm going to be able to show you really the difference between an abusive service and a service that is for the benefit of its own users. And that's, that is the... That's the theme for today's talk is taking back our tech. So uh, when I was working on Above Market, we found and implemented many different solutions, experimented, and they allowed us to run our own infrastructure, our own software services. Uh, we could chat to each other. We could write code. We could have video conferences. Uh, and we never had to worry about third party. I never had to worry about having Google having access to my data or my code. And this worked really well, actually. Uh, we, we were surprised at how reliable and, and fast and performant it was. And we realized that it needed to be shared with the rest of the world. Um, not just this specific solution, but the overarching idea that we can take back our technology and have it serve the people who use it, not faceless companies that control us with it. So with, with that, there's, there's three ways to get involved if you're interested with this idea, right? We'll go through this again. Uh, go join the movement at our website, above-agency.com, above-agency, and sign up for our seven-day challenge. That's the, that's the Take Back Our Tech newsletter, right? Um, so if you leave your email, we'll be sending you uh, detailed guides on every step of this framework, right? We're going to teach you these ideas of principled privacy, server setting, and community computing, right? 
um, and just kind of guide you through the process. This is also what I'm going to be covering at the uh, the crypto workshop that I'm doing with John Bush. So stay tuned for that and, and sign up. Uh, check out our company above agency, which is it's a managed service and digital agency that helps people implement these ideas for themselves. Maybe if they don't have access to someone technically uh, proficient and, and don't worry that you don't have to go through us. We're just going to give the knowledge away, right, of what we learned in terms of setting up these uh, open source office servers for yourselves. And then lastly, just keep watching and I'll, I'll share with you a very high level of how you can take back your tech. So um, just a disclaimer, everything I talk about today is educational. I'm not, I'm not going to hold myself responsible for how you go ahead and use this tech. I'm just giving you the tools you need to use it for whatever purposes you may desire. And I hope you use them in a positive manner to change the world. Going back to the talk now. Uh, so we rely more on computers than ever, right? Especially with uh, being isolated in today's time, um, having to work remote, not going into offices. Uh, computers are useful, no matter whether you're a knowledge worker, a laborer, a writer, a farmer, or an artist, the computer can help you, right? They think faster, they remember longer, they have access to infinite knowledge, and they're more obedient than our brains. Sometimes their brains don't want to listen. That's not the case with the computer. And uh, But as we've had this reliance on technology and it's been useful to us, there's this other side to it where... We can't rely on technology giants to provide us useful technology. And the question becomes, are we using their technology or are they using us? And I think they're using us. Flip through the slides here. Oh. Loose lips sink ships, right? Have you, if you've heard this phrase, it began in World War II after 10 million civilian men won the draft lottery and were inducted into the military. Uh, these civilians were new to the operating environment of war, and so they needed to be taught about information security, right? Uh, how to protect valuable information. And for the military, for these conscripts, it was the size and strength of their groups, their location and equipment, their movements and their plans. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's obvious stuff. But yet every single one of us in today's times as civilians is breaking these rules right now. We're giving this data away. And so it comes to uh, the saying that I came up with, loose links sink ships. And the, the data you leak on the internet, internet, your informational security is the foundation or this type of informational security is the foundation for how world governments, militaries and, and corporations organize their information. And they're all doing it, right? So back in, in uh, 2012, the Snowden leaks brought to light different methods of uh, one, how US intelligence was classified. And it turns out in addition to the three levels of classifications, you know, there's a classified uh, secret and top secret or confidential secret and top secret. Uh, there's actually sub compartments with, uh, it's kind of like systems thinkings where they break it down into smaller subsects. And each of those groups also have groups. And so it's hierarchical um, all the way down to really high levels of secrecy. And it turns out not only is uh, the US government doing this, but also companies, big technology companies are doing this the same. And to get become aware of this, you can ask yourself simple questions. You know, How much do we really know about these big faceless, uh, faceless corporations that control the internet? Um, try answering these questions for yourself through basic research. They're really basic questions, right? Even an estimate would be fine, but it's hard to find. 
for instance, how many total users exist um, for Google, right? They last reported 1 billion users in 2018. They don't, they don't really, they haven't provided many updates. There's no level of transparency. How many pages has Google crawled? Back in 2012, uh, in an um, interview, they uh, representatives said they could crawl 15 million pages, 50 million pages in 60 seconds. So the question is, how many pages, how much of the internet is contained on their servers? Is it 99%? You know, how much? Um, what other third parties is your data shared with when we sign up to these uh, these abusive services, right? Would we have known that Facebook was sharing personal data with other big companies like Netflix, Spotify, and Microsoft if, if there wasn't a leak? Um, same thing with Cambridge Analytica, right? They're, they are practicing operational security. They are not telling you everything. In their case, it's because they realize they look like total jerks. How much of our geolocation data is mapped and held on to? You know, um, where can we even see a list of accounts that get ban banned on YouTube and Facebook this year? You can't. Simply, you're taken off the internet, and if you didn't have pre-knowledge of that channel or you weren't following them, you would never even know that they were on the internet. And lastly, uh, what are the company's involvements with government programs like Prism? Right? Are the uh, when the leaked when Snowden leaked the NSA slides, which I actually have a picture of here, that's that little sticky note that was on one of the slides. He referred to these companies by name, and there was 13 in total. But Google, Facebook, Yahoo, Microsoft, Apple, those are the big ones. And it's funny. There's this little sticky note of how they actually go ahead and intercept the data going to uh, Google's servers using Google's front end. And then these companies, when presented with this information, these companies have said no, and they always make sure to include the phrase, as far as we know. So even internal to these own companies, these companies don't know how high up the, the level of involvement with other secret project goes. Again, they're practicing operational security, loose links sink ships. So I think we've covered they through through their control of the internet and through the different tracking technologies, which I'll go into today. They know every about everything about us, but the companies are they work and are so compartmentalized. They don't even know anything about themselves, or maybe they're just not willing to share. Right? We can't really tell. And part of this, part of this is is. Um, even that sticky note there, right? When this, um, when it was shown how they were intercepting Google data, there was Google engineers that got really angry and they were like, I had no idea, you know? So we've established at this point that most major tech companies and definitely the government understand the value of privacy and withhold as much information as possible uh, from us, right? And even to their own people through a vague privacy policies, lack of internal transparency and compartmentalization. But when it comes to us normal people, privacy is chastised. And see, uh, Google CEO, ex-Google CEO of Eric Schmidt said it the best. If you have something you don't want anyone to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Well, I guess that's okay for Google and Facebook, but it's not okay for you and me. And with the growth of software platforms that have been seem to agree on requiring identity information and embedded tech tracking, we have to pause for a second and ask why we're okay with everyone having privacy protections except ourselves. Uh, well, I mean, and, and I think once you sit down and think about it, you realize something needs to be done.
So kind of exploring this idea more, I've been looking for a term that sums it up nicely. And it, this is like an abusive partner in a relationship is the way I can see it. Abusive boyfriend, abusive girlfriend, because uh, big tech wasn't just, you know, it wasn't descriptive enough. You know, you expect them to help you, but they spy on you, they gaslight you, and they make you dependent so they can totally control you. And it just feels like you're in an abusive relationship. Uh, just ask the individuals who got locked out of their Google accounts and could not do anything to get back in. Or the individuals who own the millions of YouTube videos and thousands of channels that get deleted every month, which you would have no idea if you got they got deleted if it wasn't for independent projects like transparency tubes, where you can go up and see, oh, um, they scrape, you know, they scrape all the videos before and after, and you see these these people all lost their livelihood on YouTube, right? Or the dude who's suing Apple who had his Apple ID with $24,000 worth of content that he purchased from Apple completely wiped without being told why. And he's now suing Apple. Or the software company that got their entire organization disabled by Microsoft's GitHub after one of their software developers logged in from Iran. Well, much to Microsoft's credit, you know, after they sussed it out, they reinstated the organization. But still, these companies would not be anything without our collective support and use. Uh, why do they? Why do we allow them to have so much control over us? Are there? Is there a better way? And so I'm saying, I'm. Uh, I'd like to say it's time for us to step up. This is a one-sided relationship, and we need to cut ties with these abusive services, right? And that's where this concept comes from. Take back our tech. It's a framework. It's. Uh, it starts with conscious and principled action, right? And I think now, nowadays, especially, we're, we're becoming more aware uh, about the violations against our individual privacy or the control that large tech corporations in cooperation with the government have over us. That is good. It's good that we're aware. But we have to do more than just be aware. We have to make conscious steps to regain our privacy, to regain our digital freedom. We have to take back our tech. That's why we started a movement at Above Agency called Take Back Our Tech. And Above Agency hopes to be uh, hopes to provide educational resources. We're obviously not the only source, but we want to accomplish several things. We want to educate people on retaining our, uh, on taking back every layer of our computer environments and services, right? Because there's a lot of layers and it gets complex. It's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, we want to uh, encourage and provide a new era of managed services that assist families, groups, and organizations and businesses to use community computing. This is an idea I'll explore further in this talk. Um, but it's going to change the world through distributed computing where we take the responsibility off central servers and central companies that have, have so much say and control over our data, and we take it back into our own hands. And lastly, we want to develop a community where we can freely discuss the technical research, implementation, and education required to move on to these new networks and begin to use them more productively in our communities. This is not easy. I'm not going to pretend like it's easy. Uh, there's many different areas to learn. Um, no one's going to be uh, a specialist in every area. That's why the community is so important that we come together and share the information. But one of the things I appreciated more about the first the Greater Reset was the idea of personal responsibility, right? And that is, and, and to, to make it a metaphor, if we want to improve our health, we have to become our own healers. If we want to keep food sovereignty, we must become our own farmers. Uh, farmers. 
in the same way, if you want to take back our own technology, we must become our own technologists. And that is the foundation of take back our tech. It's going to bring us actionable awareness, right? So following this framework is a good starting point for most people, especially those interested in their freedom and privacy. It's not the end all, it's just scratching the surface. And so it has three layers. The first is principled privacy, and that starts at the individual level. What can I do to protect myself and, and uh, stop myself from being tracked? And uh, also, once you start at the individual level, you get to protect the networks you end up moving into. The second layer is server setting, which is running as many of our basic needs and services ourselves, not relying on other people to do it. The third is community computing, which is the interaction between server setting or running these awesome services and then combining them with on and physical and the physical world community programs to optimize and help improve and organize these programs and to provide these basic digital needs for a local group of users and then use that for the common good. So principled privacy, let's start with that. And principle of privacy is just about being conscious and aware of the projects we contract with on the internet. Every time you go ahead and create an account anywhere, you're signing up, you're, you're following a privacy policy, you're following a terms of service. It's it's 100,000 pages long. No one no one reads through that, except except we should, right? And this, uh, this, this change in principled privacy happens in two phases, right? There's this process that we go through to implement principled privacy. First is identifying all your critical accounts that you need, right? That's the services you really need to live your life. This could be uh, bill payments. This could be emails that you use to contact your family. Maybe it's the contacts that you have there. There's the work accounts, uh, maybe important documents you have those stored in cloud servers. Even, you know, music, stuff that's important to you. And so you start with this and then you make a list of everything and then you back that up. You download it and you back it up and you put it on a USB so it cannot be taken away with you. So that's the first step. And then the next step is evaluating the extent of abusive services, right? How many emails do you have tied to one of these abusive services like Gmail? And can you think about, think about if you got locked out of your Gmail, would you be able to access these accounts if you locked your password? You wouldn't be. How dependent are you on these abusive services? And then make a list of all your user accounts that use emails from abusive services and uh, back it up once again. This is a recurring common theme, um, so it can't be held hostage. The third part is transitioning to non-abusive uh, providers, right? And instead of just offering providers, which I will do here, I'll also give you a framework for simply going to a new provider and figuring out yourself is uh, you look at three uh, multiple things when working with a new provider. You look at and see how much of the that how much of your uh, requests to them are being logged and what information they're logging. Typically, many com most companies log your IP, uh, your location, your your user agent. Um, this is this location goes more for mobile applications, but Look through that and see how much information they're keeping on you and see what their you know, data retention policy is, is how long are they keeping this information on you? Uh, who, are they who are they partnering with? Are, are there third parties that they're going to share this information with? Like um, does Google, Google shares your, you know, they say they don't, they don't sell your data, but they do allow uh, bidding from an ad network. Facebook also now says that they're not gonna share your data, but they've been caught in the past. Um, so it's this, it's this 
you have to you have to make the judgment call if you see them partnering with abusive software services like Google, Facebook, Cloudflare. Cloudflare is rapidly taking over the internet. People use them for DDoS protection. It's essentially a like a man in the middle attack where you're going through Cloudflare and Cloudflare is picking up all your information for all these other sites. And with their combined reach uh, through, you know, they provide a lot of helpful web services that make it easy and thus other people on the internet use them. But partnering with these companies allow them to uh, unknowingly uh, have your user's data, right? So Twitter, Google, Facebook, they're all big, uh, big violators of this. One of the other things that's very important, as uh, the panel was mentioning earlier, right, is how anonymous you can be. Can you sign up to uh, a software service with a VPN or a Tor network? If you can, it's, it's a very good sign, right? If they're not requiring your phone number. They're not requiring any identity information. Avoid avoid giving your personal information to anyone. Don't, don't give it to anyone that is gold. And look for anonymous payment methods for services that are paid. But I, I hold the belief that the best things in life are free. And I'll be showing you some really awesome free software today. So operating systems, you know, there's no way around it. You're in an abusive relationship if you use Windows or Mac OS. Now, now we're starting to work through the different layers of principled privacy. You can't trust Windows if you have a job that requires privacy. You know, tests back in 2016 showed that Windows phoned home over 5,000 times to Microsoft servers. Of course, they have this, they have this really extensive privacy agreements. Um, they've, they've said in their privacy policy, we will access, disclose, preserve personal data, including your content, content of emails, other private communications or files in private folders when we have good faith. And then they list out a bunch of reasons, you know, complying with law enforcement, protecting our customers, maintaining the security of their services, protecting the rights, property of Microsoft, all phrases that can be, uh, that really have a lot of scope and can be interpreted um, loosely, right? And they, I mean, they're going to do it anyways. It's its more like they do it first and they ask permission later, right? If that. Mac OS is also the same way. They've implemented uh, anti-privacy features that you, there's no way to go ahead and disable. I mean, I think that's another major part of the, both of these operating systems. There's no way to disable the telemetry. You can go ahead and go through and configure all your options as much as you want. It's, there's still going to be some level of telemetry going to Microsoft and Apple. So this goes back to the concept of abusive service. Why would you stay? Why would you stay with someone that's abusing you? Mac OS has been sending your IP um, along with IDs for the apps you use since Mac OS Catalina in 2019, right? They send them unencrypted. Um, they've now responded to this and they're working on encrypting the o OCSP requests. But there's no way to turn this off, meaning that anyone who's spying on the wire, which, you know, we've talked about how the NSA program PRISM works, um, government agencies and Apple themselves, your ISP, they can all see this. So what's the solution? Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of awesome free software that you can use, right? Um, Linux and its distributions, GNU Linux, have come a long way, and I've been using them for a number of years, probably more than half a decade, and it served me well. Um, 
it's now easy to, uh, it's really easy to install and use. It can do pretty much anything that Windows and Mac can with the exception of proprietary software suites like Adobe and uh, so, like a lot of games, unfortunately, but that's also changing. You'd be surprised to see how much you can game on Linux now. And so I've compiled a list here of some good distros that would be good to start with. And of course, if you go ahead and sign up to our uh, mailing list, Take Back or Tech mailing list, we'll also provide more detailed information about this and how to get installed, right? Which also isn't hard if you do the research yourself. So we have a Linux Mint, which is super usable. The developers have been making really good choices. Um, they disabled uh, Snap, which is like a containerization uh, system for packages. Um, there's MX Linux, which is a high performance and easy to install distro. Uh, these are all based on Debian. I've also got Debian in there. It's the biggest software, community software project in the world. Very, very stable. Comes with a lot of prepackaged software. Uh, and then there's Ubuntu, but I don't recommend Ubuntu. You don't, you won't see it anywhere on that list because they've been caught in the past sending the searches on your home screen off to the company that runs, uh, that manages Ubuntu called Canonical. And that's telemetry, right? That's what I was complaining about earlier. That's what I was calling out earlier with Windows and Mac OS. And this goes back to the principle of privacy if you try and treat everyone the same. Um, in Ubuntu's case, they were sending that data off to Amazon, anonymized. Now, free software doesn't spy on you. That's an apt quote by Richard Stallman. Um, so do check out, do join the mailing list for more information. There's also some good websites, which we'll include in the PDF. Distro Watch, if you're interested. There's so many flavors of Linux um, and these operating systems. And I find that open source software is kind of anarchist by nature because when a group finds something that they don't like or the software starts going in the wrong direction, they just stop and they branch out and they create their own. So in that same way, we now need to move on to email. We covered we covered uh, operating systems or we covered operating systems. We now need to move on to browsers. The biggest, uh, the main criterion to avoid the collection, uh, the main criterion for these services is to avoid the collection of data to be sent to abusive services, right? So uh, these biggest browsers, Chrome, Edge, Safari, they don't pass a list. Some other projects that tout themselves uh, have been working together with these abusive companies. Uh, birds of a feather flock together. You know, Bray has been caught manually whitelisting Twitter and Facebook trackings. So a lot of people use Brave and they're like, I'm protected. Now, most likely not. Uh, Brave has made some very questionable choices. Firefox, uh, once you realize half of Firefox, well, actually not half, the Firefox's main income stream is from the likes of uh, Baidu, Yahoo, Yandex, and Google, you see the massive conflict of interest. And you also see the advertising rich features that they've added to the platform is uh, not, it's not for the users, it's for their business. They also log pretty much all your data under the sun. You name it, they they are taking it. At least, uh, you know, they may give you the option to opt in or out of some of them. You can go ahead and harden your browser. That's what we'll talk about next. So here's some ways to uh, harden your browser. And I kind of skipped over the, 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 the solutions for this, but these are actually both forks of these main browsers of Firefox and of Chromium, or of the Chromium engine. A Libre Wolf and Ungoogled Chromium, which all, which both aim to stop any requests going off to third-party servers, right? 
Um, so they kind of take out those privacy, anti-privacy features. Moving along, we have, there's also other ways you can harden your browser. Uh, here's two, a few, here's two add-ons I recommend. A Umatrix blocks all 30 part, uh, party requests by default. So basically the internet works today by everyone uses third-party services in the website. So those scripts are in there and your computer, your IP makes requests to those third-party services. And so what Umatrix does is just, it only accepts the first party requests and once you turn this on, you're going to realize how interconnected and kind of how centralized the web is because it's going to break a lot of things. And you're going to go in and then you're going to enable them piece by piece and you'll get a sense of how many different, uh, how many people have an eye on your browser, uh, browsing habits, even if it's not, you know, if it's, it's not like the official website themselves. Okay. Cool. I think we covered there's a I have, to, I have to run through this pretty quickly because there's a lot to cover here. But there uh, that is a lot of the main components of uh, principled privacy, taking care of yourself individually. And of course, there's also the VPN piece, which we'll be doing an in-depth guide on and above agency.com. So we've covered the individual privacy level. Let's talk about server setting. What is what is server setting? Well, later today, you're going to hear from Jack Spierko. And if this wasn't a decentralized tech conference, you might hear Jack talk about homesteading, right? Homesteading is all about developing an array of skills to take care of basic needs for yourself you know, and your family, which might be like feeding yourself, uh, producing water, power. Server setting is very much the same. You develop an array of skills so you can provide basic digital needs for yourself. And this used to be way more digital, uh, way more difficult in the past, but it's becoming easier as the servers and computing power become more accessible. And open source technologies have really gotten more mature as I've gotten to see from this past year. So why go through all the effort of purchasing the server, learning about technology, and then implementing it? Well, there's, there's a lot of reasons, actually. One, you're censorship resistant, right? Um, since you're running your own software, loading your own data on your own machine, there's less restrictions on what you can do, and it's much harder to censor you. They would have to seize your domain or literally go to your server provider and have them shut you down. Uh, complete control. You have complete control over the software you're running on your machine. Oftentimes, the open source and self-hosted versions of software are actually more customizable and extensible. Uh, WordPress comes to mind uh, as software like that. And you can even fork the code of an open source application, customize it to your liking, and then uh, and then deploy it, right? So you have your own version of whatever application you want. Of course, updating the application becomes hard in the future, but that's part of the balance between responsibility and freedom. Lastly, there's privacy. Running your own servers allows you to be far more private. Now, I won't say that it allows you to be completely private because the way the internet works is the, uh, your your information takes the packet of least resistance. And uh, there's a lot of big servers, a lot of big companies running um, running uh, nodes out there that your packets are going to pass towards. And there's techniques that they can use to intercept it. But when the data actually gets to its final location, it's in a server that's in your control, right? So the data is in your control at rest. And also, uh, most open source uh, applications, they have all their dependencies in line. So there's not they're not making third party requests to other services unless they're explicitly designed to do so like an email service. 
So we need a few things to start server setting, right? We need an internet connection, the ability to learn, and a remote or local server. You can even use like a really old cheap laptop at home and, and go ahead and install Linux on it and start uh, open it up to your local network and, and start running some of the software we're going to talk about today. Or it's also just as easy to set it up on a cloud VPS like DigitalOcean or Linode and uh, have it serve whomever, right? And you're, immediately your stuff is available to the internet. So I'm going to talk about a few platform as a service solutions today. Uh, what these do is they essentially bootstrap your applications for you. So instead of going in and installing an application one by one, configuring it, setting the firewall rules and uh, whatnot, these they just they just take all the heavy lifting out of that, right? And so there's three big ones I want to talk about today. Um, they also create the virtual environments with all the dependencies uh, necessary necess uh, necessary for the application to run. So there's Cladron. Cladron isn't uh, Cladron isn't free. It's a paid platform. Well, they have a free tier, but um, the more useful tiers are paid, and it's not 100% open source. The code is freely available, but they they have an AGPL license. Uh, it's still one of the best uh, platform as a service platforms today. It comes with its own mail server and it has unlimited users and it has a really awesome ecosystem of apps. It's what we use at Above Agency and it's highly recommended. Why you know host? You know host is 100% free and extensive. Another platform as a service that has single sign-on, which is a really nice feature. It has a full email stack, a, a, an instant messaging server and security systems built in. HomeLab OS is meant more for uh, it's more for offline first, meaning that you can run it on your local network and kind of have it provide like home storage services. You can make it like a media server, or maybe you can have it, you know, as part of like a compound or something. So all these, uh, all of these platforms have a bunch of apps. You can just go ahead and one click install, set up uh, some basic information and boom, you have a service working for you. So when what it takes to server stead is you have to kind of identify your needs as a citizen of the net, right? And uh, it's kind of how homesteading works too. Is like, what do we, you know, we need food, we need water. Uh, with server steading, we realize we need email, we need calendars and reminders, we need documents, video conferencing, file storage, chat. And so we've got some awesome tools here. We've got. Uh, Email, uh, a few a few of these platforms have that built in. Cloudrun has it built in. Uh, there's also MailU, which HomeLab OS offers. Uh, it's an email server that you can run. It's completely free. Uh, there's also MailCal. And then you're going to want a calendars and reminders. I find this super, super useful if you have like a team or a business just to set up an appointment and have those emails sent out. You can use a Nextcloud. Nextcloud is a super awesome. It kind of handles a lot of these uh, layers or these needs, and um, so Nextcloud can go ahead and hand handle the calendar servers for you. There's also Radical, which is on um, I believe that's on uh, Unihost and Cloudron. Could be wrong. Then um, there's also Documents Collaboration, right? We have we're so dependent on Google Drive. So we, now we have Nextcloud. Uh, Nextcloud is completely open source. It allows kind of the groupware feel where you can just share documents with a whole group of people. You can create groups within groups. You can uh, collaboratively work on uh, documents together, you know, with integrations like uh, OnlyOffice and uh, Collabora, which I have the logos for. I didn't include the names. So I'll make sure to put that in the PDF. Um, and then there's also video conferencing. 
which I haven't listed here, but a few good tools are Big Blue Button and also Jitsi Meet. Um, a lot of people use Jitsi Meet already, and that's they use the cloud service version, but you could also run Jitsi Meet yourself. Uh, and there's file storage, and there's a bunch there. Nextcloud is the one I can talk about, and also SyncThing, which is completely peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh, so you can have two computers sync a, a folder to each other. And lastly, there's chat, there's Rocket Chat and Matrix. So I'm just scraping the surface in terms of needs, and there's so many more applications available out there for those who want to research and take the sovereignty back into their own hands. It's overwhelming at first. You'll need to pick up a lot of new knowledge, but the having these solutions running on your own server with your own data working entirely and only for you is a really good feeling. And I'm sure you'll share it if you decide to put your foot in the water. Let's get to the heart of why I'm sharing all this with you. Because technology, as we've uh, iterated so many times over in this conference so far, can help us change the world for the better. If we operate inside these abusive systems that have been established, if we consent and give away all these details of our lives and continue to feed these greedy beasts with endless troves of our data, then we are setting ourselves up for failure. It's only when, as we as communities, we start anew on Neo Networks that the tide will turn. Abusive services and advertisers will slowly be starved of their revenue. We'll take our attention and money and put it towards free and open software, which will continue to flourish. We can use principled privacy. We can use server setting and community computing alongside our day-to-day -day community programs and create positive, long-lasting change that it's not easily intercepted or censored by abusive actors, right? This is our technology. So we started Above Agency, again, uh, above-agency.com. I'll share it a little bit at the end of this talk as well, to help families, communities, organizations, and teams who may not have the technical know-how uh, and want these office servers or want these community servers uh, to create those programs for themselves. So Above Agency will go ahead and help you with that. Um, at the uh, You can go ahead and click pre-order at the top of the site and fill out a survey, and that'll get to us, and we'll reach out and, and set up a meeting with you. Well, we've also, Above Agency has also taken initiative in our local communities, right? We have projects underway in two continents where we're just sponsoring, we're just sponsoring our time. We're providing the infrastructure and we're giving our time to these local community groups because we know we're, they're doing positive things. Um, and that's the setup, the configuration, the support, the education, that's all of it. And we have uh, projects underway in two continents. If you want to support our efforts, there's a donate link on the website. Um, feel free to to contribute anything, and it's 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 for it's for the purposes of having communities around the world uh, go ahead and implement these community computing recipes, right? So, what I mean is that this is not just it's not something you have to wait for above agency and contract with us to do. This is something that you can do right now. You know, if you're a young person and, and realize that there's this trade right? Between maybe some of the older people in your community and the younger people. Young people tend to be better at technology. Older people tend to know pretty much everything else. And uh, it just as a community needs farmers, it also needs technologists to go ahead and lead the way. So be a leader in your community. And once you do that, you'll be able to use some of these community computing recipes, right? Which is essentially a set of open source technology together that create positive change. So I've come up with a few here and that are already being used and in the States and in other countries. Uh, you can use open source mapping software like UMAP to do a lot of things, right? To create shared community maps. 
Think about this. Oh, freedom-minded businesses in your local city. Wouldn't it be nice to have a directory to know where to put your money towards so that you could support local businesses and not faceless corporations? Uh, so UMAP, which uses OpenStreetMaps, which is the main um, mapping tile set alternative to Google Maps, um, allows you to create open source maps. Even on the front page of the Greater Reset website, we use UMAP, right, um, to, to track the watch parties across the globe. So these, uh, these community maps can be tied to spreadsheets, which have contact information, and then anyone who's brought into the local community server can have access. Next is, uh, the next recipe is homeschooling, right? Homeschooling and unschooling are becoming more important. Open source is blessed to have a lot of educational projects. We've got uh, Jitsi or Big Blue Button for video conferencing. And then we have Nextcloud for assignments and work. So teachers or, or parents could go ahead and come together and they could create uh, curriculums, they could create syllabuses, they can go ahead and distribute this really easy to uh, the, the children or their students on the server and also have the video conferencing in line. Lastly, there's also a community hub, right? What does that mean? Well, it means a private chat where finally you're not relying on Telegram or WhatsApp or what are any of these other chat solutions to handle the privacy of your data. You're actually just communicating to your very own server. Um, so there's a lot of solutions for that. There's Rocket Chat. Rocket Chat offers encrypted messaging as well, and you can it's completely self-hosted. And so then you have this kind of community, this this private community, right, where you guys can only talk to each other and it's separate. Nextcloud, again, is it also has a community calendar. So the way we see some communities using it is uh, they plan events on the community calendar, right? They might have a, like a crypto workshop or a soil regeneration workshop, and they put it on the calendar. And boom, it just emails everyone as, as a part of that community. Lastly, there's knowledge bases and project management, which I'll mention. Um, you know, use the documentation, use programs like Wiki.js to keep information that is sacred about our health, about agriculture, and keep it private. So when it get take, if it gets taken off the internet, at least we have our own copies. Now there's some considerations for real world use, right? Uh, first, again, this material is for educational purposes. I'm not gonna be responsible for what you do with community computing and I hope you use it for good. Um, you, you be be very, very purposeful about your privacy when it comes to community computing. If you're putting sensitive data of your members, you know, even their home addresses, for example, uh, then take time, you take your time to inviting, take your time to invite strangers or other members onto these community instances. Uh, ideally, these projects start with trusted members and then through shared experience, you begin to branch out the trust, right? You make sure to meet these people in person and make sure they're of like mind and then they can come on the server. Don't invite people who haven't been vetted. If you have lax access controls, then it just takes one person to uh, give away all your data, right? Remember, loose links sink ships. And technically it'll all be as possible for, it'll be possible for abusive email provi providers to reset the passwords to your users and gain access to your instance that way. You'd be only able to catch this if you uh, if you saw the logs. So make sure you get people set up with email, right? Two um, two email services that I'll uh, recommend off the top of my head are, are Disroot and Rise Up. Uh, those have they have really good uh, logging policies, and uh, they also have the ability for you to set up your own email client, which means you don't have to access like a third party or a web client to to get that email, right? Whether you're in a community server, uh, when you're in a community server, it becomes more important to have guidelines for set for all of your members, whether it's to save space on the server 
or just set the ground rules. And lastly, we, we need hacktivists that are willing to take on the responsibility for doing this for your local people, right? If you're a technologist, make this work for you. Take donations to get these servers set up. And uh, yeah, everyone, everyone needs technologists in their groups. You may be younger or older, and if you want to learn either way, sign up to our, our newsletter on the front page of the website. Uh, it's uh, above-agency.com and the take, Taking Back Our Tech uh, mailing list. So go ahead and join there. And uh, we also have a Telegram group on the front page. Just join to share your thoughts or share your progress or ask questions and we'll answer. Uh, and then if you think this is a good idea, take it back to your local communities and see if there's interest in, you know, a local server. Um, we'll be sending if, if, you know, if if you work with above agency and it turns out it's it's not the right fit, we'll give you all the resources you need. And this is, goes back to that newsletter to give you the instructions you need to set these servers up for yourself with local providers. And additionally, at Above Agency, we offer a full set of creative services, right? We offer on top of just a server, we offer web design. It's the same team that did the Greater Reset website. It's the same team that did the Above Agency website, right? Web design, um, we offer privacy and security consulting, um, which is basically being able to take your accounts and seeing how much data you've leaked in the past. And this is these are investigations that can be done by any hacker that has access to intelligence technology. We have AI services to actually have robots perform some uh, manual repetitive work. We have marketing services where we uh, design marketing automation flows and design. And again, this is all based and, and done off of open source technology. So you can be sure that you're leaking uh, as little data as possible, right? You're working directly with us. So, wow, there's so much that we had to cover, but I'm glad we got through it. And I really appreciate anyone who, who is open-minded and, and is wanting to take this information and implement it for yourself. I really encourage you to take the first step. It is not hard. It's not rocket science. You can do it. So thanks for everything. And let's take back our tech. Oh. John, you're you're muted on on my screen. Aha! You're going to be um, covering some of that content more in depth in the workshop that we're going to be doing. Is that right? That's a hundred percent right. Yeah, uh, a lot of what we didn't get to today: the uh, in-depth uh, discussion of email services and how to set it up yourself. The VPN will be discussed in the workshop uh, we're doing next month with John. Cool. Yeah. And again, that's May 15th and 16th and click on the links below and the greater reset will get a cut of the ticket sales. We're going to have Matt McKibben who's speaking tomorrow and Ramiro who you just heard from talking about digital footprints, encrypted communication. So definitely don't want to miss that. Hey, thanks a lot for the information, Ramiro. Good stuff, man. You got it, John, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Ramiro Romani, not only is he well-versed in all this tech stuff, but he's also been quite the workhorse, uh, putting in many hours to help pull this event off. So we're really grateful to have him as part of the team and have him presenting to you uh, today. So uh, without further ado, I want to bring on our next guest. Her name is Rachel Rose, and I wanted to have her participate in this event because we've talked a whole lot about cryptocurrency. And we have touched upon how cryptocurrency kind of has lost its way. It started off as this great idealistic, um, this path towards sovereignty. 
and digital privacy, but it's gotten co-opted along the way by banks and corporations. And there's still a movement of people out there that are working really hard to bring it back to its roots. And, and Rachel is one of those people. So we're going to hear from her. And we're going to go to some questions as well towards the end of her talk. Rachel Rose, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Is my work working okay? Yeah. Yeah, you sound great. Go ahead Perfect. and take it away. Okay, brilliant. Thanks for the introduction. Um, for those that are interested, there's an article on Coindesk which uh, basically details that that whole um, argument, uh, which you can check it out. It's called Bitcoin Has Lost Its Way, uh, and it's on Coindesk. Um, so, yeah, just to introduce myself briefly, um, I come, before moving on to the talk, uh, I worked uh, as a journalist in crypto for uh, several years and I left uh, that work in uh, 2018. Um, so that was around the time of, you know, just after the, I, I'd been working at Coindesk during the 2017 uh, ICO craze. And, um, you know, after a couple of years of that, um, I became a bit in dis disenfranchised with like, you know, the whole kind of, um, crypto industry and, you know, found that it had become, you know, uh, fairly corporate and um, uh, just a bit like nihilist, you know, in its in its objectives, you know, it's just kind of purely about like uh, getting, you know, easy money when Lambo and those kind of memes. Um, so I actually left and uh, I went to northern Syria to report on, uh, the uh, the Rojava um, society building project, which is happening there. So you can also find those articles on on CoinDesk. Uh, and then I came back not long ago, and since then I've been working on uh, building tools, which you know uh, aim to kind of um, reorientate the, the the crypto landscape towards you know what what I would see as its like kind of core um, potentiality. Um, so the talk that I'm going to give today, um, it kind of it kind of deals with those ideas, um, especially towards the end. But uh, more generally, um, uh, it's I'd like to call it a, a TED talk because I'm going to talk about Ted Kaczynski, um, which is maybe a bit odd. But I hope that you know through the process of the talk, you'll begin to understand why I'm talking about TED. Um, so I'm going to share my screen here. Uh, oops. Whatever you just did there, you had it added, and then I can add it to the stream for you. There we go. Now okay. I'm going to add it to the stream. There we go. Okay. You can see right. okay? Uh-huh. Okay, perfect. Um, so let me just check that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so the TED Talk and the tagline here is obviously uh, ideas worth sharing. That's kind of the joke um, because we're going to be talking not about TED like the conferences, but about Ted Kaczynski. Um, so here's an outline of the uh, what I'm going to go through today. Um, so the first one is on Ted Kaczynski himself. I'm pretty sure uh, you're all fairly familiar with who he is. Um, so I hope that I'm going to bring some new perspective on uh, on Ted Kaczynski. So I'm going to talk about a little bit about his theories and also a little bit about his tactics. 
Um, then I'm going to talk about uh, this idea of using techniques against the technological world system. Um, and that's kind of like, I guess, the kind of the key point that I want to bring home like with through this presentation. Uh, then I'm going to talk about the concepts of poly and monotechnics, which are um, philosophical concepts brought to us by a philosopher called Lewis Mumford. Then I'm going to talk about free software and surveillance capitalism. And finally, I'm going to conclude with some like prescriptive um, uh, ideas for the crypto industry and how to kind of uh, reorientate its direction. Um, so first, we're going to go to Ted. So a little bit about Ted Kaczynski. Again, I don't want to give any new information here, but uh, I'll just briefly, you know, um, summarize what's important. So he uh, studied at Harvard and he studied, all, he did his PhD and he taught at Michigan. Um, he worked in complex, complex analysis and geometric function theory as a mathematician. Um, and he wrote several papers um, which were, you know, well received in the academic literature. His dissertation, which which was on boundary functions, um, so this is why he spent like the early part of his adult life. Um, and he later refers to mathematics basically as a game. And he said, you know, I couldn't spend my whole life devoted to what was just simply a game. It was like an intellectual game for him but it wasn't you know it didn't have a kind of deeper meaning or like deeper reflection on society and eventually that drive to kind of um uh um interact with society in a more meaningful uh way caused him to like suddenly abandon his mathematics career and and go into nature which i'm sure you all know so briefly about the freedom club um Freedom Club was the uh, name of the organization which Ted Kaczynski claimed to represent. Uh, he soldered the letters FC into many of the devices that he left uh, um, during his attacks. Um, so, you know, as you know, he, he conducted a nationwide bombing campaign from the late 70s till the mid 90s. Um, this basically consisted of like using the postal service, uh, well, bombs that he would bring himself uh, uh, to attack various kinds of nodes within what he saw as a technological world system. And we're going to talk a bit more about what that is later on. Um, so famously, you know, uh, the um, papers, the, the mainstream media consented to publish his manifesto um, you know, with the permission of the FBI, uh, and in in by publishing that, he was eventually then convicted based off of someone recognizing the writing style, which was the the intention when they published the manifesto. Um, but it's also kind of uh, interesting in terms of uh, his own priorities because he consciously risked his own arrest in order to draw attention to that manifesto. Um, whereas previously, you know, in his attacks, he had been meticulous uh, and careful about any kind of um, evidence that would uh, lead to his arrest. Um, so he consciously um, risked his arrest to draw attention to that manifesto. Um, so there's two texts which I'm going to discuss. 
Um, the first one is the text which was published uh, by the media um, and led to his arrest. So that's his manifesto, uh, Industrial Society and Its Future, which is published in 1995. And then uh, we're also going to talk about a later text, which is written from prison, uh, which is called Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How. Uh, highly recommend these books if anyone wants to um, look at them. So firstly, I'll talk about the first book. Um, so Ted Kaczynski says, it's not enough to simply have some kind of negative uh, ideology. So you can't have an ideology uh, based purely off the rejection of something. You also need to have some positive aspect that you're proposing. So he said, we are anti-technology, but the positive thing that we're proposing instead is this notion of nature with a capital N. Um, so he calls that, he says, it's wild nature, you know, things which are outside the control of, of humanity, essentially. Um, so the two, like how he defines them uh, is basically nature, uh, that which is outside the power of the system, and technology is that which seeks to expand the power of the system. Um, so he advocates nature against the technological world system. Uh, what else does he do? He uh, His main message is that he advocates a revolution uh, against the industrial revolution, uh, world system. He's very particular in his insistence that reform of technology isn't sufficient. There has to be a complete overthrow of the system as it currently stands. Um, he believes like any attempts towards reform will simply become co-opted. Um, so the only important thing and, and the thing which is of like immediate significance and urgency is to destroy the technological industrial system through whatever means available. Um, however, it's not simply um, a kind of uh, strategy of just you know, putting everything into that collapse. He has a um, he 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 talks about potential steps um, that could go into that process. So the first step he talks about is to increase the total instability of the system. Um, so basically, uh, maximize the kind of the the areas of uncontrol and unrest and chaotic kind of restructuring. Um, and, and by generating that instability, he believes that the system is more vulnerable to collapse and it might even collapse of its own volition. You know, if the instability is increased to the extent that, you know, it can no longer kind of handle its internal contradictions, it will uh, begin to break down. So either, you know, either way, it will make the work of revolutionaries much more easier, you know, if they increase the total instability of the system. Um, so one way that he advocates that, which I think, you know, and, and I've said in my title, I'm going to talk about an, this, this anti-tech revolution within a crypto context. Um, so here's a point which I think is interesting in terms of how um, it doesn't relate to crypto in any way. And there's no parallel to be drawn. So one, one method that he advocates is um, we should, um, as revolutionaries, 
we should um, uh, encourage uh, economic systems which are centralized, um, you know, which are like, for example, a unified a global economy, um, because such a system would be more liable to shocks. Um, and it would it would be a kind of backdoor towards like potential revolutionary activities. Um, it's interesting that in, in crypto, we're actually making, in some ways, we're making technologies more at, uh, attack resistance to attack through decentralization. You know, so we're we're deliberately kind of uh, structuring technologies in such a way that they're less vulnerable to those kinds of shocks. Um, so that's, you know, potentially like, according to Ted Kaczynski, he might see that as a way of like strengthening the technological world system. But we'll talk again later about how they kind of relate and don't relate. Um, so here's a quote from Ted Kaczynski, uh, which I wanted to um, pull out. Uh, so he emphasizes that the kind of revolution he's advocating, it's not a political revolution. So that means its object is not to overthrow governments, but instead the economic and technological basis of society. That's what he's interested in uh, in overthrowing. So I, I just thought that was kind of relevant um, to us. Okay, so then that's the first text, um, briefly. Uh, briefly now, the second text, written much later, is uh, an elaboration of some of the key ideas within the manifesto. Um, but he focuses less on the kind of uh, psychological impact of te technology and industry on uh, human society and on the human individual, which you know he sees as like an alienating force, um, as and you know as a, a, a abusive force, which is you know leading to widespread human suffering that is only going to increase. He he says that. They're, they're, it's driven by a utopian vision that eventually human suffering will decrease, but it will only begin to decrease when at the cost of humanity itself, you know, so um, only when humanity has been sufficiently instrumentalized as part of the industrial system will, you know, it, 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 it reach this tipping point of finally, uh, human suffering is eliminated. So it's kind of a sinister view, um, but very interesting. So he, in the, in the second text then, uh, he, he brings up these concerns and he focuses specifically on uh, complexity in human society. Um, so that also relates to his mathematics education and and you can see reading the text that is written by a mathematician he's got a, a a very good understanding of complexity and um also it offers a, a a kind of cybernetic analysis of um of what he calls a self-propagating system and a self-propagating system is essentially a process which um its main motivation is its own perpetuation and survival, and it will consume all, all and any available resources in order to ensure that perpetuation. Um, so this kind of metaphor of self-perpetuating 
perpetuating process applies um, like across many things, you know, potentially across all life. Um, but he sees it kind of um, ruthlessly embodied in the industrial complex itself and especially in the interaction between um, uh, capitalist technology and the war machine. Um, so in the competition uh, for greater um, power and greater dominance and greater control of resources. And, and he believes that that competition, you know, between these, these very powerful self-propagating processes will lead to the eventual destruction of the human society, of human race, and not just humans, but also nature itself, potentially. So, you know, he really thinks that uh, the only way to avoid that outcome is through a revolution uh, to destroy technology. Um, and yeah, he says that that revolution should be done by whatever means necessary uh, or available. Um, he also offers an analysis of the history of revolution. Uh, so he looks at all the different revolutionary movements and he says, like, you know, why things failed, why they didn't, you know, and he gives like a, a, a thesis on like what a successful revolutionary movement looks like. Um, okay, so then this is kind of where I guess I'm bringing in my own interpretations a bit more. Um, so I'm proposing that Ted Kaczynski is, in, is involved with uh, is involved with using techniques against the technological world system. Um, so he says very clearly in his manifesto that the use of technology is permissible uh, within the context of the anti-tech revolution. Um, but he says that revolutionaries should use modern technology for only one purpose, which is to attack the technological system. Um, so if you look at Ted Kaczynski's methodology, and especially, um, you can see that he used technology uh, himself in, in three very obvious ways. So the first one is uh, the use of, of networks uh, within, the, within the terrorist attacks. Um, so he used a postal network to attack these seemingly random targets, um, which he saw as kind of nodes within the technological world system. So, for example, he you know he targeted the president of United Airlines. He targeted an engineering professor. He targeted owner of a computer store, geneticists, etc. Second, uh, kind of even more uh, obviously, a, a use of technology is. Um, his use of the media. Uh, so Ted Kaczynski used violence in order to draw attention to his manifesto. He says this also explicitly in the uh, Industrial Society and its Future, the first manifesto, where he says, um, in, order to, in order for people to pay attention to what, I've, to what I'm saying, I had to kill people. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that those... That those deaths were instrumentalized as a way to draw attention to his narrative because he understands that the that the media requires violence um, or at least you know it, it generates an engage violence generates engagement so media and violence are in this kind of 
um, uh, they work together in a way. And and it's not just Tegazinski who's unlocked this strategy. I think a, a really good example is um, the propaganda videos by ISIS, um, which, you know, like drew enormous attention and even like huge amounts of uh, Western um, uh, recruits because they use this kind of hyper-violence within the media. So then finally, and I think uh, perhaps the most overlooked point is uh, the kind of weapons that he used. So when we look at Tegazinski's weapons, He's using pipe bombs. They're made of wood. You know, sometimes they have bits of aluminium, uh, various scrap metals. Um, possibly, you know, this this relates to the fact that he um, wanted to make things cheaply. He was very isolated. You know, he was using the bits and bobs of things that he found around him. Uh there's also a possibility that he was doing this deliberately in order to avoid engaging with the military industrial complex. So for example, you know, when, um, when other attacks happen, oftentimes the people perpetuating those attacks will seek out the help of, of others, enlist the help of others in order to source, um, you know, more advanced, uh, um, weapons of one kind or the other. Uh, but Tegazinski didn't do that. He even made his own gun when he could feasibly acquire a gun himself. So, you know, you start to question uh, why, why, why is he using this kind of craftiness when it comes to his own weapons? Um, so I'll just see if I can actually just show you some pictures um, briefly. Yeah, so that's um, a picture. These are pictures that I took off a documentary. Um, Oops, this, these are, yeah, that's an aluminium can, sorry, that's aluminium, um, that's obviously wood, that's wood with some like, I don't know, bits of scrap metal, that's like an old barometer he's used somewhere, aluminium foil, other stuff, that's a, not a great photo, but that's the homemade gun that was found in his, uh, in his shed, so let me go back up here. Oops, did I lose my page? Okay, one sec, I need to restart. Um, yeah, so I just leave you with those thoughts. And again, we'll we'll come back to that ideas later. Tegazinski, in Industrial Society and its Future, he talked about two different kinds of technology. And I think this possibly um, will give us um, this description will give us a bit more insight into why he's making these strange bombs, you know, which put the emphasis more on craft, even than they do effectivity. So, you know, just to kind of underscore that point, um, Ted Kaczynski's bombs often failed to kill people um, because he was like making them himself and he was in, you know, not particularly experienced. He had like, manuals in his shed about how to do them but you know he didn't he didn't in my view he deliberately didn't engage with you know the technological world system as he saw um in making those weapons 
but he did engage a certain kind of technology. So we're going to see maybe uh, what kind of technology he may have been engaging. Um, two kinds of technology. So Tegazinski says he's arguing against the point that uh, that someone might make that they'd say uh, it's not possible to completely abolish technology through a violent revolution um, because technology will always kind of resurrect itself. It would like reorganize. And, and the people who might argue that, they might say like um, the reason why technology kind of reorganizes itself is because human history is like a single arc of progress of like technology becoming incrementally better. Um, so Dr. Kaczynski is approaching that question and he says well no actually so he says there's two kinds of technology um the first uh he calls it small scale technology and the second he calls it organization dependent technology and he said that throughout history small small scale technology remains constant whereas organization dependent technology is vulnerable uh to regresses so he talks about various moments within history that small-scale technology persists, but organization-dependent technology, stuff that depends on you know, a certain level of civilization, a certain level of societal organization, when that society breaks down, it no longer exists. Um, so then he says that in the case of a, of a revolution against the technological world system, uh, what he kind of hopes, what he plans to target then is, is more the organization-dependent technology than it is the small-scale technology. So I think that's an interesting point that he has that distinction. Um, I'm going to, yeah, and I'll just give a note of caution, and, and then I'm going to stop talking about TED and talk about some other people, but um, just a note of caution. So I think what he's saying in terms of the two kinds of technology is potentially very interesting uh, for people in cryptocurrency because he shows a preference for this kind of small-scale technology in his weapons. But I'm also being very cautious about the kind of uh, uh, connection or non-connection between Ted Kaczynski and cryptocurrency and, and the work that's happening there. So, you know, Ted Kaczynski is very clear. Uh, he's an advocate for revolution against technological world system. He does not advocate its re its reform, which, you know, arguably uh, cryptocurrency is more working towards like the side of technological reform. He doesn't believe in reform. He thinks that, you know, reform is just going to be co-opted. Um, he doesn't see that it's, it's a, a viable strategy. He doesn't see that it's a severe enough shift from the, the technological world system in order to sustain its own path. It's only going to be uh, subsumed by this, this incredible uh, force, this self-propagating force that's kind of internalizing all of human society and culture into it. Um, so he says, no, we need a, a clean break through revolution. So he doesn't believe in re reform. I think for that reason, he would probably, you know, not be so excited about cryptocurrency. But anyway, he also warns about... Uh, technologists who might say uh, we agree certain types of technology is bad but certain types are good you know so they might say let's um, destroy drone weaponry but keep healthcare you know as we have it 
And he says that that, you know, even though, yes, healthcare is, you know, helps people and so on, improves quality of life and saves lives. Um, he says that no, because, you know, as soon as you say, let's have healthcare, then you're saying, let's have, you know, networked communication systems, you know, let's have pharmaceutical chemistry research. And he doesn't want any of that. He's like, we can't have, we can't have any. It's better that we get sick early and don't have medicine to help ourselves than to live inside the industrial society. So that's his view. He's very strict on that view. Um, so as much as I'm kind of opening, the, I'm trying to open this space for saying, well, actually, Ted Kaczynski, he found some ways to engage in technology in his own work. But I'm also drawing a line and saying, uh, you know, it's not directly applicable. Um, so this is the analogy I want to draw um, within the philosophy of technology. Um, the analogy I want to draw between Tegazinski and, and the philosophy of technology. So uh, Lewis Mumford wrote two books uh, called The Myth of the Machine in two parts. One was Technics and Human Development, and the next one was Pentagon of Power. Um, so they were, they were written in late 60s, early 70s. And he also offers a critique of technology. Um, but he goes back in time much, much further than Ted Kaczynski does. So Ted Kaczynski, he starts um, all of, almost all of his analysis. They start with Industrial Revolution. Um, Whereas for Lewis Mumford, he goes back right back to the kind of origin of human society. And through this excavation of history, he finds uh, two different kinds of technology. Um, so one of them he calls polytechnics, the other one he calls monotechnics. Um, and this distinction, it comes from basically looking at the, the behaviors of indigenous societies and thinking about the kind of complex structure of, of things like myth, uh, things like language, you know, um, things like ritual. Um, and he, he defines these as a kind of technology. And he, he gives, like, you know, great kind of explanations as to why we should think about language, you know, in, 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 as, as, a, as a technology. Um, and it's not just any technology. It's a technology which is um, which is bottom up, you know, which is social. It's like a, a, a shared um, revelation that everyone is kind of contributing to, um, and you know, it's it has this contagious, like viral um, aspect. Um, and and he 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 kind of draws a line and he says, you know. This type of technology, this 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 more democratic technology, exists throughout history, and he calls it polytechnics. And he juxtaposes that then to this other type of technology he calls monotechnics. So monotechnics is typified by um, the pyramids. That's like the the symbol that he uses to to explain monotechnics. So the pyramids, you know, they're like these mega structures. They've got a single center of command, which is the God King. And they have an entire society which is built off of slave labor. And the, and the pyramids themselves, they kind of embody the, the, the master plan of like a single God figure, um, God-like human figure, um, you know, who has enlisted the service of, you know, many kind of nameless slaves. And... Um, 
And more broadly, then he links it to that that the notion of the pyramid, which which symbolizes the the monotechnics. He finds that same kind of uh, hierarchical uh, and abusive. Um, I, I really liked in, in the last up from from Romero, he spoke about the abusive nature of uh, of proprietary software, and I, I think that's a really good description of it. So he talks about the abusive. Um, relation like inherent to uh what he calls monotechnics um and he draws a line for present day so we can find these kind of analogies um one perfect i think example of um polytechnics as like you know as we have it today like a contemporary example um mono versus polytechnics is in free versus proprietary software uh so free software, you know, if you guys are interested in learning more beyond what I'm saying here, um, I would point you to the GNU Manifesto. We're talking 85, 1985, uh, but also any talks from Stallman. He usually says the same thing, um, but what he says is really good. So any of his talks. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good example of polytechnics. And, and why is because similar to the kind of principles which Lewis Mumford outlined when he spoke about the invention of language, polytechnics had also emphasized, or free software, it would also emphasize openness, uh, accessibility of information, uh, sharing creativity, kind of the natural creativity of humans. Um, and it's a very bottom-up, and it has this kind of viral you know, character. Um, and what free software does is it it, it articulates um, I think well for the first time what freedom means in the context of software and um, that's something that has become you know increasingly relevant um, over time and uh, those points which you know Stalin was making all those years ago uh, were you know seen maybe as like too uh maybe as too too radical or too extreme in those days but now those points are like just perfectly you know um normal kind of analysis of um what's going on um with uh, proprietary software and in general surveillance capitalism which i'm going to talk about after so in proprietary software, I'll just say briefly, that the users are, are captured. They're effectively enslaved. Um, all of the you know, freedoms which <clears throat> are kind of uh, embodied within the, the, fr the free software paradigm are restricted. Um, so it, it's an inversion and those, those same kind of freedoms become constraints like within a proprietary paradigm. Um, and that's you know fits nicely into our mono and polytechnic kind of frame. So yeah, um, I'm coming towards the end of the talk, so I think I will have time for questions. But so kind of going back over what I've said, why is this uh, important? Why am I talking about this even? Um, so I believe that these three people, Tagazinski, Richard Stallman, Lewis Mumford. Um, had a kind of prophetic um, reaction to what was happening around them. 
by which I mean, you know, they were presented with a society which, you know, had and was changing rapidly. And they just projected, you know, what are the possible outcomes of this? Um, and they projected them more or less accurately. Um, so think back to, you know, what are the dates uh, of, of these different texts which I've discussed today? We have Ted Kaczynski, he's um, active in the 70s and he publishes Manifesto in the 90s. We have Richard Stallman. He uh, is active in the 80s and 90s and still now, but, you know, his 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 manifesto was published in the in mid 80s. Lewis Mumford writing in the 60s. You know, so they're ahead of their time. This was prior to um, and I think where we have a significant turning point in the in the history of the Internet is the year 2000, where um, the first time that Google um shifted its economic um, strategy toward the ad-based economic strategy. So that was an important turning point, you know, the year 2K, um, basically when the internet shifted from being like a utopian space of of kind of free discovery uh, to being um, a space of surveillance um, and a space of exploitation. Um, So they were, you know, 40 or 10 or 20 years prior to that. Um, but they saw it, they saw it happening before it did um, to different extents and like in different ways, you know, they saw different aspects of, of the same problem. And yeah, they recognize the severity of it before the kind of the severity has sunk in to the extent that it did today. It wasn't like too hard to do, you know, like it's a it's a process. It's not like it only started in their time. It's been going on for, um, well, I mean, Ted Kaczynski would say since the Industrial Revolution. Lewis Mumford would say it's been going on since ancient Mesopotamia. Um, so, you know, that's why that's why I want to talk about it. Um, next slide. Yep. So surveillance capitalism. When. Richard Stallman first articulated the problems with proprietary software. I think many treated that as a kind of um, uh, statement of like purism in technology when, you know, actually um, it turns out, it kind of turned out later that those, those lines, those boundaries that he was attempting to establish, you know, as a space for user freedom, you know, as a kind of space where um, proprietary software couldn't enter, were critical um, because they also become the means by which the user is like subject to uh, or becomes the object of the surveillance uh, capitalist paradigm. Uh, so surveillance capitalism, it's the, it's the dominant economic logic and technology today. Uh, it's incredibly powerful Um you know, its relationship to the state itself is is kind of shifting, and uh, but it has in its growth in its growth um, it has it detracted power away from the state. So it's kind of bled some of the state's power into itself. Oh, uh, I have to wrap up. I'm just going to prompt. We'll we'll uh, finish up quickly. So. Um, Surveillance capitalism, it reduces humans to tools. Um, 
but kind of worse than that. It's it's more like it it it's like humans are cows which are tied up to like milking machines and they're being milked for something which they're being milked for their data basically. So it's not quite that like the humans are the tools, but they're the cows which are being milked. Um, they're being farmed basically. Uh, so more disturbing than this possibly is the fact that uh, surveillance capitalism is its relationship to behavioral control. So, you know, surveillance capitalism is deeply invested in, in how, how we can control human behavior. And it's, it has the ability to like subtly through prompts and through like combinations of like uh, just like pure manip- like psychological manipulation and more kind of seductive tactics um, to guide humans in different ways. Um, and that's really disturbing. And it also uh, it, it, it in, in entrenches the deep inequalities, you know, of, of contemporary life and the contradictions, you know, which have been established in modernity. So uh, here's a nice quote from Tegazinski, where I think he was, you know, very kind of prophetic. So he said, the system does not and cannot exist to satisfy human needs. Instead, it is human behavior that has to be modified to fit the needs of the system. So I think that's what we're seeing with uh, surveillance capitalism now. Uh, this is my last slide. So we're, we're getting there. Um, crypto, you know, we talk a lot about freedom and uh, and so, so forth. Um, but without any kind of anonymity, we're simply uh, subservient to the like broader economic paradigm of surveillance capitalism. Uh, you know, crypto, it's, it stands out from that as well because it uses public infrastructure. You know, it's mostly it's, uh, not proprietary software. Um, but, you know, it's at the moment, it's just like really useful for any kind of um, surveillance capitalists or nation states to simply surveil users. So in, in a paradoxical way, within the current paradigm that we're, that we're in, um, you know, they, they're, they're a detriment to, to, to user freedom currently. So prescriptions for, you know, what I think crypto people should focus on. Um, we're entering a new phase in crypto. Um, it's the phase where nation states are simultaneously banning cryptocurrency in many places like India, Turkey, Nigeria, and they're launching their own central bank digital currencies in an effort to compete with crypto. Um, so the next phase in that is going to be, I believe, um, propaganda campaigns aimed to discredit crypto, you know, probably associating it with um, terrorism and, you know, bad things that scare people in order to make it uh, seem less palatable for normal people. Uh, so there's going to be a tipping point in the relationship between uh, cryptocurrency and the world. And uh, anonymity is our best and only defense uh, for this phase. Um, so that's it. I just want to leave you with that thought, um, you know, build anonymous tools. Um, thank you. Here's my email address and also my Twitter handle. If anyone wants to reach out for me with me or to me for anything, um, and then I think we're probably up with time, but if there is time, I'm definitely happy to take questions. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for 
for joining us and for doing this awesome talk. That was, uh, wow. I was like, man, she's going talking about Ted Kaczynski and this is pretty extreme, but it was all like, I didn't know that the depth of his knowledge was so uh, tied so well with what it is that we're talking about. Obviously, you know, he took it a little too far to say the least, but the underpinnings of that philosophy is I imagine we're, Ted Kaczynski around today, um, like, wow, how prophetic, like you said, because not only we, we already had this industrialized technological society that was monotechnic, right. And treated human beings as a means to an end, but that is just completely accelerated with the advent of this technocracy. I mean, technocracy is an idea that's been around for a while, but now it's really being implemented and rolled out. So it's really interesting to see, to hear those words in the context. Um, wow. What, what are your thoughts on the fourth industrial revolution and this latest iteration of the technological evolution or, or devolution? What do you think people really need to be watching out for? Yeah. I mean, I, I, in a way I'm an optimist in that. I think, you know, all worlds, all roads lead to crypto. I think that the the mistakes of like the kind of of the big tech era, like the last um, twenty years, um, are the same. Those those mistakes are the same kind of um, they empower crypto in a way because you know it's the same, people are people are beginning to realize that they're being exploited by. Uh, big tech and they've, they've also reached like obviously accelerated by the pandemic now they've reached like a whole new level um of um of power so um yeah pe people are gonna i believe start to look toward like more free solutions um and 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 crypto is like basically offering an economic alternative to you know having your data extracted um, for someone else's profits and purposes um, by having an economic layer built in, um, which is also the kind of, which was also the main problem with the, or one of the issues with the free software movement was that it wasn't clear how developers were going to, um, um, you know, uh, receive some of that value that they were creating back. Um, but now with crypto, there's a very clear method for rewarding um, uh, developers. So I, I think that in order for like, unless unless something, unless we lose this kind of transition, but I, I think there's a good possibility that we're shifting toward like a, a just like a fairer crypto enforced paradigm. Right on. Cool. Be before we let you go, can you share any of the, anonymity or privacy crypto projects you're excited about or that you are, are you're working on? Uh, yeah. So um, I'm excited. I'm excited about loads of tools um, because, you know, th there's this, there's this technique called zero knowledge, which um, zero knowledge cryptography, which has, you know, been, been around um, since um, the, you know, since it's it's based on concepts which have been around since the seventies, but it's kind of recently in crypto been um, more and more popular. But it's reaching a point now where it's become kind of more accessible to developers, and the concepts are like a bit more widespread. And so this is our this is leading to all kinds of new innovations. Um, my friend says, you know, it's like 
the biggest revolution in cryptocurrency since the advent of Bitcoin itself. So we're very excited about um, what zero, zero knowledge means. And some of those things that it could mean is, for example, um, you can sync the blockchain in a single proof. So that means, you know, instead of having to store like a massive archive of the blockchain, you can just like store everything in one tiny proof. So you can easily run full nodes on your mobile phone. Um, and it also means that, you know, you can do things anonymously and not just anonymous currency, but any kind of anonymous instrument. Um, uh, so that's really exciting. And, and we're, you know, working on privacy stuff as well, but uh, we're not at the stage where we can, uh, we can share that. But, you know, I'm really excited to talk about that soon. Okay, cool. All right, well, we'll have to have you back whenever you're ready to drop some knowledge on us. Thank you so much for participating. We really appreciate uh, your perspective and, and the work that you're doing. Awesome. Thanks Keep so much. All right, Thanks. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Okay, folks, uh, our next guest, man, super excited to have him. Uh, before we go to him, before I introduce him, we're just going to throw this little short video in and we will be right back. All right, and we are back. All right, I would like to introduce our next guest. He's a total badass, a good friend of mine, a fellow goose on the Unloose the Goose podcast. That's uh, Jack Spierko of the Survival Podcast. Let's go ahead and bring him up. He has been uh, educating folks, inspiring folks, motivating folks to become more prepared. Uh, and a lot of it was in the homesteading context, and it's evolved and grown into agorism and cryptocurrency and privacy. And I think he just really has a, a wonderful talent for bringing some complex ideas and putting them into a consumable fashion that is really geared towards getting shit done, I think is the phrase they like to say in their community. So without further ado, Jack's going to talk to us about the importance of privacy in the technological egg. Thanks for joining us, Jack. John, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here today. Um, I am really heavily known for homesteading, permaculture, living off the land, survival, et cetera. But I have uh, probably much to the chagrin of some of my audience who are very traditionalist, <laughs> brought a lot of technology, cryptocurrency knowledge, et cetera, to what we've done uh, for 13 years. I am an early adopter of cryptocurrency, not as early as I would have liked to have been, uh, but around 2014, I got on the Bitcoin train. Uh, so I've been through a lot of things. A lot of the things that people worry about with cryptocurrency, they're going to shut it down. They're going to stop it. Like we've been through it, like the roller coaster over and over and up and down. And it's just, I'm past that. And so some of that will shine through with what I'm going to talk about today. But what I'm going to start off with is going to sound like something that's probably not what you would expect when we're talking about technology and privacy in the digital age. And that is, we're going to go all the way back to the 1870s. We're going to go back to the what we call the crime of 1873, where they demonetized silver. And I, I guess one of the things I should say right off the bat here, um, everything I'm going to talk about today is in a little post that I did on my site. It's at the survivalpodcast.com forward slash D3, and it's right over here. That's why you'll see me glance over here at my notes on occasion. But all the links, everything like that, again, is available there for you. But 
1873, and I, I don't want to go deep into this because I only have so much time, but the United States government demonetized silver currency, and they did that in, in a couple different ways. One, they stopped making it. But the other thing that people don't know, I think, about the crime of 1873, if they're even aware of it, is up until that point, if you had raw silver, you could take it to a mint, a U.S. government mint, and they would actually turn it into coinage for you at no charge, and then you could use it and spend it because it was considered good for the public to have this currency available and known that it was actually what it was supposed to be and a known amount and, and spendable. That was considered a good thing. It was basically kind of like crypto mining for the public. Like we need to have a currency in circulation. And what happened was the powers that be very much through um, what we today call the new world order, which is not a phrase I really like because I actually consider the new world order to be the ancient world order. Um, they lobbied our government, which was even possible in the 1870s to get things done with money to demonetize silver because what they wanted was they wanted gold to be controlled by the elite and thereby they could create economic control over society. And hence it became known as the, the crime of 1873. In fact, the, 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 like one of everybody's favorite childhood memories, I think if you're as old as me or older anyway, is the wizard of Oz and the wizard of Oz was actually written about the crime of 1873. Most people don't know this because when they turned it into a movie, what they did is they made one little tiny technical change and it changed everything about the story. Everybody knows that Dorothy's slippers were made out of rubies. They were ruby slippers. They were not. In the original story, they were silver. And Dorothy wore silver slippers walking down the golden road to the Emerald City with the man behind the curtain who gave you nothing that you didn't already have. And that was the story of how monetary control was exerted over the American people. Eventually, of course, that led to 1913, the creation of the Federal Reserve and coming off the gold standard and everything. But the first thing they did was take away the people's money, silver. And the reason I wanted to talk to you about that is I, I'm not divesting myself of all my Bitcoin. And I'm going to say some pretty negative things about public blockchains today because I do think that they've kind of reached the end of their usefulness for our movement, not necessarily for anything, but for our movement in our agorist lifestyle. Um, but Bitcoin is becoming digital gold. And a lot of people get triggered by that. They don't like that. They want to, you know, it's, it's, it's tulip mania or whatever. There's various different ways people get upset by that term. But when I say digital gold, what I mean is it is the hardest money ever created that's also been accepted by mainstream. And so what happened was when we first started out in the world of Bitcoin, it was this wonderful, pure idea. And we took it forward. And, and many people, including myself, like we would be far wealthier today if we had just bought Bitcoin or mined Bitcoin or received Bitcoin and held it. But we actually used it as currency. John uh, went out on a bus and like traveled the country and like spent what today is probably $100 million or more in Bitcoin at a time when Bitcoin wasn't worth much. I have a shotgun upstairs that I, I could bring down and show you that, you know, technically today is like a $50,000 shotgun because I paid one Bitcoin for it however many years ago. And so they fought it. And then what happened was eventually it got so big, it became a trillion dollar asset. And you get to a point where like, Okay, we can't make this go away, so they co-opted it. And I've, you've heard a lot of things today about how they can use chain analysis and other things like that on, on public blockchains. But 
it's not going to go away. It's not going to be crushed. What it's going to become is basically a reserve currency. And if that makes it digital gold, then our question needs to become, if we look back at the crime of 1873, what's silver? The original idea with Litecoin is it was silver to Bitcoin's gold. It was faster and cheaper. And every cryptocurrency almost that's come out since Bitcoin is faster, cheaper, and better to use as money. If what you mean by using money is, I want to buy a scone and a coffee. Of course, Litecoin or Bitcoin Cash or what have you is better. But does that make those things digital silver? Or are they just derivatives? Or are they just spinoffs? What actually becomes the people's money? Now, think about what cash has always been for people. What cash has been for people is if, if I want to buy Kratom from John and I don't want anybody to know anything about it, I can pull out some cash and I can pay him with that. And then he gives it to me. And that's as traceless as it can be. At least it seems so. Well, what does that today? And what does that today is privacy coins. And I know I'm going to upset some people here, but John did a little demo earlier where he and one of the other speakers sent some Bitcoin cash to each other. And he talked about a technology that creates an obfuscation of the transaction itself with Bitcoin cash. And so that makes Bitcoin Cash private. I'm sorry. I know I'm going to upset some people. I don't care what you do with your transactions. Bitcoin Cash is not, cannot, and will not be a privacy coin. And these other privacy coins, I've heard people throw the term around with today, Dash, Zcash. These are not privacy coins. These are coins with privacy features. In other words, you can tick a box, or you can use a secondary app or something like that, and then you can obfuscate the transaction so that the transaction between me and you is complicated and hard to figure out. If you actually look at the coin missing te uh, mixing technologies for Bitcoin Cash, for instance, what you'll see is they, they straight up say they make them more private. And they're good technologies. I'm not bashing them. But what I'm saying is you're now relying on somebody who's doing business with you to do a thing a certain way so that the transaction is private, and yet the, the address still will never be private. You give me somebody's Bitcoin cash address, and I can tell you exactly how much money's there and everything that ever went in and out of that address. On that group of notes that I have over here for you guys, I have a Zcash address. Oh, actually, not a Zcash, sorry. A Z address for a, a privacy coin called R. And I have the address published right there. You can go look at it right now. There's some money in there. I'm not going to say how much. Anybody that can tell me anything meaningful about that address, other than it's associated with me because I've already told you that, you can have whatever's in there. I'll give it to you. Whoever the first person is that can tell me anything about the, the quantity or the in and out of that address, I will give it to you. I would never do that with a Bitcoin cash address. I would never do that with a Dash address. I would never do that with a Zcash address because they're not actually private coins. You either have privacy as a default with a currency, or you do not, because you're now relying on somebody else. And what I'd like you to think about is, have you ever been to a restaurant and done something as simple as, I'd like this sandwich without mustard on it? And the waiter goes, okay. And you go, this isn't going to happen. And you say, I want to be clear, no mustard. Yeah, say it back to me, no mustard. And the guy walks away and you go, there's, there's going to be mustard on this sandwich. That's what's going to happen. And you just know it is. And when they bring it back, there's mustard on it. 
That guy does nothing every day except bring people sandwiches or soups or steaks or whatever. If a waiter who's a professional who does the same thing every day can get that wrong, what are the odds of the person that buys something from you or does a transaction with you might not actually use the privacy feature? And this is why I think we need to have privacy by default, at least in currencies. And I, I just want you to keep that in mind. And to me, you have some privacy coins out there. To me, the best one, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a second, is Pirate Chain, ticker symbol A-R-R-R-R. Um, Monero is a fantastic privacy coin. I don't think it's as good, but it's good. Um, there's like Monero. There's some derivatives of that. There's a currency called Eon, A-E-O-N. That would be a great one if the team was actually still active and doing anything with it. Um, but unless you have privacy as a default, you don't have privacy. Before we go into privacy coins and privacy projects today, I want to just say something about Satoshi, whoever he or she or they might be. And I, I personally believe Satoshi is a team. There are three wonderful things that Satoshi did for society. Not one, three. The first and most important one is made Bitcoin. That is the number one contribution to the world. But the number two was to stay anonymous, to stay anonymous and not have anybody know who he or she or they were. Not only because they might have been attacked, but because then we would turn them into prophets. Then we would turn them into authorities, which brings me to the third most important thing Satoshi did, went the F away and stayed the F away. They did their thing, put it out in the world and, a lot of people talk about the Bitcoin white paper. I think if people really want to understand the diversity that was brought, even with Bitcoin, you need to look at the additional writings, the things that were on message boards and forums and things like that from Satoshi that we know were from the actual source based on the information that was provided. We know that. And things about privacy and should there be privacy and should it be by default? A lot of those things were included in there. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is there's a lot of people in this movement that don't want anything to do with cryptocurrency, they are, or blockchain. And they point out with complete validity, the places where it's being used against us right now and the places where it's going to be used against us. There is absolutely no doubt that when we have fed coin and we will, and if you take a Bitcoin and you turn it into fiat, the whole thing's going to link together and that will be forward and backward in time, everything that ever happened. That's true. It doesn't mean we ignore the technology. This is a war. It's a war on your way of life. It's a war on your right to raise your children the way you want to. It's a war on your right to eat the food that you want to eat and not eat the food that you don't want to eat. It's a war on your choice for health care. It's a war on your choice with who you associate with. It's a war on your ability to communicate what you want to say and be heard. It's a war on everything that anybody that's concerned about liberty is concerned about. And it's a weapon. It is a weapon. You're right. When you say they're going to use this against us, you're not wrong. But you know what you don't do when you have an enemy using a weapon against you is pretend, well, if we decide that weapon doesn't exist, it can't hurt us. If we decide that weapon doesn't exist, we can prevent it from being used. If we resist the weapon by saying we don't support it, we're going to actually do something. You're not. When you're in a battle, when you're in a war, it's an arms race. And what you need to be doing is taking that weapon and advancing it to your cause so that you can actually resist their cause. And it is privacy that is our main weapon. It's in our main arsenal. And it's something that we need to understand that if we communicate it properly, even the people that we think of who are lost causes will understand it. 
because people do value privacy. And all you have to do is if somebody says, well, they don't, they don't, they're not worried about privacy. Okay. Can I, can I have your phone? Will you give me your phone and let me just go through every single thing on your phone? Can I just look at all your text messages? Can I look at everything you've done? Can I look at all your pictures? Can you just unlock your phone for me and hand it to me? And most people like will say no. Like, I think the only person I would do that for in my life is my wife. My wife can look at my phone till her heart's content. Anybody else? No, you, it's not even that I'm worried. It's that that's not for you. That's not your information. So we all feel that way. So we can actually use this message to win people over to, you do have a right to not have somebody look at that phone. And then you ask that same person, okay, so you won't hand me that phone. Do you do understand that everything in that phone is being reviewed all the time by computers that are way faster than any human being? And that data is going places and it is being used against you. You do understand that, right? And most of them go, well, yeah, but, and there's your, there's your end. There's your end. What if I told you it didn't have to be that way? What if I told you there were options? When it comes to this, the best work that's being done right now is being done by the Blockchain Privacy Security and Adoption Alliance, or the BP, BPSAA, um, to make it a little bit easier on the tongue. And I'm going to go through... Real quick, all the people that are involved, all the projects that are part of it, and I know like half of them really, really well, and half of them I'm just starting to learn about, so I'm not going to be an expert on any one of them, um, but these are all people and organizations that are dedicated to your privacy, and I really recommend, again, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash D3 and get links to all this stuff. You, you check this stuff out and start reading the white papers for all these projects. The first one and my favorite is Pirate Chain. Again, ticker symbol A-R-R-R. This is a completely private, by default, cryptocurrency. It, 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 I love Monero. I think Monero is a real advancement in cryptocurrency, but it uses what's called a ring CT. So the way Monero works is when you send a transaction, it's like there's 13 cups. And under one cup is a ball. And that ball is the actual transaction. And only that ball actually gets to who you're sending it to. And the other 12 kind of go somewhere else. Or it's I think it's actually 11 right now. And they're upgrading it. Or it's going to be something like 100, 120, 111, somewhere in that nature. And that doesn't sound like a big number, even the 11. But it's, it's bigger than you think because every time a new transaction occurs, it adds to it. It's, it's an additional factor of 11. And it works pretty well. What we've learned, though, is the feds now can crack Monero if they know exactly what they're looking for. If they're only trying to prove a thing instead of find a thing, they can kind of sort of figure it out and make a case, at least to a jury of your peers, that you're guilty. Um, because they know Bill sent it to Tom, and they can kind of really track that down. Because it's like a bunch of couriers came to your house, and they kind of got in a huddle, and then they kind of like handed a bunch of packages to each other. Only one package is real and they all went away, but you can see how you can still sort of figure that out. The way pirate chain works is it's like you have a chest buried in a, your backyard and it has your money in it. And I think to myself, I want John's Kratom. So I want John to have a hundred dollars and a hundred dollars worth of my treasure literally vanishes like on Star Trek and appears over in John's treasure chest to which no one has any visibility. Again, I have an R address on my website at the link I've given out several times now. 
I defy you to tell me a single thing about that address of any value to anyone anywhere. That's privacy. And that's why I love Pirate Chain, because every time you do business with somebody, you're using that level of, of privacy, that level of cryptography by default. You cannot turn it off. It is, there is no option to do that. There's no way to screw it up. The next one I want to talk about is Sentinel. Sentinel is one of the most exciting projects there is to me. I'm really excited that they're, they're switching over their token from an ERC-20 token, which is Ethereum, because I don't really care for that right now, especially with the cost of it, to I think Cosmos is what they're doing. So I'm glad they're making that move. They're also going to be working through BPSAA to add other currencies that can be used, like Pirate, like Monero, et cetera, uh, to it. But what a distributed VPN is, is an actual VPN. Just like I said, if you have optional privacy, you don't have privacy. If you're buying a VPN from a company that's centralized, you don't have a VPN. You have a pseudo VPN. It's better than the alternative, but we have had virtual private network companies because they're public. And once they have a data breach, they at that point, they're going to tell you the truth. Because if it comes out that they didn't, and they and the data breach becomes known, somebody's going to federal prison. So all of a sudden, they're honest. And so when they've had data breaches, they've had to like disclose, hey, um, yeah, uh, a, a bunch of your data, like, uh, it was it was hacked. What data? What like where you went, when you were there, how long? Like all the stuff you're actually trying to hide, or actually trying to. I wouldn't even say hide, just to keep private. When you're using a VPN, yeah, they're storing the data. What Sentinel's doing is creating a distributed VPN where anybody can participate. Instead of mining, what you can actually do is provide an access node. And then you're compensated. So you can actually advertise on their network. I have a node available here. And this is not hard to do. Anybody with a decent internet connection and a decent computer can do this. And I charge X Sentinel per gigabyte, uh, gigabyte of data or what have you. And then a person can actually use your access as their VPN. And there's no way you can see what they're doing. No way they can see what you're doing. All this is open source code. And this is something else. While I say that word, I need to explain to some people out there. People are like, well, the CIA developed it, man, or whatever. Okay. No matter what crypto project you're talking about. These projects using open source code are available for anybody to look at every line of code within them and see what they do and how they work. You're talking thousands of people all over the world who live to catch one thing. Like catch to be the guy that found that one thing where hey these guys are screwing you over. There is nothing that is like an IRS audit of your finances does not even come close to what happens to open source code when it goes out there. So you have this open source code that allows this interact interoperability to have virtual private network access all over the world. So it can be as it can be as much as I want to protect my identity. But it can also be as simple as I want to see this movie. It's not been released in the United States yet. So on my VPN, I'm in France. There's there's things that are not available to you based on the country you're in. Uh, people in China are very aware of this. They say, like, you know, Google's banned in China and this is banned in China. That No, nothing's banned in China. Like, it's banned at the, the state level, but every other person has a VPN. And if you can get away with it in China, you can get away with it here. But is your VPN really a VPN? With Sentinel, it will be. The next one is Turtle Networks. Their main focus is decentralized exchanges and decentralized governance. I've had this discussion with some anarchists that I, I, I call you know, kind of like the purest asshole types, where like, there's no rules, man, or it's not anarchy. Like, all humans, when we interact, we have rules. If you come to my house, I have rules. If I come to your house, there's rules. 
And so we do need a form of governance by by voluntary association. Like our group is going to have these rules that we all agree with. Maybe it's through something like a DAO or something. So Turtle Networks allows for decentralized governance through smart contracts and things like that. But they also empower what are called decentralized exchanges. So when I want to convert one currency into another currency, and I don't want somebody knowing what I'm doing, I can use a decentralized exchange like Polarity, which is built using the Turtle Network, and I can allow my customers to exchange currencies with each other without any involvement of the government, without any KYC. And that's what Turtle Networks does. So we have that available. So think about what I've just given you. I've just given you three of these partners so far. We have the ability to exchange uh, currencies into other currencies with no third party and no giving away of our information. We have a totally private currency and we have a virtual network that's actually private, that really is private with nobody able to collect our data. Next, we have Ether One. Ether One is part of BPSAA and what they're doing is decentralized hosting. I think everybody in this community, whether you were part of it or not, you probably know what happened to Parler. Parler was considered bad because they backed the orange man and the orange man's views and the right wing and the evil militia and the uh, the insurrection at the Capitol. And I, all I can think of is if you all think that's an insurrection, if there ever is one, you're going to be awfully surprised at what a real insurrection looks like. But whether you love or hate Parler, in the end, they were just taken down. Amazon Web Services just took them down. And a lot of people said, why don't they just get another host? Well, any host that was big enough to host them said no. And when you're running a site that size, you can't just go to like Bill's Hosting, right? Or even Bluehost. You have to go to a major hosting provider that has the the capability to deal with something of that size. Well, how about thousands upon thousands of users all over the world in basically kind of a torrent situation, each hosting... (laughs) Can you do something about that? Each hosting um, a little piece or a little part of a website. And all of a sudden, you can't shut it down. And it works through the IPFS protocol, which I'm not going to dig into that today because we could get too long into this if we start going into these texts individually. But it's, you can you can get there from any browser. You're just using a different protocol. You're just using different initials at the beginning of the address. So now we can host content that can never be taken down. Uh, next, we have Ergo. Ergo does decentralized finance. You know, we could say, hey, I'm not going to worry about the state. I'm not going to worry about their systems and whatever. Okay, what if you want to buy a house? What if you want to buy something you don't have enough money to buy? One of the reasons the crime of 1873 was so damaging is most people don't have enough money to have a stack of gold sitting around. They have a small amount of money. That's part of how it hurt people. It made them dependent on the banking system. Well, there's a lot of things out there. I don't know if you've checked, but even if you're fairly well off, If you want to buy them, you need to borrow money from somebody. With DeFi, we can do that. We we can go out and we can find partners to borrow money from. And there's more that Ergo does, but that's like its main central focus is enabling security and privacy within decentralized finance. Next is Komodo. Uh, I talked a lot about Pirate Chain because they're kind of my favorite project right now. But um, Komodo is built off the back I'm sorry, Pirate Chain is built off the back of Komodo. Like without Komodo, there probably wouldn't be a Pirate Chain. Komodo is smart chains, security, interoperability between chains, um, business to business, and they're enabling what we call atomic swaps. So what we're going to be able to do is take a currency like Pirate Chain using atomic swaps and make any currency into at least some sort of a privacy coin. 
so that we can actually have somebody, as long as the, let's say the merchant's using the app that's being built. And I come there and I want to spend pirate with them and I want to stay anonymous, but they want to receive U.S. dollars in the form of USDT Tether. Well, they'll get their money in, in dollars. I spent pirate chain. I'm anonymous in the transaction, just like I handed them cash. That's just one way we can use that. So Komodo's amazing in what they're enabling and what they're doing with projects. Next is Burst. Uh, Burst is built on something called proof of capacity, just proof that it's actually there instead of proof of work. So it's very environmentally friendly for those that are concerned about that. But their main focus is social media, empowering social media to be able to actually be immutable and not be able to be taken down, not be able to be uh, censored and creating marketplaces so that we can actually do business with each other in a marketplace environment where that can't be shut down without the vulnerabilities that come from being an individual. And if think about what happened to Ross Albright. And I'll say something here that if I don't clarify before I say it, you're going to think I'm saying something negative about Ross. I'm not. If I could snap my fingers and make that man free, not only would I do it, if I had that much power, I'd put him back where he was all those years ago and give him all his money back. But Ross made a mistake. Ross made a mistake in that he was an individual that could eventually be found, and he chose to censor something, to say certain things couldn't be sold. And therefore, they were able to say, well, you chose not to let this happen. So why didn't you choose to not let this other thing that we also don't like happen? We need to create autonomous marketplaces where nobody has control. And that's really scary, but you know what? Freedom's scary. And we need to do this in ways where people cannot be individually targeted. One of the things I said at the beginning of this was, you know, one of the things Satoshi did was he stayed anonymous. He went away and he shut up like that was important. But what's also equally important that comes out of that is the reason Bitcoin had to be co-opted instead of stopped. There's no building with a big B on it. There's no place you can go. There's no place you can go and shut it down. And we need to build marketplaces that way. That's what Burst is doing. Dragon Chain, another partner in BPSA, is uh, doing uh, centralized identity. We are going to need to be able to know we are doing business with the person we think we're doing business with, even if that identity doesn't necessarily say it's Jack Spierko. We need to be able to say, hey, this place here, if I'm going to order a widget, I know I'm going to get a good widget. Think of like the Amazon like review system. You can hate Jeff Bezos, you can hate Amazon, but the reason most people use it anyway is if I order a thing, I know the thing's coming, I know that if there's a problem, the thing will be fixed. Part of that is because we know who and what Amazon is. Even the things we don't like, we know it. Well, if we have the ability to have identities that are known yet unknown and decentralized, we have that ability kind of in this second parallel world that we're talking about building here. Um, we also are looking at with, with Dragon Chain like fraud compliance. Not everything needs to be completely private. Like if I, I would love a complete transparent blockchain in the government. I don't mean for the government. I mean in the government so that a taxpayer can say, look what you're doing. I would love it if we had the ability to audit every single politician's contributions, the associated PACs, their associated businesses. I, I'm, I'm all for transparency for people who are taking money from people against their will. Private citizens should have as much autonomy and as much privacy as they want. But people who are living off the public's money, we should be able to see everything and anything they do. 
So we can look at fraud compliance in that way. We can also look at fraud, fraud compliance between two consenting businesses to make sure that things are happening the right way. Um, and also intra-chain interoperability. So how can we take something that's on this chain and this chain over here and make them talk to each other? Dragon Chain enables that. And then BitTube. Uh, everybody thinks of BitTube as just kind of like a place you can go look at videos where they're not censored. And that is a big part of it. But what they're actually doing is they're creating a censorship-resistant content platform and they're making it we talked about privacy by default but BitTube, i'm sorry bittube creates monetization by default everybody that participates in the bittube community and you learn more by reading their white paper and checking out their website um has the potential to participate in monetization of their content and what they're doing and i think that's a really important thing because if you think about the the juggernaut that somebody like google or facebook is all they're doing is harvesting your activity, your data, and your content to the tune of, on average, about $8 a year per user. If you, if you think about that, it's kind of criminal what Facebook's become with how much snooping and spying they do in your life. If, if Facebook simply had said, it's $8 a year to use Facebook if you like it, they could have made just as much money, maybe more money under that model than basically pimping out your data. That's if, if you are using Facebook today, especially if you're not using with like privacy technologies like Facebook container and whatever, you're basically a digital whore for Mark Zuckerberg. And I know Zuckerberg, and I know some people don't, maybe, maybe I said Zuckerberg unintentionally, but intentionally, right? Zuckerberg, right? But you're, you're basically being used. And, and people don't like to hear that, but it doesn't change that it's a reality. That's what's being done to you. Your data is being harvested. And we need ways to avoid that. And we need ways to actually say then, well, if, if I have value simply in my content creation and my activity, should I be able to participate in that and do so without necessarily having anybody know who I am? So I, I went through all of those entities there that are part of BPSAA, even though I don't know deeply about every project. I'm probably talking about half of them I'm really deeply involved with, with you know, gaining knowledge on and using because I didn't want to leave anybody out. And this is why I really recommend that you check out the BPSAA, and I really recommend that you support them in any way you can. There is nobody doing more for your ability to stay private in your activities and protect what you're doing and protect your life that I know of than them. Moving forward, when I looked at that, I realized something that I've been talking about since about 2013 is actually starting to happen. And I never knew how it could happen. But I, I talked about this years and years ago, the concept of a virtual nation. The idea that like nations are a place on land with borders it is something that is really the it's really the, the message of the psychopath that wishes to control people. Since you happen to reside on this grid square, you have to do what I say the way I say whenever I say it. That that's what we think of today, and we call those nations what they really are is countries. They're geographic uh, delineated locations that people by their birth or just simply by occupying a space fall under, whether they consent to it or not. A true nation is, is a group of individuals who are bound by common ideals who choose to associate with each other. And we have nations that you can think of out there. You can think of things like um, the nation of Israel. Now, I know there is a physical location, but... In the Jewish faith, you are part of that nation, whether you reside there or not, bound by ideology. And you can either 
agree with that ideology or not, it doesn't change the, the reality that that's what makes that a nation. And there's other nations like that. We can create our own nations, our own places where we do business with each other, where we interact with each other, and we can have sort of like a dual citizenship. Like I said early on, I'm not getting rid of all my Bitcoin. I think we're heading for a place where you'll be able to basically loan out your Bitcoin and make money off it for the rest of your life and never, ever, ever have your balance go down. That's a place we're headed in their world. And we're going to have to exist in their world some. What we need is a, a way that we can kind of opt out of their world and do business outside of it. Where if we are going to be involved with them, they have to give us a reason. They have to ask us to participate in what they're doing. And if they, and if they don't make a good enough case, as long as we can find somebody else to do business with, somebody else to associate with in our other world, we'll be able to do that. And what we're going to need for that, here's, here's my, and I don't have answers for all these. A lot of the people I gave you are working on things like that, but we need people, like our last guest was talking about doing amazing things to like make these things realities. One, we need a second identity that can be trusted. I need to be able to look at something and see somebody on the other side of the world or the other side of the state or the other side of the country and say, I want to do business with, I want to interact with this person, and I know who and what they're about. I don't need to know their proper name. I don't need to know the name on their basically their tax harvesting certificate we call a birth certificate. We think of identity as being like when I was born, they made a certificate, it said John Spirko on it, right? And then that's my identity. But in reality, the value of my identity is everything I've ever done, everybody I've ever interacted with in my reputation. That's actually my real identity. Like if I had called myself a different name when I started doing the survival podcast and somebody said to you, well, Jack Spirico's real name is Bilbo Baggins. You wouldn't care. It doesn't matter to you. What you'd say is, but I know the man that I've done business with for 13 years. I know that every time I've given him money, he's given me back what he said he would give me. I know that I've listened to his teaching. I've listened to his podcast. And no matter who it is, you'd feel the same way. You don't really care what the person's name is. You care that you know the track record. We need a digital identity that is tokenized, that is not their version of it, where everything you do everywhere, like every time you pick up the phone and make a phone call is attached to it, where all of your, like, that's what they want to do. We need our own version of it, where we get to decide who sees what, where I can basically give you a viewing key into what you're allowed to know if I think you need to know it. And you don't need to know where I live. You don't need to know anything about me other than what I choose for you to know and what we need to know about each other to interact with each other. We need a parallel internet that cannot be censored. And we already have it. What we need are more tools and we need better user interface so that we can use them. We need to make sure that if you want to put something online, if you want to put up information, if you want to put up a video, no one can take it down. Again, we're already there. We just need uh, like a tighter integration of how to use it. We need the ability to leave the matrix at will. If you think about the movie The Matrix, whenever they went into The Matrix, they sat down in a chair, they strapped in, and then they got jacked in by a coder and they went into The Matrix. I'll leave it to you. Is our world we're creating for ourselves The Matrix or is their world the matrix? I don't even care. It doesn't matter. You can decide either way, but we need the ability to operate in either of those worlds whenever we want, however we want, and not be in the other one. It's difficult, but it can be done. We need the ability to privately do commerce in a trusted and a trustless environment. So if I know John, great. If I don't know John, I need to still be able to do business with John. 
We do this all the time in their world. There's no reason we can't do it in our own. The keys to making this work. We need to simplify user interfaces. We need to make things in our world as easy to use as they are in their world because people don't like extra steps. This is why I said if it's privacy by option, it's not privacy. Here's an example. Zcash, which is considered a privacy coin, 6%. 6% of transactions on the Zcash network are private. 6%. Meaning 94% aren't. And the 94% compromise the 6% because you got to click a button to use it. We don't. We don't need things to be complicated. We don't need things to have extra steps. We need a person who's who's existing and, and, and browsing content on IPFS to be able to do it as seamlessly as they do with HTTP, which is what you're using to watch this right now. We need it to be seamless. We need it to be no differential other than maybe a little light that's on to remind you when you're not doing it, something like that. Um, we need education on the how the what and the why. And that starts with everybody watching this right now. There are things you cannot convince your fr friends and family of. Some of them, if you try to convince them, you know what? Wearing a cloth mask doesn't work because here's 12 studies done over 70 years that say it doesn't work. The same people telling you it did said it didn't for 70 years. They won't listen to you. Vin Armani calls it the dim age, and I think it's a great term for it. Like they believe in magic. Those people can't be reached by talking to them about things they've already made up their mind on. But they can be reached when you talk to them about their right to privacy. It's, it's the Achilles heel in the establishment because everybody believes in it. I should say everybody that's not a psychopath believes in it. And again, if you're having that conversation, they say, but you know, can I have your phone? Will you unlock your phone and hand me your phone and let me look at all your text messages, all your emails, all that stuff? You won't. Do you trust me? You do, but you don't want me to know. I understand. I'm not offended. Then why do you trust people who you don't know with that information? And that's a great way to educate on the why. The how is simply let me show you. And the what is here are the things that get it done. And we need to be doing this because the larger we make our community, the more they have to. They have to accept us. They have to deal with us. I want them to beg us. I don't want to invite them in. You're talking about a vampire. Like every sci-fi show you've ever watched, when the vampire comes to the door, you do not say, come in. We do not invite the state in. We do not invite their systems in. We do not invite their ideas in. But we want them begging us to interact with them. And we do that through united fronts and through being able to operate without them. That's how we get that done. Um, we need in real life relationships, extending trust into virtual relationships. So if you think back to like the beginning of Bitcoin, when Bitcoin started, I was like, this is a great idea, but what can I buy with it? And there were like marketplaces where you could see all the stuff you could buy with, with Bitcoin. And I'm not talking about like Silk Road or anything. This is even prior to that. And it was all like web hosting and things like that. And the reason it made sense, if, if I don't pay you for hosting, you just turn off my hosting and you have no like a host has no real cost to add one new customer so it was an easy place to take the risk for the supplier and the buyer was like you know i'm only paying for a month at a time so it's not that much money if they if they screw me over i just won't do business with them anymore 
And, and that's what it required. Like anything that was a significant investment that had a material cost before there was fungibility of Bitcoin in a fiat, it was really hard for somebody to say, like, I'm going to build your house and I'm going to take Bitcoin in payment because I got to buy the lumber. I got to buy the nails. I got to pay my labor. Like my labor is one thing, but my my help labor, like that's that's an expense. But where people were willing to do business with things other than fiat, because we have this magical trust we have in fiat, was when we knew the person. Because we knew we could count on the person and we knew we could work with the person. So the way we bridge that gap is we start doing business across the fence with people we know in real life, but we do business with virtual currencies and in these virtual worlds. And thereby we establish our trust. And then as that identity attaches that trust to it, it extends out, we begin to do business with people that are one or two or three off. And eventually we build a reputation in that world the exact same way we've always built reputations in towns and cities and what have you, where you knew you could go to somebody's business and they would take care of you. My dad sold used tires when I was a kid. It doesn't sound like a really glamorous job, but he made an awful lot of money doing it. And he had a reputation. If you went to him and you needed a tire so your car would pass inspection, that's all you needed, he'd get you through the inspection. If you wanted the best used tire, if you wanted something some guy drove around a little bit, decided he didn't really like the way they looked, and he wanted basically a brand new set of tires at a discount, he'd give you that and anything in between. He built that reputation. It took years to do it. These reputations will take years to do, but how do you start a reputation? You do business with people you already know, and you extend from there. We need that to happen. And... I, I know some people are going to not like this. I don't think we need a coin for everything anymore. Even some of the projects that I gave you today, I'm like, honestly, the only reason you have a coin is because it's your way to print your own money. And I understand. And there is value to a native token in an ecosystem because you know it's going to work. And while you're building the ecosystem, if there's a problem, either the guy building the ecosystem built the token or... The guy, like one guy's in this chair and then right over here in the other chairs. And like those guys can talk to each other and they can work things out. I, I get that utility. I really see how that worked out for like library odyssey um, and having their own native token on their own platform. Cause that system, even though it's really not a privacy system, but it allows for privacy. It works the way all these social media sites don't work and should are integrating cryptocurrency. You create an account, you have a wallet. You have an address. You earn money. You can buy it. You can sell it. You can trade it. You can tip. You can be tipped. It just works. We need that. But I don't think every single time we have a new project come out, we need a new token. We need a new, a new coin. We have, in my opinion, between Monero and R, two outstanding ways to trade value with each other and do so with complete and total anonymity. Uh, an be anonymous. I can't say that word for some reason right now. Um, what else do you need? What else do you need? Now, if we're using something to create interoperability, i.e. Dragon Train, okay, I, I, Dragon, Dragon Train, I, I get it, I guess. But if I were going to build a social media network today, and I'm not because I don't have the time, but if, this is my kind of my dream. If somebody wants to build my dream for me, it would be a lot like Facebook or MeWe. You would have your own individual feeds and your connections to your own individual people. You would have groups, pages, and you'd have a marketplace. And you'd have an instantly integrated cryptocurrency that you'd be able to trade between members of that community. And nobody would be able to know jack diddly crap unless you wanted them to. Now, I know one currency that can do that right now. 
specifically with, with Pirate Chain. And I think Monero could do a pretty damn good job of it too. So what else do we need? So I need, I think we need to resist this temptation. We know why we hate fiat or what we call fiat, because what we have today in our currency is actually worse than fiat. The greenback under Abraham Lincoln was a true fiat currency. The government just said, let there be money. And there was money like that's, that's how they did that. Right. But the currency today is actually backed by debt. It's worse than a pure fiat currency because there's a bill on the other end of it that devalues it. And so we know that printing money is bad. And we know the printing press cannot be resisted if it exists. If a human being has the power to make money by pushing a button or entering a command, they're going to do it. And that's why we have such a plethora, thousands and thousands and thousands of cryptocurrencies. And honestly, over half of them, probably more than 90% of them are functionally unnecessary and useless. We really don't need that. We don't need that many different currencies. We have 10 cryptocurrencies for every nation on the planet. We, we really don't need that. And I really encourage people that are going to take the next step, resist the temptation, resist the one ring, right? The power to bind them, resist it. Use something that's already there. If what you're building has value, people will bring a currency to it. And the most important thing you can do for humanity right now, if you're going to build a project in this space, is enable people to do business with each other privately. And I would say, follow the example of Satoshi to a degree. Don't tell anybody who you are. Don't have a building with a name on it. Don't use your real name. Be anonymous. Use a DAO. And maybe even in a DAO, a, detonymous, uh, a decentralized autonomous organization, maybe the people in the DAO don't even know who the other people are in the DAO. Here's a real quick story as we wrap up. My father-in-law was part of the resistance in the underground in Europe during the Nazi occupation. His father ended up in a concentration camp. He was awarded the Medal of Freedom by Dwight Eisenhower. When my father-in-law was young, so that was his dad, he was working in the resistance too. And his dad had him take a suitcase to, a, to a, a room in a hotel and give it to other people in the hotel. And he said, son, when you walk up to that door, you knock on the door three times. You look at the floor. When the door opens, put the suitcase out. Do not look up. Do not look at their face. Let them know you never saw their face. So that when you walk away, they know that you're never a risk to them. You can't give them up under torture because you don't know who they are. You don't know anything about them. You don't know what they look like. Do not look at their face. We're dealing with people as evil as the people those people we're dealing with. We're dealing with those people right now. And that means we need to use a, an anonymous system to our advantage, including sometimes not really knowing who each other is. That's not about not trusting each other. That's about not trusting the enemy. And we need to absolutely learn that lesson from history. A, a saying I heard recently, and I was like, man, where's this been my whole life, was the real lesson from history is no one ever learns a lesson from history. It doesn't have to be the case. That's a lesson we need to learn. Here's the good news, the bad news, and the worst news. In that order. It can be done. It won't be easy. And we have no other option. We're moving into a world where they're going to use technology to control us. We are not going to be able to use the absence of technology to resist. 
we're going to have to employ the same technology that they're using. We're going to have to be smarter with it. We're going to have to be better with it. And we're going to have to be uh, more agile with it. Here's the good news. Government's not smart. The government's not agile. The government's not innovative. The government is a miserable failure. We, for the first time in history, have something that we've never had before. An arms race where we have the advantage. Because no matter how bad they are at doing things, they can make more guns than we can. Because they can tax more people to make more guns, to stamp more out, and somebody will always sell them to them. You can't compete with tens of thousands of people all over the world working together, building and integrating new systems out of basements and garages where they are equal to you. You can't do it because there's more of us than there are of them. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys, all of the resources I mentioned are available at the survival podcast dot com forward slash D3, including a bunch of links that I didn't mention today, uh, how you can connect with me, um, information on the crime of 1873, my interviews with Draith Kata from Pirate Chain, podcasts on virtual nations, podcasts on getting started with cryptocurrency. And at that point, John, I'll turn it back over to you. I don't know if you want me to answer any questions or you've got anything else for me. Hey, Jack, great talk, man. I, I knew you were going to deliver. So I didn't know what to expect, but I knew that it was going to be good. So you got... I like the big picture stuff, right? You can get nitty gritty with the how to on a lot of stuff, but the big picture stuff I think is important also. So thank you so much for that. Let me ask you this. Why, um, why do you think so many people in our community are so damn skeptical and are just convinced that blockchain bad, just like orange man, bad blockchain, bad. What do you think that's all about? It's, it's two things. It's one. They're partially right in that any weapon can be pointed at you, right? So you can have a weapon and point it at somebody else, and I can have a weapon and point it at you. So a bad guy can put a gun in your face, right? But a gun can also defend your home. And I think there's a lack of understanding. Just because something can be used as a weapon doesn't mean it's bad for you to have. If we're going to go with that philosophy, then we should ban guns, right? Like nobody should have a gun. I think the other side is, and I, I hate using this word, but it's the only word for it, it's ignorance. They don't know how it works. They don't understand how it works. They don't know what it is. When I hear people say things like, well, the government's just going to shut down cryptocurrency. Explain to me what cryptocurrency is. And they don't know. And I really think there's a lot of that. People just don't understand. Like when I, in my talk, I talked about like what open source code is. Like, well, this was developed by the CIA. Okay, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, no one knows who Satoshi is. But you really think that you've had, Bitcoin specifically, you've had Hundreds of thousands of extremely intelligent coders go over this. And you think there's something there we don't know about? Are you kidding? Like, I, my issue is not that I don't think the government would do things. I just don't think they're that good at it. I don't think they're that hyper competent. And I think that's something that in our space, we end up elevating government and bureaucracy to a level of competence that they're not worthy of us elevating them to. And that's the magic. That's how. That's the real dim age that Vin talks about, where they keep you afraid of them because you believe they're capable of things they're not. Actually, it's not that they don't have the intention. The capability in many instances lacking. We are stronger than they are. And I think people give over their power and therefore anything they don't understand that might be used against them, well, it must be the CIA or the NSA or whatever. Cryptocurrency is a lot like the internet. Sure, they want to use it against us, but it is the most empowering thing that's ever been given to humanity. Wow. Yeah, that's a bold statement. I, I always sense like it's almost as though people want it to be 
some sort of Trojan horse because it fits into their narrative that we're totally screwed. Yeah. Uh, one thing I like Derek Bros pointed out, it's like, okay, it's a tool. And just because it is being used for negative, bad purposes doesn't mean we just completely abandon it. We step into our power and we use it better. You know, mm -hmm. we leverage it just the same. So I appreciate you kind of driving that home. I think it was a great talk to, to end the session. One person was asking, um, and I know you like cryptocurrency is complicated as hell, but you have a way of just sharing stuff that's like yeah. down to earth, you know, like drinking a beer at the bar with some country guys. You can help them to explain it. But somebody was asking, I'm trying to understand the tech of R. Is there another analogy for how it works? I understand the analogy for Monero well. You did the little uh, pirate chest thing yeah. earlier. I thought that was pretty cool. It's so it uses an encryption, which is. Um, zero knowledge proof it, it it is actually mostly anyway the same technology from zcash right so the people at r didn't develop the zero knowledge proof technology they used it properly what zcash did was hey we have this great encryption it's incredible encryption nobody can break it but we're not going to turn it on unless you choose to turn it on so it's it, it, i mean i i can't get into like the technical explanation of the encryption, but it's just think of it as incredibly advanced encryption, something that you can throw brute for, force at for a year and you're, you're pounding sand. You're not going to get anywhere. The big difference is that it is on by default. And I really believe something, I believe the original Zcash project was going that way. And I, I don't have any proof of this, but there's enough kind of anecdotal evidence and people that know that feels like it was compromised and they turned that functionality off. So just think of it as really, really advanced encryption, um, way better than what you would typically think of as like encrypting a message end to end between people. And what that does is it obfuscates things to the where you cannot, if, if you go look at the block explorer, just to kind of make it clear, for Zcash, basically you see shielded, like your total information you really get is shielded inputs, shielded outputs. There's no data there to collect. There's no data to harvest. It's not there. You, there's no, it's, it, it doesn't exist. It exists long enough to complete the transaction and then it's gone. So that only you and the party you're doing business with know that it happened. Now, if you want to reveal a transaction, individual transactions have a thing called a viewing key that you can you can use if you're the sender. But without that, and that is breaking that viewing key would be like as complicated as breaking the private key that goes with your public key, right? So you to, to actually do that, you would need somebody's public key, somebody's private key, and their viewing key. It's actually harder to do that than to like crack somebody's private key and steal their Bitcoin. So if you got to where you could do the first thing, you'd be so busy stealing people's Bitcoins you, you don't have time to be trying to do this thing, if that makes sense. It's hard to explain. It's, you know, with the time we have, and most people are not going to understand the technical side of it. No, but it, but it works, and that's the important thing. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jack. I appreciate your contribution to our event today. Take right. care. Take care, Stay man. Stay free. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. The one, the only Jack Spirico, the Survival Podcast. Again, the show notes are there, the Survival Podcast dot com slash d3 what a day what a day before i close this out i just want to give a quick shout out to one of our main sponsors bitcoin.com bitcoin.com you can check them out for 
exchanges, if you want to exchange cryptocurrency, if you want to download a wallet, they have a really simple wallet that's a great beginner wallet. There's also some casino games that you can play, although you can't play them in the United States of America, but you can play them if you use a VPN like we discussed earlier. So again, that's Bitcoin.com. Shout out to Roger Ver for his support of what we're doing. And then earlier we mentioned autonomy. So you can go to getautonomy.info, getautonomy.info. There's a great little uh, PDF that you can download with 16 skills that are really going to help accelerate your pursuits and help you accomplish your goals. Essentially, autonomy is a community. It's an online course, but there's also meetups in the real world. It's 13 weeks long. You can enroll now. I myself am participating along with Ramiro, and I've really gotten a whole lot out of it. There's lectures every Friday. There's community Q&A and engagement every Sunday, and it's just all about pursuing excellence in your life. Uh, If you are an entrepreneur or if you want to take things to the next level in business, marketing, in your relationships, in the quality of life that you enjoy, then I strongly encourage you to sign up and check it out. You can go to getautonomy.info. Again, that's getautonomy.info to learn more. Well, this has been day one of, of the D3 Tech Summit. And man, it's it's always a pleasure for me to see this stuff go from an idea and just a concept and then there's so much hard work and behind the scenes stuff that goes into it and then when we actually execute it it's like wow this actually was pretty special so again to recap this is part of the greater reset initiative it's phase one of the greater reset two the greater reset is the people's response to the world economic forms great reset which aims to reshape society and civilization government and business as we know it, a big part of the Great Reset is the fourth industrial revolution, which is wanting to accelerate the merging of biology and technology. Some really crazy stuff going on. So we want to push back on that. We want to roll that back. And instead, we want to highlight the first decentralized evolution. The fourth industrial revolution is all about centralization of power surveillance and control and the first decentralization the first decentralized evolution is all about decentralization of power it's all about privacy and it's all about uh freedom ramiro if you want to bring that back up there for me this is the schedule for tomorrow so we definitely want you to participate and check us out tomorrow we're going to hear from Brittany kaiser she used to work with cambridge analytica which was all up in all sorts of scandals. She's actually the whistleblower that that blew the the whistle on what they were doing. And she's going to share with us about that and about owning your data. We're going to be doing another roundtable about decentralized and innovative technologies, how they can enhance and benefit community building. Really looking forward to that. Matt McKibben's going to be leading that that workshop, I'm sorry, that that panel. He's also participating in the workshop that we talked to you about before. We're going to do an interview with Sal Mayweather on 3D printing, wonderful technology that is really disrupting things. We're going to hear from Matt's Mike Swatek again. He was on the Privacy Crypto Roundtable. He's going to talk to us about decentralized web. Everyone's always giving these these objections to cryptocurrency. Well, the web's going to be controlled and they can shut down your access to the internet. 
And again, like I was saying earlier with Jack, like we need to be in a place of empowerment because the technologies are in existence to where if we just leverage them and proliferate them and spread them, we can create our own decentralized web that cannot be shut down, just like the cryptocurrency technologies cannot be shut down. So that's going to be super cool as well. And then, of course, we're going to hear from our own Derek Bros, co-producer of The Greater Reset. He's going to talk about the pitfalls and benefits of opting out of the matrix. And he's definitely something that's walking the walk. So I'm always in awe of how much of an agorist he is. It's definitely not easy. So it'll be good to have that perspective. And then finally, we're going to close down with Max Borders. This guy's a visionary thinker when it comes to technology, when it comes to futurism. And he's all about decentralization and total freedom and voluntarism. So we're going to hear his perspective to kind of tie everything together and hopefully offer us a hopeful path forward. I strongly want to encourage you to join our newsletter over at thegreaterreset.org, thegreaterreset.org. If you have not yet, please do that and join the Telegram group as well at the Greater, the Greater Reset. You can see the chat there and uh, join us also uh, where we're participating in a lot of discussion. And we also have a Telegram channel as well. All right, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we are going to play you off with a short little video here and stay tuned. We're going to be launching tomorrow at 12 noon. Once again, you're not going to want to miss it. This is John Bush signing out for the D3 Tech Summit.